Losing my dad exacerbated my sense that there was no time to sit around and ponder how life should go. My father was just 55 when he died. Suzanne had been 26. The lesson there was simple. Life is short and not to be wasted. If I died, I didn't want people remembering me for the stacks of legal briefs I'd written or the corporate trademarks I'd helped defend. I felt certain that I had something more to offer the world. It was time to make a move. Still unsure of where I hoped to land, I typed up letters of introduction and sent them to people all over the city of Chicago. I wrote to the heads of foundations, community-oriented nonprofits, and big universities in town, reaching out specifically to their legal departments, not because I wanted to do legal work, but because I figured they were more likely to respond to my resume. Thankfully, a number of people did respond, inviting me to have lunch or come in for a meeting, even if they had no job offer. Over the course of the spring and summer of 1991, I put myself in front of anyone I thought might be able to give me advice. The point was less to find a new job than to widen my understanding of what was possible and how others had gone about it. I was realizing that the next phase of my journey would not simply unfold on its own, that my fancy academic degrees weren't going to automatically lead me to fulfilling work. Finding a career as opposed to a job, wouldn't just come from perusing the contact pages of an alumni directory. It required deeper thought and effort. I would need to hustle and learn. And so, again and again, I laid out my professional dilemma for the people I met, quizzing them on what they did and whom they knew. I asked earnest questions about what kind of work might be available to a lawyer who didn't, in fact, want to practice law. One afternoon, I visited the office of a friendly, thoughtful man named Art Sussman, who was the in-house legal counsel for the University of Chicago. It turned out that my mother had once spent about a year working for him as a secretary, taking dictation and maintaining the legal department's files. This was back when I was a sophomore in high school, before she'd taken her job at the bank. Art was surprised to learn that I hadn't ever visited her at work, that I'd never actually set foot on the university's pristine Gothic campus before now, despite having grown up just a few miles away. If I was honest, there'd been no reason for me to visit the campus. My neighborhood school didn't run field trips there. If there were cultural events open to the community when I was a kid, my family hadn't known about them. We had no friends, no acquaintances even, who were students or alumni. The University of Chicago was an elite school, and to most everyone I knew growing up, elite meant not for us. Its gray stone buildings almost literally had their backs turned to the streets surrounding campus. Driving past, my dad used to roll his eyes at the flocks of students haplessly jaywalking across Ellis Avenue wondering how it was that such smart people had never learned to properly cross a street. Like many Southsiders, my family maintained what was an admittedly dim and limited view of the university, even if my mom had passed a year happily working there. When it came time for me and Craig to think about college, we didn't even consider applying to the University of Chicago. Princeton, 
for some strange reason, had struck us as more accessible. Hearing all of this, Art was incredulous. You've really never been here, he said. Never? Nope, not once. There was an odd power in saying it out loud. I hadn't given the idea much thought before now, but it occurred to me that I'd have made a perfectly fine University of Chicago student if only the town-gown divide hadn't been so vast, if I'd known about the school and the school had known about me. Thinking about this, I felt a little internal prick, a small subterranean twinge of purpose. The combination of where I came from and what I'd made of myself gave me a certain possibly meaningful perspective. Being black and from the South Side, I suddenly saw, helped me recognize problems that a man like Art Sussman didn't even realize existed. In several years, I'd get my chance to work for the university and reckon with some of these community relations problems directly. But right now, Art was just kindly offering to pass around my resume. I think you should talk to Susan Schur, he told me then, unwittingly setting off what to this day feels like an inspired chain reaction. Susan was about 15 years older than I was. She'd been a partner at a big law firm but had ultimately bailed out of the corporate world, just as I was hoping to do, though she was still practicing law with the Chicago city government. Susan had slate gray eyes, the kind of fair skin that belongs on a Victorian queen, and a laugh that often ended with a mischievous snort. She was gently confident and highly accomplished and would become a lifelong friend. I'd hire you right now, she told me when we finally met, but you just finished telling me how you didn't want to be a lawyer. Instead, Susan proposed what now seems like another faded introduction, steering me and my resume toward a new colleague of hers at City Hall, another ship-jumping corporate lawyer with a yen for public service, this one a fellow daughter of the South Side and someone who would end up altering my course in life not once but repeatedly. The person you really need to meet, Susan said, is Valerie Jarrett. Valerie Jarrett was the newly appointed deputy chief of staff to the mayor of Chicago and had deep connections across the city's African-American community. Like Susan, she'd been smart enough to land herself a job in a blue-chip firm after law school and had then been self-aware enough to realize that she wanted out. She moved to City Hall largely because she was inspired by Harold Washington, who'd been elected mayor in 1983 when I was away at college and was the first African-American to hold the office. Washington was a voluble politician with an exuberant spirit. My parents loved him for how he could pepper an otherwise folksy speech with Shakespearean quotes and for the famous mouth-stuffing vigor with which he ate fried chicken at community events on the South Side. Most important, he had a distaste for the entrenched democratic machinery that had long governed Chicago, awarding lucrative city contracts to political donors and generally keeping blacks in service to the party, but rarely allowing them to advance into official elected roles. 
building his campaign around reforming the city's political system and better tending to its neglected neighborhoods. Washington won the election by a hair. His style was brassy and his temperament was bold. He was able to eviscerate opponents with his eloquence and intellect. He was a black brainy superhero. He clashed regularly and fearlessly with the mostly white old guard members of the city council and was viewed as something of a walking legend, especially among the city's black citizens who saw his leadership as kindling a larger spirit of progressivism. His vision had been an early inspiration for Barack, who arrived in Chicago to work as an organizer in 1985. Valerie, too, was drawn by Washington. She was 30 years old when she joined Washington's staff in 1987 at the start of his second term. She was also the mother of a young daughter and soon to be divorced, which made it a deeply inconvenient time to take the sort of pay cut one does when leaving a swishy law firm and landing in city government. And within months of her starting the job, tragedy struck. Harold Washington abruptly had a heart attack and died at his desk, 30 minutes after holding a press conference about low-income housing. In the aftermath, a black alderman was appointed by the city council to take Washington's place, but his tenure was relatively short. In a move many African Americans saw as a swift and demoralizing return to the old white ways of Chicago politics, voters went on to elect Richard M. Daley, the son of a previous mayor, Richard J. Daley, who was broadly considered the godfather of Chicago's famous cronyism. Though she had reservations about the new administration, Valerie had decided to stay on at City Hall, moving out of the legal department and directly into Mayor Daley's office. She was glad to be there as much for the contrast as anything. She described to me how her transition from corporate law into government felt like a relief. An energizing leap out of the super-groomed unreality of high-class law being practiced on the top floors of skyscrapers and into the real world, the very real world. Chicago City Hall and County Building is a flat-roofed, 11-story, gray granite monolith that occupies an entire block between Clark and LaSalle, north of the Loop. Compared with the soaring office towers surrounding it, it's squatty, but not without grandeur, featuring tall Corinthian columns out front and giant echoing lobbies made primarily of marble. The county runs its business out of the east-facing half of the building. The city uses the western half, which houses the mayor and city council members as well as the city clerk. City Hall, as I learned on the sweltering summer day I showed up to meet Valerie for a job interview, was both alarmingly and upliftingly packed with people. There were couples getting married and people registering cars. There were people lodging complaints about potholes, their landlords, their sewer lines, and everything else they felt the city could improve. There were babies in strollers and old ladies in wheelchairs. There were journalists and lobbyists, and also homeless people just looking to get out of the heat. Out on the sidewalk in front of the building, a knot of activists waved signs and shouted chants, 
though I can't remember what it was they were angry about. What I do know is that I was simultaneously taken aback and completely enthralled by the clunky, controlled chaos of the place. City Hall belonged to the people. It had a noisy, gritty immediacy that I never felt at Sidley. Valerie had reserved 20 minutes on her schedule to talk to me that day, but our conversation ended up stretching for an hour and a half. A thin, light-skinned African-American woman dressed in a beautifully tailored suit. She was soft-spoken and strikingly serene, with a steady brown-eyed gaze and an impressive grasp of how the city functioned. She enjoyed her job, but didn't try to gloss over the bureaucratic headaches of government work. Something about her caused me instantly to relax. Years later, Valerie would tell me that to her surprise, I managed to reverse the standard interview process on her that day, that I'd given her some basic helpful information about myself, but otherwise, I'd grilled her, wanting to understand every last feeling she had about the work she did and how responsive the mayor was to his employees. I was testing the suitability of the work for me as much as she was testing the suitability of me for the work. Looking back on it, I'm sure I was only capitalizing on what felt like a rare opportunity to speak with a woman whose background mirrored mine, but who was a few years ahead of me in her career trajectory. Valerie was calm, bold, and wise in ways that few people I'd met before were. She was someone to learn from, to stick close to. I saw this right away. Before I left, she offered me a job inviting me to join her staff as an assistant to Mayor Daly, beginning as soon as I was ready. I would no longer be practicing law. My salary would be $60,000, about half of what I was currently making at Sidley and Austin. She told me I should take some time and think about whether I was truly prepared to make this sort of change. It was my leap to consider, my leap to make. I'd never been one to hold City Hall in high regard, Having grown up black on the South Side, I had little faith in politics. Politics had traditionally been used against black folks as a means to keep us isolated and excluded, leaving us undereducated, unemployed, and underpaid. I had grandparents who lived through the horror of Jim Crow laws and the humiliation of housing discrimination and basically mistrusted authority of any sort. South Side, as you may recall, thought that even the dentist was out to get him. My father, who was a city employee most of his life, had essentially been conscripted into service as a Democratic precinct captain in order to even be considered for promotions at his job. He relished the social aspect of his precinct duties, but had always been put off by City Hall cronyism. And yet, I was suddenly considering a City Hall job. I'd winced at the pay cut. But on some visceral level, I was just intrigued. I was feeling another twinge, a quiet nudge toward what might be a whole different future from the one I'd planned for. I was almost ready to leap, but for one thing, it wasn't just about me anymore. When Valerie called me a few days later to follow up, I told her I was still thinking the offer over. I then asked a final and probably strange question. 
Could I please, I said, also introduce you to my fiancé? I suppose I should back up here, rewinding us through the heavy heat of that summer, through the disorienting haze of those long months after my father died. Barack had flown back to Chicago to be with me for as long as he could around my dad's funeral before returning to finish at Harvard. After graduation in late May, he packed up his things, sold his banana yellow Datsun, and flew back to Chicago, delivering himself to 7436 South Euclid Avenue and into my arms. I loved him. I felt loved by him. We'd made it almost two years as a long-distance couple, and now, finally, we could be a short-distance couple. It meant that we once again had weekend hours to linger in bed, to read the newspapers and go out for brunch and share every thought we had. We could have Monday night dinners and Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night dinners, too. We could shop for groceries and fold laundry in front of the TV. On the many evenings when I still got weepy over the loss of my dad, Barack was now there to curl himself around me and kiss the top of my head. Barack was relieved to be done with law school. Eager to get out of the abstract realm of academia and into work that felt more engaging and real. He'd also sold his idea for a nonfiction book about race and identity to a New York publisher, which for someone who worshipped books as he did felt like an enormous and humbling boon. He'd been given an advance and had about a year to complete the manuscript. Barack had, as he always seemed to, plenty of options. His reputation, the gushing reports by his law school professors, the New York Times story about his selection as president of the Law Review, seemed to bring a flood of opportunity. The University of Chicago offered him an unpaid fellowship that came with a small office for the year, the idea being that he'd write his book there and maybe eventually sign on to teach as an adjunct professor at the law school. My colleagues at Sidley and Austin, still hoping Barack would come work full-time at the firm, provided him with a desk to use during the eight or so weeks leading up to his bar exam in July. He was now also considering taking a job at Davis Minor Barnhill in Gallon, a small public interest firm that did civil rights and fair housing work and whose attorneys had been aligned closely with Harold Washington, which was a huge draw for Barack. There's something innately bolstering about a person who sees his opportunities as endless, who doesn't waste time or energy questioning whether they will ever dry up. Barack had worked hard and dutifully for everything he was now being given, but he wasn't notching achievements or measuring his progress against that of others, as so many people I knew did, as I sometimes did myself. He seemed, at times, beautifully oblivious to the giant rat race of life and all the material things a 30-something lawyer was supposed to be going after from a car that wasn't embarrassing, to a house with a yard in the suburbs or a swank condo in the loop. I'd observed this quality in him before, but now that we were living together and I was considering making the first real swerve of my life, I came to value it even more. In a nutshell, Barack believed and trusted 
when others did not. He had a simple, buoying faith that if you stuck to your principles, things would work out. I'd had so many careful, sensible conversations at this point with so many people about how to extract myself from a career in which, by all outward measures, I was flourishing. Again and again, I'd read the caution and concern on so many faces when I spoke of having loans to pay off, of not yet having managed to buy a house. I couldn't help but think how my father had kept his aims deliberately modest, avoiding every risk in order to give us constancy at home. I still walked around with my mother's advice ringing in my ear. Make the money first and worry about your happiness later. Compounding my anxiety was the one deep longing that far outmatched any material wish. I knew I wanted to have children sooner rather than later. And how would that work if I abruptly started over in a brand new field? Barack, when he showed up back in Chicago, became a kind of soothing antidote. He absorbed my worries, listened as I ticked off every financial obligation I had, and affirmed that he too was excited to have children. He acknowledged that there was no way we could predict how exactly we'd manage things, given that neither of us wanted to be locked into the comfortable predictability of a lawyer's life. But the bottom line was that we were far from poor and our future was promising, maybe even more promising for the fact that it couldn't easily be planned. His was the lone voice telling me to just go for it, to erase the worries and go toward whatever I thought would make me happy. It was okay to make my leap into the unknown because, and this would count as startling news to most every member of the Shields-Robinson family going back all the way to Dandy and Southside. The unknown wasn't going to kill me. Don't worry, Barack was saying. You can do this. We'll figure it out. A word now about the bar exam. It's a necessary chore a rite of passage for any just-hatched lawyer wishing to practice. And though the content and structure of the test itself vary somewhat from state to state, the experience of taking it, a two-day, 12-hour exam meant to prove your knowledge of everything from contract law to arcane rules about secure transactions, is pretty much universally recognized as hellish. Just as Barack was intending to, I had sat for the Illinois bar exam three years earlier, the summer after finishing up Harvard, submitting myself beforehand to what was supposed to be a self-disciplined two months of logging hours as a first-year associate at Sidley while also taking a bar review class and pushing myself through a dauntingly fat book of practice tests. This was the same summer that Craig was getting married to Janice in her hometown of Denver. Janice had asked me to be a bridesmaid, and for a whole set of reasons, not the least of which being that I'd just spent seven years grinding nonstop at Princeton and Harvard, I hurled myself early and eagerly into the role. I oohed and odd at wedding dresses and helped plan the bachelorette activities. There was nothing I wouldn't do to help make the anointed day merrier. 
I was far more excited about the prospect of my brother taking his wedding vows, in other words, than I was about reviewing what constituted a tort. This was in the old days, back when test results arrived via the post office. That fall, with both the bar exam and the wedding behind me, I called my father from work one day and asked if he checked to see if the mail had come in. It had. I asked if there was an envelope in there for me. There was. Was it a letter from the Illinois State Bar Association? Why, yes, that's what it said on the envelope. I next asked if he'd open it for me, which is when I heard some rustling and then a long, damning pause on the other end of the line. I had failed. I had never in my entire life failed a test, unless you want to count the moment in kindergarten when I stood up in class and couldn't read the word white off the manila cards held by my teacher. But I'd blown it with the bar. I was ashamed, sure that I'd let down every person who'd ever taught, encouraged, or employed me. I wasn't used to blundering. If anything, I generally overdid things, especially when it came to preparing for a big moment or a test. But this one I'd let slip by. I think now that it was a byproduct of the disinterest I felt all through law school, burned out as I was on being a student and bored by subjects that struck me as esoteric and far removed from real life. I wanted to be around people and not books, which is why the best part of law school for me had been volunteering at the school's legal aid bureau where I could help someone get a social security check or stand up to an out-of-line landlord. But still, I didn't like to fail. The sting of it would stay with me for months, even as plenty of my colleagues at Sidley confessed that they too hadn't passed the bar the first time. Later that fall, I buckled down and studied for a do-over test, going on to pass it handily. In the end, aside from issues of pride, my screw-up would make no difference at all. Several years later, though, the memory was causing me to regard Barack with extra curiosity. He was attending bar review classes and carrying around his own bar review books and yet didn't seem to be cracking them as often as I thought maybe he should, as I would anyway, knowing what I knew now. But I wasn't going to nag him or even offer myself as an example of what could go wrong we were built so differently, he and I. For one thing, Barack's head was an overpacked suitcase of information, a mainframe from which he could seemingly pull disparate bits of data at will. I called him the fact guy, for how he seemed to have statistics to match every little twist in a conversation. His memory seemed not quite but almost photographic. The truth was, I wasn't worried about whether he passed the bar, and somewhat annoyingly, neither was he. So we celebrated early, on the very same day he finished the exam, July 31, 1991, booking ourselves a table at a downtown restaurant called Gordon. It was one of our favorite places, a special occasion kind of joint, with soft Art Deco lighting and crisp white tablecloths, and things like caviar and artichoke fritters on the menu. It was the height of summer, and we were happy. At Gordon, Barack and I always ordered every course. We had martinis and appetizers, 
We picked a nice wine to go with our entrees. We talked idly, contently, maybe a little sappily. As we were reaching the end of the meal, Barack smiled at me and raised the subject of marriage. He reached for my hand and said that as much as he loved me with his whole being, he still didn't really see the point. Instantly, I felt the blood rise in my cheeks. It was like pushing a button in me. The kind of big blinking red button you might find in some sort of nuclear facility surrounded by warning signs and evacuation maps. Really? We were going to do this now? In fact, we were. We'd had the hypothetical marriage discussion plenty of times already, and nothing much ever changed. I was a traditionalist, and Barack was not. It seemed clear that neither one of us could be swayed. But still, this didn't stop us, two lawyers after all, from taking up the topic with hot gusto. Surrounded by men in sport coats and women in nice dresses enjoying their fancy meals, I did what I could do to keep my voice calm. If we were committed, I said as evenly as I could muster, why wouldn't we formalize that commitment? What part of your dignity would be sacrificed by that? From here, we traversed all the familiar loops of the old argument. Did marriage matter? Why did it matter? What was wrong with him? What was wrong with me? What kind of future do we have if we couldn't sort this out? We weren't fighting, but we were quarreling and doing it attorney style. We punched and counterpunched, dissected and cross-examined, though it was clearly I who was more inflamed. It was I who was doing most of the talking. Eventually, our waiter came around holding a dessert plate, covered by a silver lid. He slid it in front of me and lifted the cover. I was almost too miffed to even look down. But when I did, I saw a dark velvet box where the chocolate cake was supposed to be. Inside it was a diamond ring. Barack looked up at me playfully. He'd baited me. It had all been a ruse. It took me a second to dismantle my anger and slide into joyful shock. He'd riled me up because this was the very last time he would invoke his inane marriage argument ever again, as long as we both should live. The case was closed. He dropped to one knee then, and with an emotional hitch in his voice, asked sincerely, if I please do him the honor of marrying him. Later, I'd learned that he'd already gone to both my mother and my brother to ask for their approval ahead of time. When I said yes, it seemed that every person in the whole restaurant started to clap. For a full minute or two, I stared dumbfounded at the ring on my finger. I looked at Barack to confirm that this was all real. He was smiling. He completely surprised me. In a way, we'd both won. Well, he said lightly, that shut you up. I said yes to Barack, and shortly after that, I said yes to Valerie Jarrett, accepting her offer to come work at City Hall. Before committing, I made a point of following through on my request to introduce Barack and Valerie, scheduling a dinner during which the three of us could talk. I did this for a couple of reasons. For one, I liked Valerie. 
I was impressed by her, and whether or not I ended up taking the job, I was excited to get to know her better. I knew that Barack would be impressed, too. More important, though, I wanted him to hear Valerie's story. Like Barack, she'd spent part of her childhood in a different country, in her case, Iran, where her father had been a doctor at a hospital, and returned to the United States for her schooling, giving her the same kind of clear-eyed perspective I saw in Barack. Barack had concerns about my working at City Hall. Like Valerie, he'd been inspired by the leadership of Harold Washington when he was mayor, but felt decidedly less affinity for the old-school establishment represented by Richard M. Daley. It was the community organizer in him. Even while Washington was in office, he'd had to battle relentlessly and sometimes fruitlessly with the city in order to get even the smallest bit of support for grassroots projects. Though he'd been nothing but encouraging about my job prospects, I think he was quietly worried I might end up disillusioned or disempowered working under Daly. Valerie was the right person to address any concerns. She'd rearranged her entire life in order to work for Washington and then lost him almost immediately. The void that followed Washington's death offered a kind of cautionary tale for the future, one I'd eventually find myself trying to explain to people across America. In Chicago, we'd made the mistake of putting all our hopes for reform on the shoulders of one person without building the political apparatus to support his vision. Voters, especially liberal and black voters, viewed Washington as a kind of golden savior, a symbol, the man who could change everything. He'd carry the load admirably inspiring people like Barack and Valerie to move out of the private sector and into community work and public service. But when Harold Washington died, most of the energy he generated did too. Valerie's decision to stay on with the mayor's office had required some thought, but she explained to us why she felt it was the right choice. She described feeling supported by Daly and knowing that she was being useful to the city. Her loyalty, she said, had been to Harold Washington's principles more than to the man himself. Inspiration on its own was shallow. You had to back it up with hard work. This idea resonated with both me and Barack, and inside that one dinner, I felt as if something had been cemented. Valerie Jarrett was now a part of our lives. Without our ever discussing it, it seemed almost as if the three of us had somehow agreed to carry one another a good long way. There was one last thing to do now that we were engaged. Now that I'd taken a new job and Barack had made a commitment to Davis, Minor, Barnhill, and Gallen, the public interest law firm that had been courting him, we took a vacation, or maybe more accurately, we went on sort of a pilgrimage. We flew out of Chicago on a Wednesday in late August, had a long wait in the airport in Frankfurt, Germany, and then flew another eight hours to arrive in Nairobi just before dawn, stepping outside in the Kenyan moonlight and into what felt like a different world altogether. I had been to Jamaica and the Bahamas, 
and to Europe a few times, but this was my first time being this far from home. I felt Nairobi's foreignness, or really my own foreignness in relation to it. Immediately, even in the first strains of mourning, it's a sensation I've come to love as I've traveled more, the way a new place signals itself instantly and without pretense. The air has a different weight from what you're used to. It carries smells you can't quite identify. A faint whiff of wood smoke, or diesel fuel maybe, or the sweetness of something blooming in the trees. The same sun comes up, but looking slightly different from what you know. Barack's half-sister Alma met us at the airport, greeting us both warmly. The two of them had met only a handful of times, beginning six years earlier when Alma had visited Chicago, but they had a close bond. Alma is a year older than Barack. Her mother, Grace Kezia, had been pregnant with Alma when Barack Obama Sr. left Nairobi to study in Hawaii in 1959. They also had a son, Abongo, who was a toddler at the time. After he returned to Kenya in the mid-1960s, Barack Sr. and Kezia went on to have two more children together. Alma had ebony skin and brilliant white teeth and spoke with a strong British accent. Her smile was enormous and comforting. Arriving in Kenya, I was so tired from the travel I could barely make conversation. But riding into the city, in the back seat of Alma's rattletrap Volkswagen bug, I took note of how the quickness of her smile was just like Barack's, how the curve of her head also resembled his. Alma also clearly had inherited the family brains. She'd been raised in Kenya and returned there often, but she'd gone to college in Germany and was still living there, studying for a Ph.D. She was fluent in English, German, Swahili, and her family's local language called Luo. Like us, she was just here for a visit. Alma had arranged for me and Barack to stay in a friend's empty apartment, a Spartan one-bedroom in a nondescript cinder-block building that had been painted bright pink. For the first couple of days, we were so zonked by jet lag, it felt as if we were moving at half speed. Or maybe it was just the pace of Nairobi, which ran on an entirely different logic than Chicago did. Its roads and British-style roundabouts clogged by a mix of pedestrians, bikers, cars, and matatus. The tottering, informal, jitney-like buses that could be seen everywhere, painted brightly with murals and tributes to God, their roofs piled high with strapped-on luggage, so crowded that passengers sometimes just rode along, clinging precariously to the exterior. I was in Africa now. It was heady, draining, and wholly new to me. Alma's sky blue VW was so old that it often needed to be pushed in order to get the engine into gear. I'd ill-advisedly bought new white sneakers to wear on the trip, and within a day, after all the pushing we did, they turned reddish-brown, stained with the cinnamon-hued dust of Nairobi. Barack was more at home in Nairobi than I was, having been there once before. I moved with the awkwardness of a tourist, 
aware that we were outsiders, even with our black skin. People sometimes stared at us on the street. I hadn't been expecting to fit right in, obviously. But I think I arrived there, naively believing I'd feel some visceral connection to the continent I'd grown up thinking of as a sort of mythical motherland, as if going there would bestow on me some feeling of completeness. But Africa, of course, owed us nothing. It's a curious thing to realize, the in-betweenness one feels being African-American in Africa. It gave me a hard-to-explain feeling of sadness, a sense of being unrooted in both lands. Days later, I was still feeling dislocated, and we were both nursing sore throats. Barack and I got into a fight about what exactly I can't remember. For every bit of awe we felt in Kenya, we were also tired, which led to quibbling, which led finally, for whatever reason, to rage. I'm so angry at Barack, I wrote in my journal. I don't think we have anything in common. My thoughts trailed off. As a measure of my frustration, I drew a long, emphatic gash across the rest of the page. Like any newish couple, we were learning how to fight. We didn't fight often, and when we did, it was typically over petty things, a string of pent-up aggravations that surfaced usually when one or both of us got overly fatigued or stressed. But we did fight, and for better or worse, I tend to yell when I'm angry. When something sets me off, the feeling can be intensely physical, a kind of fireball running up my spine and exploding with such force that I sometimes later don't remember what I said in the moment. Barack, meanwhile, tends to remain cool and rational, his words coming in an eloquent and therefore irritating cascade. It's taken us time, years, to understand that this is just how each of us is built that we are each the sum total of our respective genetic codes, as well as everything installed in us by our parents and their parents before them. Over time, we figured out how to express and overcome our irritations and occasional rage. When we fight now, it's far less dramatic, often more efficient, and always with our love for each other, no matter how strained, still in sight. We woke the next morning in Nairobi to blue skies and fresh energy, less zonked by the jet lag, and feeling like our happy regular selves. We met Alma at a downtown train station, and the three of us boarded a passenger train with slatted windows to head west out of the city and toward the Obama family's ancestral home. Sitting by a window in a cabin packed with Kenyans, some of whom were traveling with live chickens in baskets, others with hefty pieces of furniture they'd bought in the city. I was again struck by how strange my girl-from-Chicago, lawyer-at-a-desk life had suddenly become. How this man sitting next to me had shown up at my office one day with his weird name and quixotic smile and brilliantly upended everything. I sat glued to the window as the sprawling community of Kibera, the largest urban slum in Africa, streamed past.
showing us its low-slung shanties with corrugated tin roofs, its muddy roads and open sewers, and a kind of poverty I've never seen before nor could hardly have imagined. We were on the train for several hours. Barack finally opened a book, but I continued to stare transfixed out the window as the Nairobi slums gave way to jewel-green countryside and the train rattled north to the town of Kisumu, where Alma, Barack, and I disembarked into the broiling equatorial heat and took a last jackhammering ride on a matatu through the maize fields to their grandmother's village of Kogelo. I will always remember the deep red clay of the earth in that part of Kenya, so rich it looked almost primordial, how its dust caked the dark skin and hair of the children who shouted greetings to us from the side of the road. I remember being sweaty and thirsty as we walked the last bit of the way to Barack's grandmother's compound, to the well-kept concrete home where she lived for years, farming an adjacent vegetable patch and tending several cows. Granny Sarah, they called her. She was a short, wide-built lady with wise eyes and a crinkling smile. She spoke no English, only Luo, and expressed delight that we'd come all this way to see her. Next to her, I felt very tall. She studied me with an extra bemused curiosity as if trying to place where I came from and how precisely I'd landed on her doorstep. One of her first questions for me was, which one of your parents is white? I laughed and explained with Alma's help that I was black through and through, basically as black as we come in America. Granny Sarah found this funny. She seemed to find everything funny, teasing Barack for not being able to speak her language. I was bowled over by her easy joy. As evening fell, she butchered us a chicken and made us a stew, which she served with a cornmeal mush called ugali. All the while, neighbors and relatives popped in to say hello to the younger Obamas and to congratulate us on our engagement. I gobbled the food gratefully as the sun dropped and night settled over the village, which had no electricity leaving a bright spray of stars overhead. That I was in this place seemed like a little miracle. I was sharing a rudimentary bedroom with Barack, listening to the stereo sound of crickets in the cornfields all around us, the rustling of animals we couldn't see. I remember feeling awed by the scope of land and sky around me, and at the same time, snug and protected inside that tiny home. I had a new job, a fiancé, and an expanded family, an approving Kenyan granny even. It was true. I'd been flung out of my world, and for the moment, it was all good. Twelve. Barack and I got married on a sunny October Saturday in 1992, the two of us standing before more than 300 of our friends and family at Trinity United Church of Christ on the south side. It was a big wedding, and big was how it needed to be. 
If we were having the wedding in Chicago, there was no trimming the guest list. My roots went too deep. I had not just cousins, but also cousins of cousins. And those cousins of cousins had kids, none of whom I'd ever leave out, and all of whom made the day more meaningful and merry. My father's younger siblings were there. My mother's family turned out in its entirety. I had old school friends and neighbors who came, people from Princeton, people from Whitney Young. Mrs. Smith, the wife of my high school assistant principal who still lived down the street from us on Euclid Avenue, helped organize the wedding, while our across-the-street neighbors, Mr. and Mrs. Thompson and their jazz band, played later that day at our reception. Santita Jackson, in a black dress with a plunging neckline, was my maid of honor. I'd invited old colleagues from Sidley and new colleagues from City Hall. The partners from Barack's firm were there, as were his old organizer friends. Barack's rowdy Hawaiian high school guy posse mingled happily with a handful of his Kenyan relatives who wore brightly colored East African hats. Sadly, we'd lost Gramps, Barack's grandfather, the previous winter to cancer, but his mother and grandmother had made the trip to Chicago, as had Alma and Maya, half-sisters from different continents, united in their affection for Barack. It was the first time our two families had met, and the feeling was joyful. We were surrounded by love, the eclectic, multicultural Obama kind, and the anchoring Robinsons from the Southside kind, all of it now interwoven visibly, pew to pew, inside the church. I held tightly to Craig's elbow as he walked me down the aisle. As we reached the front, I caught my mother's gaze. She was sitting in the first row, looking regal in a floor-length black-and-white sequin dress we picked out together. Her chin lifted and her eyes proud. We still ached for my father every day, though as he would have wanted, we were also continuing on. Barack had woken up that morning with a nasty head cold but it had miraculously cleared as soon as he arrived at the church. He was now smiling at me bright-eyed from his place at the altar, dressed in a rented tux and a buff pair of new shoes. Marriage was still more mysterious to him than it was to me, but in the 14 months we'd been engaged, he'd been nothing but all in. We'd chosen everything about this day carefully. Barack, having initially declared he was not interested in wedding minutiae, had ended up lovingly, assertively, and predictably inserting his opinion into everything from the flower arrangements to the canapes that would be served at the South Shore Cultural Center in another hour or so. We picked our wedding song, which Santita would sing with her stunning voice, accompanied by a pianist. It was a Stevie Wonder tune called you and I, we can conquer the world. I'd first heard it as a kid in third or fourth grade when Southside gave me the Talking Book album as a gift, my first record album, utterly precious to me. I kept it at his house and was allowed to play it any time I came to visit. He taught me how to care for the vinyl, how to wipe the record's grooves clean of dust, 
how to lift the needle from the turntable and set it down delicately in the right spot. Usually he'd left me alone with the music, making himself scarce so I could learn in privacy everything that album had to teach, mostly by belting out the lyrics again and again with my little girl lungs. Well, in my mind, we can conquer the world. In love, you and I, you and I, you and I. I was nine years old at the time. I knew nothing about love and commitment or conquering the world. All I could do was conjure for myself shimmery ideas about what love might be like and who might come along someday to make me feel that strong. Would it be Michael Jackson? Jose Cardinal from the Cubs? Someone like my dad? I couldn't even begin to imagine him. Really, the person who'd become the you to my eye. But now here we were. Trinity had a dynamic and soulful reputation. Barack had first started going there during his days as an organizer. And more recently, the two of us had formally become members, following the lead of many of our young professional African-American friends in town. The church's pastor, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, was known as a sensational preacher with a passion for social justice and was now officiating at our wedding. He welcomed our friends and family and then held up our wedding bands for all to see. He spoke eloquently of what it meant to form a union and have it witnessed by a caring community. These people who collectively knew every dimension of Barack and every dimension of me. I felt it then, the power of what we were doing, the significance of the ritual, as we stood there with our future still unwritten, with every unknown still utterly unknown, just gripping each other's hands as we said our vows. Whatever was out there, we'd step into it together. I'd poured myself into planning this day. The elegance of the entire affair had somehow mattered to me, but I understood now that what really mattered, what I'd remember forever, was the grip. It settled me like nothing else ever had. I had faith in this union, faith in this man. To declare it was the easiest thing in the world. Looking at Barack's face, I knew for sure that he felt the same. Neither one of us cried that day. Nobody's voice quavered. If anything, we were a little giddy. From here, we'd gather up all several hundred of our witnesses and roll on over to the reception. We'd eat and drink and dance until we exhausted ourselves with our joy. Our honeymoon was meant to be restful, a low-key road trip in Northern California involving wine, sleep, mud baths, and good food. The day after the wedding, we flew to San Francisco, spent several days in Napa, and then drove down Highway 1 to Big Sur to read books, stare at the blue bowl of ocean, and clear our minds. It was glorious, despite the fact that Barack's head cold managed to return in full force, and also despite the mud baths, 
which we deem to be unsoothing and kind of icky. After a busy year, we were more than ready to kick back. Barack had originally planned to spend the months leading up to our wedding finishing his book and working at his new law firm, but he ended up putting most of it on an abrupt hold. Sometime early in 1992, he'd been approached by the leaders of a national nonpartisan organization called Project Vote, which spearheaded efforts to register new voters in states where minority turnout was traditionally low. They asked if Barack would run the process in Illinois, opening a field office in Chicago to enroll black voters ahead of the November elections. It was estimated that about 400,000 African Americans in the state were eligible to vote but still unregistered, the majority in and around Chicago. The pay was abysmal, but the job appealed to Barack's core beliefs. In 1983, a similar voter registration drive in Chicago had helped propel Harold Washington into office. In 1992, the stakes again felt high. Another African American candidate, Carol Mosley Braun, had surprised everyone by narrowly winning the Democratic nomination for the U.S. Senate race and was locked in what would become a tight race in the general election. Bill Clinton, meanwhile, would be running against George H.W. Bush for president. It was no time for minority voters to be sitting out. To say that Barack threw himself into the job would be an understatement. The goal of Project Vote was to sign up new Illinois voters at a staggering pace of 10,000 per week. The work was similar to what he'd done as a grassroots organizer. Over the course of the spring and summer, he and his staff had tromped through plenty of church basements, gone house to house to talk with unregistered voters. He networked regularly with community leaders and made his pitch countless times to wealthy donors, helping to fund the production of radio ads and informational brochures that could be handed out in black neighborhoods and public housing projects. The organization's message was unwavering and clear, and a straightforward reflection of what I knew Barack felt in his heart. There was power in voting. If you wanted change, you couldn't stay home on election day. In the evenings, Barack came home to our place on Euclid Avenue and often flopped on the couch, reeking of the cigarettes he still smoked when he was out of my sight. He appeared tired, but never depleted. He kept careful track of the registration tallies. They were averaging an impressive 7,000 a week in midsummer, but were still falling short of the goal. He strategized about how to get the message across, how to wrangle more volunteers and find pockets of people who remain unfound. He seemed to view the challenges as a Rubik's Cube like puzzle that could be solved if only he could swivel the right blocks in the right order. The hardest people to reach, he told me, were the younger folks, the 18 to 30 year olds who seemed to have no faith in government at all. I, meanwhile, was fully steeped in government. I spent a year now working with Valerie in the mayor's office. Acting as a liaison to several of the city's departments, 
including health and human services. The job was broad and people-oriented enough to be energizing and almost always interesting. Whereas I'd once spent my days writing briefs in a quiet, plush-carpeted office with a view of the lake, I now worked in a windowless room on one of the top floors of City Hall, with citizens streaming noisily through the building every hour of the day. Government issues, I was learning, were elaborate and unending. I shuttled between meetings with various department heads, worked with the staffs of city commissioners, and was dispatched sometimes to different neighborhoods around Chicago to follow up on personal complaints received by the mayor. I went on missions to inspect fallen trees that needed removing, talked to neighborhood pastors who were upset about traffic or garbage collection, and often represented the mayor's office at community functions. I once had to break up a shoving match at a senior citizen's picnic on the north side. None of this was what a corporate lawyer did, and for this reason, I found it compelling. I was experiencing Chicago in a way I never had before. I was learning something else of value, too, spending much of my time in the presence of Susan Schur and Valerie Jarrett to women who I was seeing managed to be both tremendously confident and tremendously human at the same time. Susan ran meetings with a steely and unflappable grace. Valerie thought nothing of speaking her mind in a room full of opinionated men, often managing to deftly bring people around to whatever side she was arguing. She was like a fast-moving comet someone who was clearly going places. Not long before my wedding, she'd been promoted to the role of commissioner in charge of planning and economic development for the city and had offered me a job as an assistant commissioner. I was going to begin work as soon as we got back from our honeymoon. I saw more of Valerie than I did Susan, but I took careful note of everything each of them did, similarly to how I'd observed Cerny, my college mentor, These were women who knew their own voices and were unafraid to use them. They could be humorous and humble when the moment called for it, but they were unfazed by blowhards and didn't second-guess the power in their own points of view. Also, importantly, they were working moms. I watched them closely in this regard as well, knowing that I wanted someday to be one myself. Valerie never hesitated to step out of a big meeting when a call came in from her daughter's school. Susan likewise dashed out in the middle of the day if one of her sons spiked a fever or was performing in a preschool music show. They were unapologetic about prioritizing the needs of their children, even if it meant occasionally disrupting the flow at work, and didn't try to compartmentalize work and home the way I'd notice male partners at Sidley seemed to do. I'm not sure compartmentalization was even a choice for Valerie and Susan, given that they were juggling the expectations unique to mothers and were also both divorced, which came with its own emotional and financial challenges. They weren't striving for perfection, but managed somehow to be always excellent, 
the two of them bound in a deep and mutually helpful friendship, which also made a real impression on me. They dropped any masquerade and were just wonderfully, powerfully, and instructively themselves. Barack and I came back from our honeymoon in Northern California to both good and bad news. The good news came in the form of the November election, which brought what felt like a tide of encouraging change. Bill Clinton won overwhelmingly in Illinois and across the country, moving President Bush out of office after only one term. Carol Mosley Braun also won decisively, becoming the first African-American woman ever to hold a Senate seat. What was even more exciting to Barack was that the election day turnout had been nothing short of epic. Project Vote had directly registered 110,000 new voters, and its broader get-out-the-vote campaign had likely boosted overall turnout as well. For the first time in a decade, over half a million black voters in Chicago went to the polls, proving that they had the collective power to shape political outcomes. This sent a clear message to lawmakers and future politicians and reestablished a feeling that seemed to have been lost when Harold Washington died. The African-American vote mattered. It would be costly politically for anyone to ignore or discount black people's needs and concerns. Inside of this, too, was a second message to the black community itself, a reminder that progress was possible, that our worth was measurable. All this was heartening for Barack. As tiring as it was, he'd loved his job for what it taught him about Chicago's complex political system and for proving that his organizing instincts could work on a larger scale. He'd collaborated with grassroots leaders, everyday citizens and elected officials, and almost miraculously, it had yielded results. Several media outlets noted the impressive impact of Project Vote. A writer for Chicago Magazine described Barack as a tall, affable workaholic, suggesting that he should someday run for office, an idea that he simply shrugged off. And here was the bad news. That tall, affable workaholic I'd just married had also blown his book deadline, having been so caught up in registering voters that he managed to turn in only a partial manuscript. We got home from California to learn that the publisher had canceled his contract, sending word through his literary agent that Barack was now on the hook to pay back his $40,000 advance. If he panicked, he didn't do it in front of me. I was busy enough shifting into my new role at City Hall, which entailed going to more zoning board meetings and fewer senior citizens' picnics than my previous job had. Though I was no longer working corporate lawyer hours, the city's everyday fracas left me spent in the evenings, less interested in processing any stresses at home and more ready to pour a glass of wine, switch my brain off, and watch TV on the couch. If I'd learned anything from Barack's obsessive involvement with Project Vote anyway, it was that it wasn't helpful for me to worry about his worries, 
in part because I seem to find them more overwhelming than he ever did. Chaos agitated me, but it seemed to invigorate Barack. He was like a circus performer who liked to set plates spinning. If things got too calm, he took it as a sign that there was more to do. He was a serial overcommitter, I was coming to understand, taking on new projects without much regard for limits of time and energy. He'd said yes, for example, to serving on the boards of a couple of nonprofits while also saying yes to a part time teaching job at the University of Chicago for the coming spring semester, while also planning to work full time at the law firm. And then there was the book. Barack's agent felt sure she could resell the idea to a different publisher, though he'd have to get a draft finished soon. With his teaching gig yet to begin, and having obtained the blessing of the law firm that had waited a year already for him to start full time, he came up with a solution that seemed to suit him perfectly. He'd write the book in isolation, removing his everyday distractions. By renting a little cabin somewhere and drilling down hard on the work. It was the equivalent of pulling a frantic all nighter to get a paper done in college. Only Barack was estimating it would take him roughly a couple of months to get the book finished. He relayed all of this to me one night at home, about six weeks after our wedding, before delicately dropping a final bit of information. His mother had found him the perfect cabin. In fact, she'd already rented it for him. It was cheap, quiet, and on the beach. In Sanor, which was on the Indonesian island of Bali, some 9,000 miles away from me. It sounds a little like a bad joke, doesn't it? What happens when a solitude loving individualist marries an outgoing family woman who does not love solitude one bit? The answer, I'm guessing, is probably the best and most sustaining answer to nearly every question arising inside a marriage, no matter who you are or what the issue is. You find ways to adapt. If you're in it forever, There's really no choice. Which is to say that at the start of 1993, Barack flew to Bali and spent about five weeks living alone with his thoughts while working on a draft of his book, Dreams from My Father, filling yellow legal pads with his fastidious handwriting, distilling his ideas during languid daily walks amid the coconut palms and lapping tide. I, meanwhile, stayed home on Euclid Avenue, living upstairs from my mother as another leaden Chicago winter descended, shellacking the trees and sidewalks with ice. I kept myself busy, seeing friends and hitting workout classes in the evenings. In my regular interactions at work or around town, I'd find myself casually uttering the strange new term, my husband. My husband and I are hoping to buy a home. My husband is a writer finishing a book. It was foreign and delightful, and conjured memories of a man who simply wasn't there. I missed Barack terribly, but I rationalized our situation as I could, 
understanding that even if we were newlyweds, this interlude was probably for the best. He had taken the chaos of his unfinished book and shipped himself out to do battle with it. Possibly this was out of kindness to me, a bid to keep the chaos out of my view. I'd married an outside-the-box thinker, I had to remind myself. He was handling his business in what struck him as the most sensible and efficient manner, even if outwardly it appeared to be a beach vacation, a honeymoon with himself, I couldn't help but think in my lonelier moments, to follow his honeymoon with me. You and I, you and I, you and I. We were learning to adapt, to knit ourselves into a solid and forever form of us. Even if we were the same two people we'd always been, the same couple we'd been for years, we now had new labels, a second set of identities to wrangle. He was my husband, I was his wife. We'd stood up at church and said it out loud, to each other and to the world. It did feel as if we owed each other new things. For many women, including myself, wife can feel like a loaded word. It carries a history. If you grew up in the 1960s and 1970s as I did, Wives seemed to be a genus of white women who lived inside television sitcoms, cheery, quaffed, corseted. They stayed at home, fussed over the children, and had dinner ready on the stove. They sometimes got into the sherry or flirted with a vacuum cleaner salesman, but the excitement seemed to end there. The irony, of course, was that I used to watch those shows in our living room on Euclid Avenue while my own stay-at-home mom fixed dinner without complaint and my own clean-cut dad recovered from a day at work. My parents' arrangement was as traditional as anything we saw on TV. Barack sometimes jokes, in fact, that my upbringing was like a black version of Leave it to Beaver with the South Shore Robinsons as steady and fresh-faced as the Cleaver family of Mayfield, USA, though, of course, we were a poor version of the Cleavers, with my dad's Blue City Workers uniform subbing for Mr. Cleaver's suit. Barack makes these comparisons with a touch of envy, because his own childhood was so different, but also as a way to push back on the entrenched stereotype that African Americans primarily live in broken homes, that our families are somehow incapable of living out the same stable middle-class dream as our white neighbors. Personally, as a kid, I preferred the Mary Tyler Moore show, which I absorbed with fascination. Mary had a job, a snappy wardrobe, and really great hair. She was independent and funny, and unlike those of the other ladies on TV, her problems were interesting. She had conversations that weren't about children or homemaking. She didn't let Lou Grant boss her around, and she wasn't fixated on finding a husband. She was youthful and at the same time grown up. In the pre-pre-pre-internet landscape, when the world came packaged almost exclusively through three channels of network TV, this stuff mattered.
If you were a girl with a brain and a dawning sense that you wanted to grow into something more than a wife, Mary Tyler Moore was your goddess. And here I was now, 29 years old, sitting in the very same apartment where I'd watched all that TV and consumed all those meals, dished up by the patient and selfless Marion Robinson. I had so much. An education, a healthy sense of self, a deep arsenal of ambition. And I was wise enough to credit my mother in particular with instilling it in me. She taught me how to read before I started kindergarten, helping me sound out words as I sat curled like a kitten in her lap, studying a library copy of Dick and Jane. She'd cooked for us with care, putting broccoli and Brussels sprouts on our plates and requiring that we eat them. She'd hand-sewn my prom dress for God's sake. The point was, she'd given diligently. And she'd given everything. She let our family define her. I was old enough now to realize that all the hours she gave to me and Craig were hours she didn't spend on herself. My considerable blessings in life were now causing a kind of psychic whiplash. I'd been raised to be confident and see no limits to believe I could go after and get absolutely anything I wanted. And I wanted everything, because as Suzanne would say, why not? I wanted to live with the hat-tossing, independent career woman zest of Mary Tyler Moore. And at the same time, I gravitated toward the stabilizing, self-sacrificing, seemingly bland normalcy of being a wife and mother. I wanted to have a work life and a home life, but with some promise that one would never fully squelch the other. I hoped to be exactly like my own mother, and at the same time, nothing like her at all. It was an odd and confounding thing to ponder. Could I have everything? Would I have everything? I had no idea. Barack, meanwhile, came home from Bali looking tan and carrying a satchel stuffed with legal pads, having converted his isolation into a literary victory. The book was basically finished. Within a matter of months, his agent had resold it to a new publisher, paying off his debt and securing a plan for publication. More important to me was the fact that within a matter of hours, we'd return to the easy rhythm of our newlywed life. Barack was here, done with his solitude, landed back in my world. My husband. He was smiling at the jokes I made, wanting to hear about my day, kissing me to sleep at night. As the months went by, we cooked, worked, laughed, and planned. Later that spring, we had our finances in order enough to buy a condo, moving out of 7436 South Euclid Avenue and into a pretty railroad-style apartment in Hyde Park with hardwood floors and a tiled fireplace, a new launch pad for our life. With Barack's encouragement, I took another risk and switched jobs again this time saying goodbye to Valerie and Susan at City Hall 
in order to finally explore the kind of nonprofit work that had always intrigued me, finding a leadership role that would give me a chance to grow. There was still plenty I hadn't figured out about my life. The riddle of how to be both a Mary and a Marian remained unsolved. But for now, all those deeper questions drifted out to the margins of my mind, where they'd sit dormant and unattended for the time being. Any worries could wait, I figured, because we were an us now, and we were happy. And happy seemed like a starting place for everything. 13. My new job made me nervous. I'd been hired to be the executive director for the brand new Chicago chapter of an organization called Public Allies, which itself was basically brand new. It was something like a startup inside a startup and in a field in which I had no professional experience to speak of. Public Allies had been founded only a year earlier in Washington, D.C., and was the brainchild of Vanessa Kirsch and Katrina Brown, who were both just out of college and interested in helping more people find their way into careers in public service and nonprofit work. Barack had met the two of them at a conference and become a member of their board, eventually suggesting they get in touch with me regarding the job. The model was similar to what was being used at Teach for America, which itself was relatively new at the time. Public allies recruited talented young people, gave them intense training and committed mentorship, and placed them in paid 10-month apprenticeship positions inside community organizations and public agencies, the hope being that they'd flourish and contribute in meaningful ways. The broader aim was that these opportunities would give the recruits, allies we called them, both the experience and the drive to continue working in the nonprofit or public sector for years to come, thereby helping to build a new generation of community leaders. For me, the idea resonated in a big way. I still remembered how during my senior year at Princeton, So many of us had marched into MCAT and LSAT exams or suited up to interview for corporate training programs without once, at least in my case, considering or maybe even realizing that a wealth of more civic-minded job options existed. Public Allies was meant as a corrective to this, a means of widening the horizon for young people thinking about careers. But what I especially liked was that its founders were focused less on parachuting Ivy Leaguers into urban communities and more on finding and cultivating talent that was already there. You didn't need a college degree to become an ally. You needed only a high school diploma or GED to be older than 17 and younger than 30 and to have shown some leadership capability, even if thus far in life it had gone largely untapped. Public Allies was all about promise, finding it, nurturing it, and putting it to use. It was a mandate to seek out young people whose best qualities might otherwise be overlooked and to give them a chance to do something meaningful. To me, the job felt almost like destiny. For every moment I'd spent 
looking wistfully at the south side from my 47th floor window at Sidley. Here was an invitation, finally, to use what I knew. I had a sense of how much latent promise sat undiscovered in neighborhoods like my own, and I was pretty sure I'd know how to find it. As I contemplated the new job, my mind often traveled back to childhood, and in particular, the month or so I'd spent in the pencil-flying pandemonium of that second-grade class at Bryn Mawr Elementary, before my mom had the wherewithal to have me plucked out. In the moment, I'd felt nothing but relieved by my own good fortune, but as my luck in life seemed only to snowball from there, I thought more about the 20 or so kids who'd been marooned in that classroom, stuck with an uncaring and unmotivated teacher. I knew I was no smarter than any of them. I just had the advantage of an advocate. I thought about this more often now that I was an adult, especially when people applauded me for my achievements, as if there weren't a strange and cruel randomness to it all. Through no fault of their own, those second graders had lost a year of learning. I'd seen enough at this point to understand how quickly even small deficits can snowball too. Back in Washington, D.C., the Public Allies founders had mustered a fledgling class of 15 allies who were working in various organizations around the city. They'd also raised enough money to launch a new chapter in Chicago, becoming one of the first organizations to receive federal funding through the AmeriCorps Service Program created under President Clinton, which is where I came into the picture, thrilled and anxious in equal parts. Negotiating the terms of the job, though, I'd had what maybe should have been an obvious revelation about nonprofit work. It doesn't pay. I was initially offered a salary so small, so far below what I was making working for the city of Chicago, which was already half of what I'd been earning as a lawyer, that I literally couldn't afford to say yes, which led to a second revelation about certain nonprofits especially young person-driven startups like Public Allies and many of the big-hearted, tirelessly passionate people who work in them. Unlike me, it seemed they could actually afford to be there, their virtue discreetly underwritten by privilege, whether it was that they didn't have student loans to pay off or perhaps had an inheritance to someday look forward to and thus weren't worried about saving for the future. It became clear that if I wanted to join the tribe, I'd have to negotiate my way in, asking for exactly what I needed in terms of a salary, which was significantly more than public allies had expected to pay. This was simply my reality. I couldn't be shy or embarrassed about my needs. I still had roughly $600 of student debt to pay off each month on top of my regular expenses. And I was married to a man with his own load of law school loans to cover. The organization's leaders were almost disbelieving when I informed them how much I'd borrowed in order to get through school and what that translated to in terms of monthly debt but they gamely went out and secured new funding that enabled me to come on board. 
And with that, I was off and running, eager to make good on the opportunity I'd been handed. This was my first chance ever, really, to build something basically from the ground up. Success or failure would depend almost entirely on my efforts, not those of my boss or anyone else. I spent the spring of 1993 working furiously to set up an office and hire a small staff so that we could have a class of allies in place by the fall. We'd found cheap office space in a building on Michigan Avenue, and we'd managed to get a load of donated secondhand chairs and tables from a corporate consulting firm that was redecorating its offices. Meanwhile, I had leveraged more or less every connection Barack and I had ever made in Chicago, seeking donors and people who could help us secure longer-term foundation support, not to mention anyone in the public service field who'd be willing to host an ally in their organization for the coming year. Valerie Jarrett helped me arrange placements in the mayor's office and the city health department, where allies would work on a neighborhood-based childhood immunization project. Barack activated his network of community organizers to connect us with legal aid, advocacy, and teaching opportunities. Various Sidley partners wrote checks and helped introduce me to key donors. The most exciting part for me was finding the allies themselves. With help from the national organization, we advertised for applicants on college campuses across the country while also looking for talent closer to home. My team and I visited community colleges and some of the big urban high schools around Chicago. We knocked on doors in the Cabrini Green Housing Project, went to community meetings and canvassed programs that worked with single mothers. We quizzed everyone we met, from pastors to professors to the manager of the neighborhood McDonald's, asking them to identify the most interesting young people they knew. Who were the leaders? Who was ready for something bigger than what he or she had? These were the people we wanted to encourage to apply, urging them to forget for a minute whatever obstacles normally made such things impossible, promising that as an organization, we'd do what we could whether it was supplying a bus pass or a stipend for childcare to help cover their needs. By fall, we had a cohort of 27 allies working all over Chicago, holding internships everywhere from City Hall to a Southside Community Assistance Agency to Latino Youth, an alternative high school in Pilsen. The allies together were an eclectic, spirited group loaded with idealism and aspirations, and representing a broad swath of backgrounds. Among them, we had a former gang member, a Latina woman who'd grown up in the southwest part of Chicago and had gone to Harvard, another woman in her early 20s who lived in the Robert Taylor homes and was raising a child while also trying to save money for college, and a 26-year-old from Grand Boulevard, who'd left high school but had kept up his education with library books and later gone back to earn his diploma. Each Friday, the whole group of allies gathered at one of our host agency's offices, taking a full day to debrief, connect, 
and go through a series of professional development workshops. I loved these days more than anything. I loved how the room got noisy as the allies piled in, dumping their backpacks in the corner and peeling off layers of winter wear as they settled into a circle. I loved helping them sort through their issues, whether it was mastering Excel, figuring out how to dress for an office job, or finding the courage to voice their ideas in a room full of better educated, more confident people. I sometimes had to give an ally less than pleasant feedback. If I'd heard reports of allies being late to work or not taking their duties seriously, I was stern in letting them know that we expected better. When allies grew frustrated with poorly organized community meetings or problematic clients at their agencies, I counseled them to keep perspective, reminding them of their own relative good fortune. Above all, though, we celebrated each new bit of learning or progress, and there was lots of it. Not all the allies would go on to work in the nonprofit or public sectors, and not everyone would manage to overcome the hurdles of coming from a less privileged background. But I've been amazed over time to see how many of our recruits did, in fact, succeed and commit themselves long term to serving a larger public good. Some became public ally staff themselves. Some are now even leaders in government agencies and inside national nonprofit organizations. 25 years after its inception, Public Allies is still going strong, with chapters in Chicago and two dozen other cities and thousands of alumni around the country. To know that I played some small part in that, helping to create something that's endured. Is one of the most gratifying feelings I've had in my professional life. I tended to public allies with the half exhausted pride of a new parent. I went to sleep each night thinking about what still needed to be done and opened my eyes every morning with my mental checklist for the day, the week, and the month ahead already made. After graduating our first class of 27 allies in the spring, We welcomed a new set of 40 in the fall and continued to grow from there. In hindsight, I think of it as the best job I ever had for how wonderfully on the edge I felt while I was doing it, and for how even a small victory, whether it was finding a good placement for a native Spanish speaker or sorting through someone's fears about working in an unfamiliar neighborhood, had to be thoroughly earned. For the first time in my life, really, I felt I was doing something immediately meaningful, directly impacting the lives of others while also staying connected to both my city and my culture. It gave me a better understanding, too, of how Barack had felt when he'd worked as an organizer or on Project Vote, caught up in the all consuming primacy of an uphill battle. The only kind of battle Barack loved, the kind he would always love, knowing how it can drain you while at the same time giving you everything you'll ever need. While I was focused on public allies, Barack had settled into what was, by his standard anyway, 
a period of relative tameness and predictability. He was teaching a class on racism in the law at the University of Chicago Law School and working by day at his law firm, mostly on cases involving voting rights and employment discrimination. He still sometimes ran community organizing workshops as well, leading a group of Friday sessions with my cohort at Public Allies. Outwardly, it seemed like a perfect existence for an intellectual, civic-minded guy in his 30s who'd flatly turned down any number of more lucrative and prestigious options in favor of his principles. He'd done it as far as I was concerned. He'd found a noble balance. He was a lawyer, a teacher, and also an organizer, and he was soon to be a published author, too. After returning from Bali, Barack had spent more than a year writing a second draft of his book during the hours he wasn't at one of his jobs. He worked late at night in a small room we'd converted to a study at the rear of our apartment, a crowded, book-strewn bunker I refer to lovingly as the hole. I'd sometimes go in, stepping over piles of paper to sit on the ottoman in front of his chair while he worked, trying to lasso him with a joke and a smile, to tease him back from whatever far-off fields he'd been galloping through. He was good-humored about my intrusions, but only if I didn't stay too long. Barack, I've come to understand, is the sort of person who needs a hole, a closed-off little warren where he can read and write undisturbed. It's like a hatch that opens directly onto the spacious skies of his brain. Time spent there seems to fuel him. In deference to this, we've managed to create some version of a hold inside every home we've ever lived in. Any quiet corner or alcove will do. To this day, when we arrive at a rental house in Hawaii or on Martha's Vineyard, Brock goes off looking for an empty room that can serve as the vacation hole. There, he can flip between the six or seven books he's reading simultaneously and toss his newspapers on the floor. For him, the hole is a kind of sacred high place where insights are birthed and clarity comes to visit. For me, it's an off-putting and disorderly mess. One requirement has always been that the hole, wherever it is, have a door so that I can shut it, for obvious reasons. Dreams from My Father was published finally in the summer of 1995. It got good reviews, yet sold only modestly, but that was okay. The important thing was that Barack had managed to process his life story, snapping together the disparate pieces of his Afro-Kansan-Indonesian-Hawaiian-Chicagoan identity. Writing himself into sort of a wholeness this way. I was proud of him. Through the narrative, he'd managed a kind of literary peace with his phantom father. The work to get there had been one sided, of course, with Barack alone trying to fill every gap and understand every mystery the senior Obama had ever created. But this was also in keeping with how he'd always done it anyway. Since the time he was a boy, I realized, he'd tried to carry everything all on his own. 
With the book finished, there was new space in his life, and also in keeping with who he'd always been, Barack felt compelled to fill it immediately. On the personal side, he'd been coping with difficult news. His mother, Anne, had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer and had moved from Jakarta back to Honolulu for treatment. As far as we knew, she was getting good medical care and the chemotherapy seemed to be working. Both Maya and Toot were helping look after her in Hawaii and Barack checked in often. But her diagnosis had come late, after the cancer had advanced, and it was difficult to know what would happen. I knew this weighed heavily on Barack's mind. In Chicago, meanwhile, the political chatter was starting to kick up again. Mayor Daley had been elected to a third term in the spring of 1995, and now everyone was gearing up for the 1996 election, in which Illinois would select a new U.S. senator and President Clinton would make his bid for a second term. More scandalously, we had a sitting U.S. congressman under investigation for sex crimes, leaving an opening for a new Democratic contender in the state's second district, which included much of Chicago's South Side. A popular state senator named Alice Palmer, who represented Hyde Park and South Shore, and whom Barack had gotten to know while working on Project Vote, had begun saying privately that she intended to run for it which in turn would leave her state Senate seat vacant, opening up the possibility that Barack could run for it. Was he interested? Would he run? I couldn't have known it then, but these questions would come to dominate the next decade of our lives, pulsing like a drumbeat behind almost everything we did. Would he? Could he? Was he? Should he? But ahead of these always came another question posed by Barack himself, preliminary and supposedly preemptive when it came to running for office of any sort. The first time he asked it was on the day he'd let me know about Alice Palmer and her open seat, and this notion he had that maybe he could be not just a lawyer, professor, organizer, author, but all those things plus a state legislator as well. What do you think about it, Mish? For me, the answer was never actually all that tough to come up with. I didn't think it was a great idea for Barack to run for office. My specific reasoning might have varied slightly each time the question came back around, but my larger stance would hold, like a sequoia rooted in the ground though clearly you can see that it stopped absolutely nothing. In the case of the Illinois Senate in 1996, my reasoning went like this. I didn't much appreciate politicians and therefore didn't relish the idea of my husband becoming one. Most of what I knew about state politics came from what I read in the newspaper, and none of it seemed especially good or productive. My friendship with Santita Jackson had given me a sense that politicians were often required to be away from home. In general, I thought of lawmakers almost like armored tortoises, leather-skinned, slow-moving, 
thick with self-interest. Barack was too earnest, too full of valiant plans, in my opinion, to abide by the hard scrabble, drag-it-out rancor that went on inside the domed capital downstate in Springfield. In my heart, I just believed there were better ways for a good person to have an impact. Quite honestly, I thought he'd get eaten alive. Already, however, there was a counter-argument brewing in the recesses of my own conscience. If Barack believed he could do something in politics, who was I to get in his way? Who was I to stomp on the idea before he'd even tried it? After all, he was the lone person who had waved me forward when I wanted to leave my law career, who'd had his concerns about my going to City Hall, but supported me nonetheless, and who right now was working multiple jobs, partly to compensate for the pay cut I'd taken to become a full-time do-gooder at Public Allies. In our six years together, he hadn't once doubted my instincts or my capabilities. The refrain had always been the same. Don't worry, you can do this. We'll figure it out. And so I gave my approval to his first run for office, larding it with a bit of wifely caution. I think you'll be frustrated, I warned. If you end up getting elected, you're going to go down there and nothing will get accomplished, no matter how hard you try. It'll drive you crazy. Maybe, Barack said with a bemused shrug. But maybe I can do some good. Who knows? That's right, I said, shrugging back. It wasn't my job to interfere with his optimism. Who knows? This won't be news to anyone. But my husband did become a politician. He was a good person who wanted to have an impact in the world, and despite my skepticism, he decided this was the best way to go about it. Such is the nature of his faith. Barack was elected to the Illinois Senate in November 1996 and sworn in two months later at the start of the following year. To my surprise... I enjoyed watching the campaign unfold. I'd helped collect signatures to put him on the ballot, knocking on doors in my old neighborhood on Saturdays, listening to what residents had to say about the state and its government, all the things they thought needed fixing. For me, it was reminiscent of the weekends I'd spend as a child trailing my dad as he climbed up all those porch steps, going about his duties as a precinct captain. Beyond this, I wasn't much needed, and that suited me perfectly. I could treat campaigning like a hobby, picking it up when it was convenient, having some fun with it, and then getting back to my own work. Barack's mother had passed away in Honolulu shortly after he announced his candidacy. Her decline had been so swift that he hadn't made it there to say goodbye. This crushed him. It was Anne Dunham who'd introduced him to the richness of literature and the power of a well-reasoned argument. Without her, he wouldn't have felt the monsoon downpours in Jakarta or seen the water temples of Bali. He might never have learned to appreciate how easy and thrilling it was to jump from one continent to another, 
or how to embrace the unfamiliar. She was an explorer, an intrepid follower of her own heart. I saw her spirit in Barack in big and small ways. The pain of losing her sat lodged like a blade in both of us, right alongside the blade that had been embedded when we'd lost my dad. Now that it was winter and the legislature was in session, we were separated for a good part of every week. Barack drove four hours to Springfield on Monday nights and checked into a cheap hotel where a lot of the other legislators stayed, usually returning late on Thursday. He had a small office in the State House and a part-time staffer in Chicago. He'd scaled back his work at the law firm, but as a way of keeping pace with our debts, he'd added more courses to his teaching load at the law school, scheduling classes for days he wasn't in Springfield and teaching more when the Senate wasn't in session. We spoke on the phone every night he was downstate, comparing notes and swapping tales about our respective days. On Fridays back in Chicago, we had a standing date night, usually meeting downtown at a restaurant called Zinfandel after we'd both finished up work. I remember these nights with a deep fondness now for the low, warm lights of the restaurant and how it had become predictable that, with my devotion to punctuality, I'd always be the first to show up. I'd wait for Barack, and because it was the end of the work week, and because I was accustomed to it at this point, it didn't bother me that he was late. I knew he'd get there eventually, and that my heart would leap as it always did, seeing him walk through the door and hand his winter coat off to the hostess, before threading his way through the tables, grinning when his eyes finally landed on mine. He'd kiss me and then take off his suit jacket, draping it on the back of his chair before sitting down. My husband. The routine settled me. We ordered the same thing pretty much every Friday, pot roast, Brussels sprouts, and mashed potatoes. And when it came, we ate every bite. This was a golden time for us, for the balance of our marriage, him with his purpose and me with mine. During a single early week of Senate business in Springfield, Barack had introduced 17 new bills, possibly a record, and at the very least a measure of his eagerness to get something done. Some would ultimately pass, but most would get quickly picked off in the Republican-controlled chamber downed by partisanship and a cynicism passed off as practicality among his new colleagues. I saw in those early months how, just as I'd predicted, politics would be a fight, and the fight would be wearying, involving standoffs and betrayals, dirty deal-makers and compromises that sometimes felt painful. But I saw, too, that Barack's own forecast had been correct as well. He was strangely suited to the tussle of lawmaking, calm inside the maelstrom, accustomed to being an outsider, taking defeats in his easy Hawaiian stride. He stayed hopeful, insistently so, convinced that some part of his vision would someday, somehow, manage to prevail. He was getting battered already, 
but it wasn't bothering him. It did seem he was built for this. He'd get dinged up and stay shiny like an old copper pot. I too was in the midst of a transition. I'd taken a new job surprising myself somewhat by deciding to leave Public Allies, the organization I'd put together and grown with such care. For three years, I'd given myself to it with zeal, taking responsibility for the largest and the smallest of operational tasks, right down to restocking paper in the photocopier. With Public Allies thriving and its longevity all but assured, thanks to multi-year federal grants and foundation support, I felt that I could now step away in good faith. And it just so happened that in the fall of 1996, a new opportunity had cropped up almost out of nowhere. Art Sussman, the lawyer at the University of Chicago who'd met with me a few years earlier, called to let me know about a position that had just been created there. The school was looking for an associate dean to focus on community relations, committing at long last to do a better job of integrating with the city and most especially the South Side neighborhood that surrounded it, including through the creation of a community service program to connect students to volunteer opportunities in the neighborhood. Like the position at Public Allies, this new job spoke to a reality I'd lived personally. As I told Art years earlier, the University of Chicago had always felt less attainable and less interested in me than the fancy East Coast schools I'd ultimately attended, a place with its back turned to the neighborhood. The chance to try to lower those walls, to get more students involved with the city, and more city residents with the university, was one I found inspiring. All inspiration aside, there were underlying reasons for making the transition. The university offered the kind of institutional stability that a still newish nonprofit could not. My pay was better, my hours would be more reasonable, and there were other people designated to keep paper in the copier and fix the laser printer when it broke. I was 32 years old now and starting to think more about what kind of load I wanted to carry. On our date nights at Zinfandel, Barack and I often continued a conversation we'd been having in one form or another for years about impact, about how and where each one of us could make a difference how best to apportion our time and energy. For me, some of the old questions about who I was and what I wanted to be in life were starting to drift in again, fixing themselves at the forefront of my mind. I'd taken the new job in part to create a little more room in our life, and also because the health care benefits were better than anything I'd ever had. And this would end up being important as Barack and I sat holding hands across the table in the candle glow of another Friday night in Zinfandel with the pot roast polished off and dessert on its way, there was one big wrinkle in our happiness. We were trying to get pregnant, and it wasn't going well. It turns out that even two committed go-getters with a deep love and a robust work ethic 
can't will themselves into being pregnant. Fertility is not something you conquer. Rather maddeningly, there's no straight line between effort and reward. For me and Barack, this was as surprising as it was disappointing. No matter how hard we tried, we couldn't seem to come up with a pregnancy. For a while, I told myself it was simply an issue of access, the result of Barack's comings and goings from Springfield. Our attempts at procreation took place not in service of important monthly hormonal markers, but rather in concert with the Illinois legislative schedule. This, I figured, was one thing we could try to fix. But our adjustments didn't work, even with Barack flooring it up the interstate after a late vote so that he could hit my ovulation window, and even after the Senate went into its summer recess and he was home and available full-time. After many years of taking careful precautions to avoid pregnancy, I was now singularly dedicated to the opposite endeavor. I treated it like a mission. We had one pregnancy test come back positive, which caused us both to forget every worry and swoon with joy. But a couple of weeks later, I had a miscarriage, which left me physically uncomfortable and cratered any optimism we'd felt. Seeing women and their children walking happily along a street, I'd feel a pang of longing followed by a bruising wallop of inadequacy. The only comfort was that Barack and I were living only about a block from Craig and his wife, who now had two beautiful children, Leslie and Avery. I found solace in dropping by to play and read stories with them. If I were to start a file on things nobody tells you about until you're right in the thick of them, I might begin with miscarriages. A miscarriage is lonely, painful, and demoralizing, almost on a cellular level. When you have one, you will likely mistake it for a personal failure, which it is not, or a tragedy which, regardless of how utterly devastating it feels in the moment, it also is not. What nobody tells you is that miscarriage happens all the time to more women than you'd ever guess, given the relative silence around it. I learned this only after I mentioned that I'd miscarried to a couple of friends who responded by heaping me with love and support and also their own miscarriage stories. It didn't take away the pain, but in unburying their own struggles, they steadied me during mine helping me see that what I'd been through was no more than a normal biological hiccup, a fertilized egg that, for what was probably a very good reason, had needed to bail out. One of these friends also steered me toward a fertility doctor whom she and her husband had used. Barack and I went for exams, and when we later sat down with the doctor, he told us there was no discernible issue with either of us. The mystery of why we weren't getting pregnant would remain just that. He suggested that I try taking Clomid, a drug meant to stimulate egg production, for a couple of months. When that didn't work, he recommended we move to in vitro fertilization. We were inordinately lucky that my university health insurance would cover most of the bill.
It felt like having a high-stakes lottery ticket, only with science involved. By the time the preliminary medical work was finished, rather unfortunately, the state legislature had returned to its false session, swallowing up my sweet, attentive husband and leaving me largely on my own to manipulate my reproductive system into peak efficiency. This would involve giving myself a regimen of daily shots over the course of several weeks. The plan was I'd administer first one drug to suppress my ovaries and then later a new drug to stimulate them, the idea being that they'd then produce a cascade of viable eggs. All the work and uncertainty involved made me anxious, but I wanted a baby. It was a need that had been there forever. As a girl, when I'd grown tired of kissing the vinyl skin of my baby dolls, I'd begged my mother to have another baby, a real one just for me. I promised I'd do all the work. When she wouldn't go along with the plan, I hunted through her underwear drawer, searching for her birth control pills, figuring that if I confiscated them, maybe it would yield some results. It didn't, obviously. But the point is... I'd been waiting for a long time for this. I wanted a family, and Barack wanted a family, too. And now here I was, alone in the bathroom of our apartment, trying in the name of all of that want to screw up the courage to plunge a syringe into my thigh. It was maybe then that I felt a first flicker of resentment involving politics and Barack's unshakable commitment to the work. Or maybe I was just feeling the acute burden of being female. Either way, he was gone and I was here, carrying the responsibility. I sensed already that the sacrifices would be more mine than his. In the weeks to come, he'd go about his regular business while I went in for daily ultrasounds to monitor my eggs. He wouldn't have his blood drawn. He wouldn't have to cancel any meetings to have a cervix inspection. He was doting and invested, my husband, doing what he could do. He read all the IVF literature and would talk to me all night about it. But his only actual duty was to show up at the doctor's office and provide some sperm. And then if he chose, he could go have a martini afterward. None of this was his fault. But it wasn't equal either. And for any woman who lives by the mantra that equality is important, this can be a little confusing. It was me who'd alter everything, putting my passions and career dreams on hold to fulfill this piece of our dream. I found myself in a small moment of reckoning. Did I want it? Yes, I wanted it so much. And with this, I hoisted the needle and sank it into my flesh. About eight weeks later, I heard a sound that erased all traces of resentment. A swishing, watery heartbeat picked up on ultrasound, emanating from the warm cave of my body. We were pregnant. It was for real. Suddenly, the responsibility and relative sacrifice meant something completely different, like a landscape taking on new colors. 
or all the furniture in a house being rearranged so that now everything appeared perfectly in place. I walked around with a secret inside of me. This was my privilege, the gift of being female. I felt bright with the promise of what I carried. I would feel this way right through, even as first trimester fatigue left me drained, as my job stayed busy and Barack continued making his weekly treks to the state capitol. We had our outward lives, but now there was something inward happening, a baby growing, a tiny girl. Because Barack's a fact guy and I'm a planner, finding out her gender was obligatory. We couldn't see her, but she was there, gaining in size and spirit as fall became winter and then became spring. That thing I'd felt, my envy for Barack's separateness from the process, had now utterly reversed itself. He was on the outside while I got to live the process. I was the process, indivisible from the small burgeoning life that was now throwing elbows and poking my bladder with her heel. I was never alone, never lonely. She was there, always, while I was driving to work or chopping vegetables for a salad or lying in bed at night poring over the pages of what to expect when you're expecting for the 900th time. Summers in Chicago are special to me. I love how the sky stays light right into the evening, how Lake Michigan gets busy with sailboats and the heat ratchets up to the point that it's almost impossible to recall the struggles of winter. I love how in summer the business of politics slowly starts to go quiet and life tilts more toward fun. Though really we'd had no control over anything, somehow in the end it felt as if we'd timed it all perfectly. Very early in the morning, on July 4, 1998, I felt the first twinges of labor. Barack and I checked into the University of Chicago Hospital, bringing both Maya, who'd flown in from Hawaii to be there the week I was due, and my mom for support. It was still hours before the barbecue coals would start to blaze across the city, and people would spread their blankets on the grass along the lake shore waving flags and waiting for the spectacle of the city fireworks to bloom and boom over the water. We'd miss all of it that year anyway, lost in a whole new blaze and bloom. We were thinking not about country, but about family, as Malia Ann Obama, one of the two most perfect babies ever to be born to anyone anywhere, dropped into our world. 14. Motherhood became my motivator. It dictated my movements, my decisions, the rhythm of every day. It took no time, no thought at all, for me to be fully consumed by my new role as a mother. I'm a detail-oriented person, and a baby is nothing if not a reservoir of details. Barack and I studied little Malia, taking in the mystery of her rosebud lips, her dark fuzzy head, and unfocused gaze, the herky-jerky way she moved her tiny limbs, 
We bathed and swaddled her and kept her pressed to our chests. We tracked her eating, her hours of sleep, her every gurgle. We analyzed the contents of every soiled diaper as if it might tell us all her secrets. She was a tiny person, a person entrusted to us. I was heady with the responsibility of it, fully in her thrall. I could lose an hour just watching her breathe. When there's a baby in the house, time stretches and contracts, abiding by none of the regular rules. A single day can feel endless, and then suddenly, six months have blown right past. Barack and I laughed about what parenthood had done to us. If we'd once spent the dinner hour parsing the intricacies of the juvenile justice system, comparing what I'd learned during my stint at Public Allies with some of the ideas he was trying to fit into a reform bill in the legislature, we now, with no less fervor, debated whether Malia was too dependent on her pacifier and compared our respective methods for getting her to sleep. We were, as most new parents are, obsessive and a little boring, and nothing made us happier. We hauled little Malia in her baby carrier with us to Zinfandel for our Friday night dates, figuring out how to streamline our order so we could be in and out quickly before she got too restless. Several months after Malia was born, I returned to work at the University of Chicago. I negotiated to come back only half-time, figuring this would be a win-win sort of arrangement that I could now be both career woman and perfect mother, striking the Mary Tyler Moore, Marion Robinson balance I'd always hoped for. We'd found a babysitter, Glorina Casabal, a doting expert caregiver about 10 years older than I was. Born in the Philippines, she was trained as a nurse and had raised two kids of her own. Glorina, Glow, was a short, bustling woman with a short, practical haircut and gold wire-rimmed glasses who could change a diaper in 12 seconds flat. She had a nurse's hyper-competent do-anything energy and would become a vital and cherished member of our family for the next few years. Her most important quality was that she loved my baby passionately. What I didn't realize, and this would also go into my file of things many of us learn too late, is that a part-time job, especially when it's meant to be a scaled-down version of your previously full-time job, can be something of a trap. Or at least that's how it played out for me. At work, I was still attending all the meetings I always had while also grappling with most of the same responsibilities. The only real difference was that I now made half my original salary and was trying to cram everything into a 20-hour week. If a meeting ran late, I'd end up tearing home at breakneck speed to fetch Malia so that we could arrive on time, Malia eager and happy, me sweaty and hyperventilating, to the afternoon wiggle worms class at a music studio on the north side. To me, it felt like a sanity-warping double bind. I battled guilt when I had to take work calls at home. I battled a different sort of guilt when I sat at my office, distracted by the idea that Malia might be allergic to peanuts. 
Part-time work was meant to give me more freedom, but mostly it left me feeling as if I were only half doing everything, that all the lines in my life had been blurred. Meanwhile, it seemed that Barack had hardly missed a stride. A few months after Malia's birth, he'd been re-elected to a four-year term in the state Senate, winning with 89% of the vote. He was popular and successful, and plate spinner that he was, he was also starting to think about bigger things, namely running for the U.S. Congress, hoping to unseat a four-term Democrat named Bobby Rush. Did I think it was a good idea for him to run for Congress? No, I did not. It struck me as unlikely that he'd win, given that Rush was well-known and Barack was still a virtual nobody. But he was a politician now, and he had traction inside the state Democratic Party. He had advisors and supporters, some of whom were urging him to give it a shot. Somebody had conducted a preliminary poll that seemed to suggest maybe he could win. And this I know for sure about my husband. You don't dangle an opportunity in front of him, something that could give him a wider field of impact, and expect him just to walk away. Because he doesn't. He won't. At the end of 1999, when Malia was almost 18 months old, we took her to Hawaii at Christmas time to visit her great-grandmother, Toot, who was now 77 years old and living in the same small high-rise apartment she'd been in for decades. It was meant to be a family visit, the one time each year Toot could see her grandson and great-granddaughter. Winter had once again clapped itself over Chicago, siphoning the warmth from the air and the blue from the sky, feeling antsy both at home and at work, We'd booked a modest hotel room near Waikiki Beach and started counting down the days. Barack's teaching duties at the law school had wrapped up for the semester, and I'd put in for time off at my job. But then politics got in the way. The Illinois Senate was hung up in a marathon debate, trying to settle on the provisions of a major crime bill. Instead of breaking for the holidays, it went into a special session with the aim of pushing through to a vote before Christmas. Barack called me from Springfield, saying we'd need to delay our trip by a few days. This wasn't great news, but I understood it was out of his hands. All I cared was that we eventually got there. I didn't want Toot spending Christmas alone, and beyond that, Barack and I needed the downtime. The trip to Hawaii, I was figuring, would separate both of us from our work and give us a chance to simply breathe. He was now officially running for Congress, which meant that he rarely switched off. He would later give an interview to a local paper, estimating that during the six or so months he campaigned for Congress, he spent less than four full days at home with me and Malia. This was the painful reality of campaigning. On top of his other responsibilities, Barack lived with a ticking clock, one that incessantly reminded him of the minutes and hours remaining before the March primary. How he spent each of those minutes and hours could at least in theory affect the eventual outcome. What I was learning, too, was that in the eyes of a campaign operation, 
any minutes or hours a candidate spends privately with family are viewed basically as a waste of that valuable time. I was enough of a veteran now to try to keep myself largely disengaged from the daily ups and downs of the race. I'd given Barack's decision to run a wan blessing, adopting a let's-just-get-this-out-of-the-way attitude about the whole thing. I thought maybe he'd try and fail to get into national politics and that this would then motivate him to want to try something entirely different. In an ideal world, my ideal world anyway, Barack would do something like become the head of a foundation where he could have an impact on issues that mattered and also make it home for dinner at night. We flew to Hawaii on December 23rd after the legislature finally hit pause for the holiday, though it still hadn't managed to find a resolution. But to my relief, we'd made it. Waikiki Beach was a revelation for young Malia. She tootled up and down the shoreline, kicking at the waves and exhausting herself with joy. We spent a merry, uneventful Christmas with Toot in her apartment, opening gifts and marveling at her devotion to the 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle she had going on a card table. As it always had, Oahu's languid green waters and cheery populace helped unhitch us from our everyday concerns, leaving us blissful and caught up in little more than the feeling of warm air on our skin and our daughter's delight at absolutely everything. As the headlines kept reminding us, we were fast approaching the dawn of a new millennium, and we were in a lovely place to spend the final days of 1999. All was going fine until Barack got a call from someone back in Illinois, letting him know that the Senate was somewhat abruptly going back into session to finish work on the crime bill. If he intended to vote, he had something like 48 hours to get back to Springfield. Another clock was now ticking. With a sinking heart, I watched as Barack jumped into action, rebooking our flights to leave the following day, pulling the plug on our vacation. We had to go. We had no choice. I suppose I could have stayed on alone with Malia, but what would be the fun in that? I wasn't happy with the idea of leaving, but I understood again this was the way of politics. The vote was an important one. The bill included new gun control measures, which Barack had fervently supported, and it had also proven divisive enough that a single absent senator could potentially prevent the bill from passing. We were going home. But then something unexpected happened. Overnight, Malia spiked a high fever. She'd ended the day as an exuberant surf kicker, but was now, not even 12 hours later, a hot, listless heap of toddler-shaped misery, glassy-eyed and wailing in pain, but still too young to tell us anything specific about it. We gave her Tylenol, but it didn't help much. She was tugging at one ear, which made me suspect it was infected. The reality of what this meant started to set in. We sat on the bed, watching Malia drift into a restless, uncomfortable sleep, We were only a matter of hours now from our flight home. 
I saw the worry deepening on Barack's face, caught as he was in the cross-currents of his opposing obligations. What we were about to decide went far beyond the moment at hand. She can't fly, I said, obviously. I know. We have to switch the flights again. I know. Unspoken was the fact that he could just go. He could walk out the door and catch a cab to the airport and still make it to Springfield in time to vote. He could leave his sick daughter and fretting wife halfway across the Pacific and go join his colleagues. It was an option, but I wasn't going to martyr myself by suggesting it. I was vulnerable, I'll admit, swimming in the uncertainty of what was going on with Malia. What if the fever got worse? What if she needed a hospital? Meanwhile, around the world, there were more paranoid people than us, readying fallout shelters, hoarding cash and jugs of water, just in case the worst of the Y2K predictions came true and the power and communication grids went on the fritz due to buggy computer networks unable to register the new millennium. It wasn't going to happen, but still. Was he really thinking about leaving? It turns out he wasn't. He didn't. He would never. I didn't listen to the call he made to his legislative aide that day, explaining that he'd missed the crime bill vote. I didn't care. I was just focused on our girl. And as soon as Barack got off that call, he was too. She was our little human. We owed everything to her first. In the end, the year 2000 arrived without incident. After a couple of days of rest and some antibiotics, what indeed had turned out to be a nasty ear infection for Malia cleared up, returning our toddler to her normal bouncy state. Life would go on. It always did. On another perfect blue sky day in Honolulu, we boarded a plane and flew home to Chicago, back into the chill of winter, and into what for Barack was shaping up to be a political disaster. The crime bill had failed to pass the state legislature, losing by five votes. For me, there was no math to do. Even if Barack had made it back from Hawaii in time, his vote almost certainly wouldn't have changed the outcome. Still, he took a beating for his absence. His opponents in the congressional primary pounced on the opportunity to depict Barack as some kind of bond vivant lawmaker who'd been on vacation in Hawaii, no less, and hadn't deigned to come back to vote on something as significant as gun control. Bobby Rush, the incumbent congressman, had tragically lost a family member to gun violence in Chicago only a few months earlier, which cast Barack in an even poorer light. Nobody seemed to register that he was from Hawaii, that he'd been visiting his widowed grandmother, or that his daughter had fallen ill. All that mattered was the vote. The press hammered on it for weeks. The Chicago Tribune's editorial page criticized the group of senators who hadn't managed to vote that day, calling them a bunch of gutless sheep. Barack's other opponent, a fellow state senator named Donnie Trotter, took his own shots, telling a reporter that 
to use your child as an excuse for not going to work also shows poorly on the individual's character. I wasn't accustomed to any of this. I wasn't used to having opponents or seeing my family life scrutinized in the news. Never before had I heard my husband's character questioned like that. It hurt to think that a good decision, the right decision as far as I was concerned, seemed to be costing him so much. In a column he wrote for our neighborhood's weekly newspaper, Barack calmly defended his choice to stay with me and Malia in Hawaii. We hear a lot of talk from politicians about the importance of family values, he wrote. Hopefully you will understand when your state senator tries to live up to those values as best he can. It seemed that with the fickleness of a child's earache, Barack's three years of work in the state senate had been all but wiped away. He'd led an overhaul of state campaign finance laws that ushered in stricter ethics rules for elected officials. He'd fought for tax cuts and credits for the working poor and was focused on cutting prescription drug costs for senior citizens. He'd earned the trust of legislators from all parts of the state, Republican and Democrat alike. But none of the real stuff seemed to matter now. The race had devolved into a series of low blows. From the start of the campaign, Barack's opponents and their supporters had been propagating unseemly ideas meant to gin up fear and mistrust among African-American voters, suggesting that Barack was part of an agenda cooked up by the white residents of Hyde Park, read white Jews, to foist their preferred candidate on the South Side. Barack is viewed in part to be the white man in black face in our community, Donnie Trotter told the Chicago Reader. Speaking to the same publication, Bobby Rush said, He went to Harvard and became an educated fool. We're not impressed with these folks with these Eastern elite degrees. He's not one of us, in other words. Barack wasn't a real black man like them. Someone who spoke like that, looked like that, and read that many books could never be. What bothered me most was that Barack exemplified everything parents on the South Side often said they wanted for their kids. He was everything people like Bobby Rush and Jesse Jackson and so many black leaders had talked about for years. He'd gotten his education, and rather than abandoning the African-American community, he was now trying to serve it. This was a heated election, sure, but... Barack was being attacked for all the wrong things. I was astonished to see how our leaders treated him only as a threat to their power, inciting mistrust by playing on backward anti-intellectual ideas about race and class. It made me sick. Barack, for his part, took it more in stride than I did, having already seen in Springfield how nasty politics could get and how the truth was so often distorted to serve people's political aims. Bruised but unwilling to give up, he continued through the winter, making his weekly trips back and forth to Springfield while trying earnestly to beat back the storm, 
even as donations began to dwindle and more and more endorsements went to Bobby Rush. With the clock ticking down to the primary, Malia and I hardly saw him at all, though he called us every evening to say goodnight. I was more grateful than ever for those few stolen days we'd had on the beach. I knew that in his heart, Barack was too. What never got lost inside all the noise, inside all those nights he'd spent away from us, was that he cared. He took none of it lightly. I caught a trace of agony in his voice nearly every time he hung up the phone. It was almost as if every day he were forced to cast another vote between family and politics, politics and family. In March, Barack lost the Democratic primary in what ended up being a resounding victory for Bobby Rush. All the while, I just kept hugging our girl. And then came our second girl. Natasha Marion Obama was born on June 10, 2001, at the University of Chicago Medical Center. After a single round of IVF, a fantastically simple pregnancy, and a straightforward delivery, while Malia, now almost three, waited at home with my mom, our new baby was beautiful, a little lamb child with a full head of dark hair and alert brown eyes, the fourth corner to our square. Barack and I were over the moon. Sasha, we planned to call her. I'd chosen the name because I thought it had a sassy ring. A girl named Sasha would brook no fools. Like all parents, I found myself wanting so much for our children, praying that nothing would ever hurt them. My hope was that they'd grow up to be bright and energetic, optimistic like their father, and hard-driving like their mom. More than anything, I wanted them to be strong, to have a certain steeliness, the kind that would keep them upright and forward-moving no matter what. I didn't know a thing about what was coming our way, how our family's life would unfold, whether everything would go well or everything would go poorly, or whether, like most people, we'd get a solid mix of both. My job was to make sure they were ready for it. My stint at the university had left me feeling worn out, putting me in a far-from-perfect juggle while also straining our finances with the expense of childcare. After Sasha was born, I debated whether I even wanted to return to my job at all, thinking that maybe our family would be better served if I stayed home full-time. Glow, our beloved babysitter, had been offered a higher-paying nursing job and had reluctantly decided she needed to move on. I couldn't blame her, of course, but losing Glow rearranged everything in my working mother's heart. Her investment in my family had allowed me to maintain my investment in my job. She loved our kids as if they were her own. I'd wept and wept the night she gave her notice knowing how hard it would be for us to balance without her. I knew how fortunate we were to have the resources to hire her in the first place. But now that she was gone, it felt like losing an arm. I loved being with my little daughters, 
I recognize the value of every minute and hour put in at home, especially with Barack's schedule being so irregular. I thought once again of my mother's decision to stay home with me and Craig. Surely I was guilty of romanticizing her life, imagining it had actually been fun for her to pine saw the windowsills and make all our clothes. But compared with the way I'd been living, it seemed quaint and manageable, and possibly worth trying. I like the idea of being in charge of one thing rather than two, of not having my brain scrambled by the competing narratives of home and work. And it did seem that we could swing it financially. Barack had moved from an adjunct position to a senior lecturer at the law school, which gave us a tuition break at the university's lab school, where Malia was soon to start preschool. But then came a call from Susan Schur, my former mentor and colleague at City Hall, who is now general counsel and vice president at the University of Chicago Medical Center, where we just had Sasha. The center had a brand new president whom everyone was raving about, and one of his top priorities was improving community outreach. He was looking to hire an executive director for community affairs, a job that seemed almost custom-made for me. Was I interested in interviewing? I debated whether to even send in my resume. It sounded like a great opportunity, but I had just basically talked myself into the idea that I was, that we all were better off with my staying home. In any event, this was not a moment of high glamour for me, not a time I could really imagine blow-drying my hair and putting on a business suit. I was up several times a night to nurse Sasha, which put me behind on sleep and therefore sanity. Even as I was still rather fanatically devoted to neatness, I was losing the battle. Our condo was strewn with baby toys, toddler books, and packages of diaper wipes. Any trip outside the house involved a giant stroller and an unfashionable diaper bag full of the essentials, a Ziploc bag of Cheerios, a few everyday toys, and an extra change of clothes for everyone. But motherhood had also brought with it a set of wonderful friendships. I'd managed to connect with a group of professional women and form a kind of chatty, hands-on social cluster. Most of us were deep into our 30s and working in all sorts of careers, from banking and government to nonprofits. Many of us were having children at the same time. The more children we had, the tighter we grew. We saw one another nearly every weekend. We looked after each other's babies, went on group outings to the zoo, and bought bulk tickets for Disney on Ice. Sometimes on a Saturday afternoon, we just set the whole pack of kids loose in somebody's playroom and cracked open a bottle of wine. Each one of these women was educated, ambitious, dedicated to her kids, and generally as bewildered as I was about how to put it all together. When it came to working and parenting, we were doing it every sort of way. Some of us worked full-time, some part-time. Some stayed at home with their kids. Some allowed their toddlers to eat hot dogs and corn chips. 
Others served whole grain everything. A few had super-involved husbands. Others had husbands like mine who were oversubscribed and away a lot. Some of my friends were incredibly happy. Others were trying to make changes to attempt a different sort of balance. Most of us lived in a state of constant calibration, tweaking one area of life in hopes of bringing more steadiness to another. Our afternoons together taught me that there was no formula for motherhood. No single approach could be deemed right or wrong. This was useful to see. Regardless of who was living which way and why, every child in that playroom was cherished and growing just fine. I felt it every time we were together, the collective force of all these women trying to do right by their kids. In the end, no matter what, I knew we'd help one another out and we'd all be okay. After talking it through with Barack and my friends, I decided to interview for the university hospital job to at least see what it was about. My feeling was I'd be perfect for the job. I knew I had the right skills and plenty of passion. But if I were to take it, I'd also need to operate from a position of strength on terms that worked for my family. I could nail it, I thought, if I wasn't overburdened with superfluous meetings and could be given the leeway to manage my own time, working from home when I needed to, dashing out of the office for daycare pickup or pediatrician's visit when necessary. Also, I didn't want to work part-time anymore. I was done with that. I wanted a full-time job with a competitive salary to match so that we could better afford child care and housekeeping help, so that I could lay off the pine saw and spend my free time playing with the girls. In the meantime, I wasn't going to try to hide the messiness of my existence from the breastfeeding baby and the three-year-old in preschool to the fact that with my husband's topsy-turvy political schedule, I was in charge of more or less every aspect of life at home. Somewhat brazenly, I suppose, I laid all of this out in my interview with Michael Reardon, the hospital's new president. I even brought three-month-old Sasha along with me, too. I can't remember the circumstances exactly, whether I couldn't find a babysitter that day or whether I'd even bothered to try. Sasha was little, though and still needed a lot from me. She was a fact of my life, a cute, burbling, impossible-to-ignore fact. And something compelled me almost literally to put her on the table for this discussion. Here is me, I was saying, and here also is my baby. It seemed a miracle that my would-be boss appeared to get it. If he had any reservations, listening to me explain how flex time was a necessity while I bounced Sasha on my lap, hoping all the while that her diaper wouldn't leak, he didn't express them. I walked out of the interview feeling pleased and fairly certain I'd be offered the job. But no matter how it panned out, I knew I'd at least done something good for myself in speaking up about my needs. There was power, I felt, in just saying it out loud. With a clear mind and a baby who was starting to fuss, 
I rushed us both back home. This was the new math in our family. We had two kids, three jobs, two cars, one condo, and what felt like no free time. I accepted the new position at the hospital. Barack continued teaching and legislating. We both served on the boards of several nonprofits, and as much as he'd been stung by his defeat in the congressional primary, Barack still had ideas about trying for higher office. George W. Bush was now president. As a country, we'd endured the shock and tragedy of the terror attacks of 9 11. There was a war going on in Afghanistan. A new color coded threat advisory system being used in the United States. And Osama bin Laden was apparently hiding somewhere in a cave. As always, Barack was absorbing every bit of news carefully, going about his regular business while quietly developing his own thoughts about it all. I don't recall exactly when it was that he first raised the possibility of running for a seat in the U.S. Senate. The idea was still nascent and an actual decision many months away, but clearly it was taking hold in Barack's mind. What I do remember is my response, which was just to look at him incredulously as if to say, Don't you think we're busy enough? My distaste for politics was only intensifying, less because of what went on in either Springfield or D.C., and more because five years into his tenure as state senator, Barack's overloaded schedule was starting to really grate on me. As Sasha and Malia grew, I found that the pace only quickened, and the to do lists only got longer. Leaving me operating in what felt like a never ending state of overdrive. Barack and I did all we could to keep the girls' lives calm and manageable. We had a new babysitter helping out at home. Malia was happy at her University of Chicago laboratory school, making friends and loading up her own little calendar with birthday parties and swim classes on weekends. Sasha was now about a year old, wobbling on two feet. And beginning to say words and crack us up with her megawatt smiles. She was madly inquisitive and utterly bent on keeping up with Malia and her four year old buddies. My hospital job was going well, though the best way to stay on top of it, I was discovering, was to hoist myself from bed at 5 a.m. and put in a couple of hours on the computer before anyone else woke up. This left me a little ragged in the evenings and sometimes put me in direct conflict with my night owl husband, who turned up on Thursday nights from Springfield, relatively chipper and wanting to dive headfirst into family life, making up for all the time he'd lost. But time was now officially an issue for us. If Barack's disregard for punctuality had once been something I gently teased him about, It was now a straight up aggravation. I knew that Thursdays made him happy. I'd hear his excitement when he called to report that he was done with work and finally headed home. I understood it was nothing but good intentions that would lead him to say, I'm on my way or almost home. And for a while, 
I believe those words. I'd give the girls their nightly bath, but delay bedtime so they could wait up to give their dad a hug. Or I'd feed them dinner and put them to bed, but hold off on eating myself, lighting a few candles and looking forward to sharing a meal with Barack. And then I'd wait. I'd wait so long that Sasha's and Malia's eyelids would start to droop, and I'd have to carry them to bed. Or I'd wait alone, hungry and increasingly bitter, as my own eyes got heavy and candle wax pooled on the table. On my way, I was learning, was the product of Barack's eternal optimism, an indication of his eagerness to be home that did nothing to signify when he would actually arrive. Almost home was not a geolocator, but rather a state of mind. Sometimes he was on his way home, but needed to stop in to have one last 45-minute conversation with a colleague before he got into the car. Other times, he was almost home, but forgot to mention that he was first going to fit in a quick workout at the gym. In our life before children, such frustrations might have seemed petty. But as a working full-time mother with a half-time spouse and a pre-dawn wake-up time, I felt my patience slipping away until finally at some point it just fell off a cliff. When Barack made it home, he'd either find me raging or unavailable, having flipped off every light in the house and gone sullenly to sleep. We live by the paradigms we know. In Barack's childhood, his father disappeared and his mother came and went. She was devoted to him, but never tethered to him. And as far as he was concerned, there was nothing wrong in this approach. He'd had hills, beaches, and his own mind to keep him company. Independence mattered in Barack's world. It always had and always would. I, meanwhile, had been raised inside the tight weave of my own family, in our boxed-in apartment, in our boxed-in South Side neighborhood, with my grandparents and aunts and uncles all around, everyone jammed at one table for our regular Sunday night meals. After 13 years in love, we needed to think through what this meant. When it came down to it, I felt vulnerable when he was away, not because he wasn't fully devoted to our marriage. This is and has always been a meaningful certainty in my life. But because having been brought up in a family where everyone always showed up, I could be extra let down when someone didn't show. I was prone to loneliness and now also felt fierce about sticking up for the girls' needs, too. We wanted him close. We missed him when he was gone. I worried that he didn't understand what that felt like for us. I feared that the path he'd chosen for himself and still seemed so clearly committed to pursuing would end up steamrolling our every need. When he'd first approached me about running for state senate years earlier, there'd been only two of us to think about. I had no conception of what saying yes to politics might mean for us later, once we'd added two children to the mix. 
But I now knew enough to understand that politics was never especially kind to families. I'd had a glimpse of it back in high school through my friendship with Santita Jackson and had seen it again when Barack's political opponents had exploited his decision to stay with Malia in Hawaii when she was sick. Sometimes, watching the news or reading the paper, I found myself staring at images of the people who'd given themselves over to political life. The Clintons, the Gores, the Bushes, old photos of the Kennedys, and wondering what the backstories were. Was everyone normal? Happy? Were those smiles real? At home, our frustrations began to rear up often and intensely. Barack and I loved each other deeply, but it was as if at the center of our relationship, there was suddenly a knot we couldn't loosen. I was 38 years old and had seen other marriages come undone in a way that made me feel protective of ours. I'd had close friends go through devastating breakups, brought on by small problems left unattended or lapses in communication that led eventually to irreparable rifts. A couple of years earlier, my brother Craig had moved temporarily back into the upstairs apartment we'd grown up in, living above our mother after his own marriage had slowly and painfully fallen apart. Barack was reluctant at first to try couples counseling. He was accustomed to throwing his mind at complicated problems and reasoning them out on his own. Sitting down in front of a stranger struck him as uncomfortable, if not a tad dramatic. Couldn't he just run over to Borders and buy some relationship books? Weren't there discussions we could have on our own? But I wanted to really talk and to really listen, and not to do it late at night or during hours we could both be together with the girls. The few people I knew who tried couples counseling and were open enough to talk about it said that it had done them some good. And so I booked us an appointment with a downtown psychologist who came recommended by a friend, and Barack and I went to see him a handful of times. Our counselor, Dr. Woodchurch, let's call him, was a soft-spoken white man who'd gone to good universities and always wore khakis. My assumption was that he would hear what Barack and I had to say and then instantly validate all my grievances, because every last one of those grievances was, as I saw it, absolutely valid. I'm going to guess that Barack might have felt the same way about his own grievances. This turned out to be the big revelation for me about counseling. No validating went on. No sides were taken. When it came to our disagreements, Dr. Woodchurch would never be the deciding vote. Instead, he was an empathic and patient listener, coaxing each of us through the maze of our feelings, separating out our weapons from our wounds. He cautioned us when we got too lawyerly and posited careful questions intended to get us to think hard about why we felt the way we felt. Slowly, over hours of talking, the knot began to loosen. Each time Barack and I left his office, we felt a bit more connected. 
I began to see that there were ways I could be happier and that they didn't necessarily need to come from Barack's quitting politics in order to take some nine to six foundation job. If anything, our counseling sessions had shown me that this was an unrealistic expectation. I began to see how I'd been stoking the most negative parts of myself, caught up in the notion that everything was unfair, and then assiduously, like a Harvard-trained lawyer, collecting evidence to feed that hypothesis. I now tried out a new hypothesis. It was possible that I was more in charge of my happiness than I was allowing myself to be. I was too busy resenting Barack for managing to fit workouts into his schedule, for example, to even begin figuring out how to exercise regularly myself. I spent so much energy stewing over whether or not he'd make it home for dinner that dinners with or without him were no longer fun. This was my pivot point, my moment of self-arrest. Like a climber about to slip off an icy peak, I drove my axe into the ground. That isn't to say that Barack didn't make his own adjustments. Counseling helped him to see the gaps in how we communicated, and he worked to be better at it. But I made mine, and they helped me, which then helped us. For starters, I recommitted myself to being healthy. Barack and I belonged to the same gym, run by a jovial and motivating athletic trainer named Cornell McClellan. I'd worked out with Cornell for a couple of years, but having children had changed my regular routine. My fix for this came in the form of my ever-giving mother, who still worked full-time but volunteered to start coming over to our house at 4.45 in the morning several days a week so that I could run out to Cornell's and join a girlfriend for a 5 a.m. workout and then be home by 6.30 to get the girls up and ready for their days. This new regimen changed everything. Calmness and strength, two things I feared I was losing, were now back. When it came to the home-for-dinner dilemma, I installed new boundaries, ones that worked better for me and the girls. We made our schedule and stuck to it. Dinner each night was at 6.30. Baths were at 7, followed by books, cuddling, and lights out at 8 sharp. The routine was ironclad, which put the weight of responsibility on Barack to either make it on time or not. For me, this made so much more sense than holding off dinner or having the girls wait up sleepily for a hug. It went back to my wishes for them to grow up strong and centered and also unaccommodating to any form of old-school patriarchy. I didn't want them ever to believe that life began when the man of the house arrived home. We didn't wait for Dad. It was his job now to catch up with us. 15. On Clybourne Avenue in Chicago, just north of downtown, there was a strange paradise, seemingly built for the working parent, seemingly built for me. A standard, supremely American, got-it-all strip mall. It had a baby gap, a Best Buy, a Gymboree, and a CVS, 
plus a handful of other chains, small and large, meant to take care of any urgent consumer need, be it a toilet plunger or ripe avocado or a child-sized bathing cap. There was also a nearby container store and a Chipotle, which made things even better. This was my place. I could park the car, whip through two or three stores as needed, pick up a burrito bowl, and be back at my desk inside 60 minutes. I excelled at the lunchtime blitz, the replacing of lost socks, the purchasing of gifts for whatever five-year-old was having a birthday party on Saturday, the stocking and restocking of juice boxes and single-serving applesauce cups. Sasha and Malia were three and six years old now, feisty, smart, and growing fast. Their energy left me breathless, which only added to the occasional allure of the shopping plaza. There were times when I'd sit in the parked car and eat my fast food alone, with a car radio playing, overcome with relief, impressed with my efficiency. This was life with little kids. This was what sometimes passed for achievement. I had the applesauce. I was eating a meal. Everyone was still alive. Look how I'm managing, I wanted to say in those moments to my audience of no one. Does everyone see that I'm pulling this off? This was me at the age of 40. A little bit June Cleaver, a little bit Mary Tyler Moore. On my better days, I gave myself credit for making it happen. The balance of my life was elegant only from a distance, and only if you squinted. But there was at least something there that resembled balance. The hospital job had turned out to be a good one, challenging and satisfying and in line with my beliefs. It astonished me, actually to see how a big, esteemed institution like a university medical center with 9,500 employees traditionally operated, run primarily by academics who did medical research and wrote papers and who also, in general, seemed to find the neighborhood around them so scary that they wouldn't even cross an off-campus street. For me, that fear was galvanizing. It got me out of bed in the morning. I'd spent most of my life living alongside those barriers, noting the nervousness of white people in my neighborhood, registering all the subtle ways people with any sort of influence seemed to gravitate away from my home community and into clusters of affluence that seemed increasingly far removed. Here was an invitation to undo some of that, to knock down barriers where I could, mostly by encouraging people to get to know one another. I was well supported by my new boss, given the freedom to build my own program, creating a stronger relationship between the hospital and its neighboring community. I started with one person working for me, but eventually led a team of 22. I instituted programs to take hospital staff and trustees out into neighborhoods around the South Side having them visit community centers and schools, signing them up to be tutors, mentors, and science fair judges, getting them to try the local barbecue joints. We brought local kids into job shadow hospital employees, 
set up a program to increase the number of neighborhood people volunteering in the hospital and work with a summer academic institute through the medical school, encouraging students in the community to consider medicine as a career. After realizing that the hospital system could be better about hiring minority and women-owned businesses for its contracted work, I helped set up the Office of Business Diversity as well. Finally, there was the issue of people desperately needing care. The South Side had just over a million residents and a dearth of medical providers, not to mention a population that was disproportionately affected by the kinds of chronic conditions that tend to afflict the poor. Asthma, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. With huge numbers of people uninsured and many others dependent on Medicaid, patients regularly jammed the university hospital's emergency room often seeking what amounted to routine non-emergency treatment or having gone so long without preventative care that they were now in dire need of help. The problem was glaring, expensive, inefficient, and stressful for everyone involved. ER visits did little to improve anyone's long-term health either. Trying to address this problem became an important focus for me. Among other things, we began hiring and training patient advocates, friendly, helpful local people generally, who could sit with patients in the ER, helping them set up follow-up appointments at community health centers and educating them on where they could go to get decent and affordable regular care. My work was interesting and rewarding, but still I had to be careful not to let it consume me. I felt I owed that to my girls. Our decision to let Barack's career proceed as it had, to give him the freedom to shape and pursue his dreams, led me to tamp down my own efforts at work. Almost deliberately, I numbed myself somewhat to my ambition, stepping back in moments when I'd normally step forward. I'm not sure anyone around me would have said I wasn't doing enough, but I was always aware of everything I could have followed through on and didn't. There were certain small-scale projects I chose not to take on. There were young employees whom I could have mentored better than I did. You hear all the time about the trade-offs of being a working mother. These were mine. If I'd once been someone who threw herself completely into every task, I was now more cautious, protective of my time, knowing I had to maintain enough energy for life at home. My goals mostly involved maintaining normalcy and stability, but those would never be Barack's. We'd grown better about recognizing this and letting it be. One yin, one yang. I craved routine and order, and he did not. He could live in the ocean. I needed the boat. When he was present at home, he was at least impressively present, playing on the floor with the girls, reading Harry Potter out loud with Malia at night, laughing at my jokes and hugging me, reminding us of his love and steadiness before vanishing again for another half a week or more. We made the most of the gaps in his schedule, having meals and seeing friends. 
He indulged me sometimes by watching Sex in the City. I indulged him sometimes by watching The Sopranos. I'd given myself over to the idea that being away was just part of his job. I didn't like it, but for the most part, I'd stop fighting it. Barack could happily end a day in a faraway hotel with all sorts of political battles brewing and loose ends floating. I, meanwhile, lived for the shelter of home, for the sense of completeness I felt each night with Sasha and Malia tucked into their beds and the dishwasher humming in the kitchen. I had no choice but to adjust to Barack's absences anyway, because they weren't slated to end. On top of his regular work, he was once again campaigning, this time for a seat in the U.S. Senate, ahead of the fall 2004 elections. He'd been slowly growing restless in Springfield, frustrated by the meandering pace of state government, convinced he could accomplish more and better in Washington. Knowing that I had plenty of reasons to be against the idea of a Senate run, and knowing also that he had a counter-argument to present, midway through 2002, we'd convened an informal meeting of maybe a dozen of our closest friends held over brunch at Valerie Jarrett's house, thinking we would kind of air the whole thing out and see what people thought. Valerie lived in a high-rise not far from us in Hyde Park. Her condo was clean and modern, with white walls and white furniture, and sprays of exquisite bright orchids adding color. At the time, she was the executive vice president at a real estate firm and a trustee at the University of Chicago Medical Center. She'd supported my efforts at Public Allies when I was there and helped raise funds for Barack's various campaigns, marshalling her wide network of connections to boost our every endeavor. Because of this and because of her warm, wise demeanor, Valerie had come to occupy a curious position in our lives. Our friendship was equally personal and professional, and she was equally my friend and Barack's, which in my experience is a rare thing inside a couple. I had my high-powered mom posse, and Barack spent what little leisure time he had playing basketball with a group of buddies. We had some great friends who were couples, their children, friends with our children, families we liked to vacation with. But Valerie was something different, a big sister to each of us individually, and someone who helped us stand back and take measure of our dilemmas when they arose. She saw us clearly, she saw our goals clearly, and was protective of us both. She'd also told me privately ahead of time that she wasn't convinced Barack should run for the Senate. So I walked in to brunch that morning, figuring I had the argument sewn up. But I'd been wrong. The Senate race presented a unique opportunity, Barack explained that day. He felt he had a real shot. The incumbent, Peter Fitzgerald, was a conservative Republican in an increasingly Democratic state and was having trouble maintaining the support of his own party. It was likely that multiple candidates would run in the primary, which meant that Barack would only need to command a plurality of the vote to win the Democratic nomination. As for money, 
he assured me that he wouldn't need to touch our personal finances. When I asked how we'd afford living expenses, if we were going to have homes in both D.C. and Chicago, he said, well, I'll write another book, and it'll be a big book, one that makes money. (laughs) This made me laugh. Barack was the only person I knew who had this kind of faith, thinking that a book could solve any problem. He was like the little boy from Jack and the Beanstalk, I teased, who trades his family's livelihood for a handful of magic beans, believing with his whole heart that they will yield something, even if no one else does. On all other fronts, Barack's logic was dismayingly solid. I watched Valerie's face as he spoke, realizing that he was quickly racking up points with her, that he had an answer for every but what about question we could throw his way. I knew he was making sense, even as I fought off the urge to tally up all the additional hours he'd spend away from us now, not to mention the specter of a move to D.C. Though we'd argued over the drain of his political career on our family for years now, I did love and trust Barack. He was already a man with two families, his attention divided between me and the girls and his 200,000 or so Southside constituents. Would sharing him with the state of Illinois really be all that different? I couldn't know one way or another, but I also couldn't bring myself to stand in the way of his aspiration that thing always tugging at him to try for more. And so that day we made a deal. Valerie agreed to be the finance chair for Barack's Senate campaign. A number of our friends agreed to donate time and money to the effort. I signed off on all of it, with one important caveat, repeated out loud so that everyone could hear it. If he lost he'd move on from politics altogether and find a different sort of job. If it didn't work out on election day, this would be the end. Really and for real, this would be the end. What came next for Barack, though, was a series of lucky twists. First, Peter Fitzgerald decided not to run for re-election, clearing the field for challengers and relative newcomers like my husband. Then somewhat oddly, both the Democratic frontrunner in the primary and the ensuing Republican nominee became embroiled in scandals involving their ex-wives. With just a few months remaining before the election, Barack didn't even have a Republican opponent. To be sure, he'd been running an excellent campaign, having learned plenty from his failed congressional run. He'd beaten out seven primary opponents and earned more than half the vote to win the nomination. Traveling the state and interacting with potential constituents, he was the same man I knew at home, funny and charming, smart and prepared. His overly verbose answers to questions at town hall forums and campaign debates seemed only to drive home the point that he belonged on the Senate floor. But still, effort notwithstanding, Barack's path to the Senate seemed paved in four-leaf clover. 
All this, too, was before John Kerry invited him to give the keynote address at the 2004 Democratic National Convention being held in Boston. Kerry, then a senator from Massachusetts, was locked in a back-and-forth fight for the presidency with George W. Bush. My husband was, in all of this, a complete nobody. A humble state legislator who'd never stood before a crowd like the one of 15,000 or more that would be gathered in Boston. He'd never used a teleprompter, never been live on primetime television. He was a newcomer, a black man in what was historically a white man's business, surfacing from obscurity with a weird name and odd backstory, hoping to strike a chord with a common Democrat. As the network pundits would later acknowledge, choosing Barack Obama to speak to an audience of millions had been a mighty gamble. And yet, in his curious and roundabout way, he seemed destined for exactly this moment. I knew because I'd seen up close how his mind churned nonstop. Over years, I'd watched him inhale books, newspapers, and ideas, sparking to life any time he spoke with someone who offered a shard of new experience or knowledge. He'd stowed every piece of it. What he was building, I see now, was a vision, and not a small one either. It was the very thing I'd had to create room for in our shared life, to coexist with, even if reluctantly. It aggravated me sometimes to no end, but it was also what I could never disavow in Barack. He'd been working at this thing, quietly and meticulously, as long as I'd known him. And now maybe the size of the audience would finally match the scope of what he believed to be possible. He'd been ready for that call. All he had to do was speak. Must have been a good speech, became my refrain afterward. It was a joke between me and Barack, one I repeated often and with irony following that night, July 27, 2004. I'd left the girls at home with my mother and flown to be with him in Boston for the speech standing in the wings at the convention center as Barack stepped into the hot glare of the stage lights and into view of all those millions of people. He was a little nervous, and so was I, though we were both determined not to show it. This was how Barack operated anyway. The more pressure he was under, the calmer he seemed to get. He'd written his remarks over the course of a couple of weeks working on them in between Illinois Senate votes. He memorized his words and rehearsed them carefully, to the point where he wouldn't actually need the teleprompter unless his nerves got triggered and his mind went blank. But that wasn't at all what happened. Barack looked out at the audience and into the TV cameras, and as if kick-starting some internal engine, he just smiled and began to roll. He spoke for 17 minutes that night, explaining who he was and where he came from, 
His grandfather, a GI who joined Patton's army. His grandmother, who'd worked on an assembly line during the war. His father, who'd grown up herding goats in Kenya. His parents' improbable love. Their faith in what a good education could do for a son who wasn't born rich or well-connected. Earnestly and expertly, he cast himself not as an outsider, but rather as a literal embodiment of the American story. He reminded the audience that a country couldn't be carved up simply into red and blue, that we were united by a common humanity, compelled to care for the whole of society. He called for hope over cynicism. He spoke with hope, projected hope, almost sang with it, really. It was 17 minutes of Barack's deft and easy way with words. 17 minutes of his deep, dazzling optimism on display. By the time he finished, with a last plug for John Kerry and his running mate, John Edwards, the crowd was on its feet and roaring, the applause booming in the rafters. I walked onto the stage, stepping into the blinding lights wearing high heels and a white suit to give Barack a congratulatory hug before turning to wave with him at the whipped-up audience. The energy was electric, the sound absolutely deafening. That Barack was a good person with a big mind and a serious faith in democracy was no longer any sort of secret. I was proud of what he'd done, though it didn't surprise me. This was the guy I'd married. I'd known his capabilities all along. Looking back, I think it was then that I quietly began to let go of the idea that there was any reversing his course, that he'd ever belonged solely to me and the girls. I could hear it almost in the pulse of the applause. More of this, more of this, more of this. The media response to Barack's speech was hyperbolic. I've just seen the first black president, Chris Matthews, declared to his fellow commentators on NBC. A front-page headline in the Chicago Tribune the next day read simply, The Phenom. Barack's cell phone began to ring nonstop. Cable pundits were dubbing him a rock star and an overnight success as if he hadn't spent years working up to that moment on stage, as if the speech had created him instead of the other way around. Still, the speech was the beginning of something new, not just for him, but for us, our whole family. We were swept into another level of exposure and into the swift current of other people's expectations. It was surreal, the whole thing. All I could do, really, was joke about it. Must have been a good speech, I'd say with a shrug as people began stopping Barack on the street to ask for his autograph or tell him they'd loved what he said. Must have been a good speech, I said when we walked out of a restaurant in Chicago to find that a crowd had gathered on the sidewalk to wait for him. 
I said the same thing when journalists started asking for Barack's thoughts on important national issues, when big-time political strategists started to hover around him, and when nine years after publication, the formally obscure Dreams from My Father got a paperback reissue and landed on the New York Times bestseller list. Must have been a good speech, I said, when a beaming, bustling Oprah Winfrey showed up at our house to spend a day interviewing us for her magazine. What was happening to us? I almost couldn't track it. In November, Barack was elected to the U.S. Senate, winning 70% of the vote statewide, the largest margin in Illinois history, and the biggest landslide of any Senate race in the country that year. He'd won significant majorities among blacks, whites, and Latinos, men and women, rich and poor, urban, suburban, and rural. At one point, we went to Arizona for a quick getaway, and he was mobbed by well-wishers there. This, for me, felt like a true and odd measure of his fame. Even white people were recognizing him now. I took what was left of my normalcy and wrapped myself in it. When we were at home, everything was the same. When we were with our friends and family, everything was the same. With our kids, it was always the same. But outside, things were different. Barack was flying back and forth to D.C. all the time now. He had a Senate office and an apartment in a shabby building on Capitol Hill, a little one-bedroom that was already cluttered with books and papers, his hole away from home. Anytime the girls and I came to visit, we didn't even pretend to want to stay there, booking a hotel room for the four of us instead. I stuck to my routine in Chicago, gym, work, home, repeat, dishes in the dishwasher, swim lessons, soccer, ballet. I kept pace as I always had. Barack had a life in Washington now, operating with some of the gravitas that came with being a senator, but I was still me, living my same normal life. I was sitting one day in my parked car at the shopping plaza on Clybourne Avenue, having some Chipotle and a little me time after a dash through Baby Gap, when my secretary at work called on my cell phone to ask if she could patch through a call. It was from a woman in D.C., someone I'd never met, the wife of a fellow senator, who tried a few times already to reach me. Sure, put her through, I said. And on came the voice of the senator's wife, pleasant and warm. Well, hello, she said. I'm so glad to finally talk to you. I told her that I was excited to talk to her, too. I'm just calling to welcome you, she said, and to let you know that we'd like to invite you to join something very special. She'd called to ask me to be in some sort of private organization, a club that, from what I gathered, was made up primarily of the wives of important people in Washington. They got together regularly for luncheons and to discuss issues of the day. It's a nice way to meet people, and I know that it's not always easy when you're new to town, she said. 
In my whole life, I'd never been asked to join a club. I'd watch friends in high school go off on ski trips with their Jack and Jill groups. At Princeton, I'd waited up sometimes for Suzanne to come home, buzzed and tittering from her eating club parties. Half the lawyers at Sidley, it seemed, belonged to country clubs. I'd visited plenty of those clubs over time, raising money for public allies, raising money for Barack's campaigns. You learned early on that clubs in general were saturated with money. Belonging signified more than just belonging. It was a kind offer she was making, coming from a genuine place. And yet I was all too happy to turn it down. Thank you, I said. It's so nice of you to think of me, but actually we've made the decision I won't be moving to Washington. I let her know that we had two little girls in school in Chicago and that I was pretty attached to my job. I explained that Barack was settling into life in D.C., commuting home when he could. I didn't mention that we were so committed to Chicago that we were looking to buy a new house, thanks to the royalty money that was starting to come in from the renewed sales of his book and the fact that he now had a generous offer on a second book, The Surprise Harvest of Barack's Magic Beans. The senator's wife paused, letting a delicate beat pass. When she spoke again, her voice was gentle. That can be very hard on a marriage, you know, she said. Families fall apart. I felt her judgment then. She herself had been in Washington for many years. The implication was she'd seen things go poorly when a spouse stayed back. The implication was that I was making a dangerous choice that there was only one correct way to be a senator's wife, and I was choosing wrong. I thanked her again, hung up and sighed. None of this had been my choice in the first place. None of this was my choice at all. I was now, like her, the wife of a U.S. senator. Mrs. Obama, she called me throughout the conversation. But that didn't mean I had to drop everything to support him. Truly, I didn't want to drop a thing. I knew there were other senators with spouses who chose to live in their hometowns rather than in D.C. I knew that the Senate, with 14 of its 100 members being female, was not quite as antiquated as it had once been. But still, I found it presumptuous that another woman would tell me I was wrong to want to keep my kids in school and remain in my job. A few weeks after the election, I'd gone with Barack to Washington for a day-long orientation offered to newly elected senators and their spouses. There'd been only a few of us attending that year, and after a quick introduction, the politicians went one way while the spouses were ushered into another room. I'd come with questions knowing that politicians and their families were expected to adhere to strict federal ethics policies, dictating everything from whom they could receive gifts from to how they paid for travel to and from Washington. I thought maybe we'd discuss how to navigate social situations with lobbyists or the legalities of raising money for a future campaign. What we got, however, 
was an elaborate disquisition on the history and architecture of the capital and a look at the official China patterns produced for the Senate, followed by a polite and chit-chatty lunch. The whole thing had gone on for hours. It would have been funny, maybe, if I hadn't taken a day off from work and left our kids with my mother in order to be there. If I was going to be a political spouse, I wanted to treat it seriously. I didn't care about the politics per se, but I also didn't want to screw anything up. The truth was that Washington confused me with its decorous traditions and sober self-regard, its whiteness and maleness, its ladies having lunch off to the side. At the heart of my confusion was a kind of fear, because as much as I hadn't chosen to be involved, I was getting sucked in. I'd been Mrs. Obama for the last 12 years, but it was starting to mean something different. At least in some spheres, I was now Mrs. Obama in a way that could feel diminishing, a Mrs. defined by her mister. I was the wife of Barack Obama, the political rock star, the only black person in the Senate, the man who'd spoken of hope and tolerance so poignantly and forcefully that he now had a hornet buzz of expectation following him. My husband was a senator, but somehow people seemed to want to vault right over that. Instead, everyone was keen to know whether he would make a run for president in 2008. There was no shaking the question. Every reporter asked it. Nearly every person who approached him on the street asked it. My colleagues at the hospital would stand in my doorway and casually drop the question, probing for some bit of early news. Even Malia, who was six and a half on the day she put on a pink velvet dress and stood next to Barack as he was sworn into the Senate by Dick Cheney, wanted to know. Unlike many of the others, though, our first grader was wise enough to sense how premature it all seemed. Daddy? Are you going to try to be president, she'd asked. Don't you think maybe you should be vice president or something first? I was with Malia on this matter. As a lifelong pragmatist, I would always counsel a slow approach, the methodical checking of boxes. I was a natural-born fan of the long and judicious wait. In this regard, I felt better any time I heard Barack pushing back at his inquisitors with an aw shucks kind of modesty, batting away questions about the presidency, saying that the only thing he was planning was to put his head down and work hard in the Senate. He often reminded people that he was just a low-ranking member of the minority party, a backbench player if there ever was one. And he would sometimes add, he had two kids he needed to raise. But the drum was already beating. It was hard to make it stop. Barack was writing what would become the audacity of hope, thinking through his beliefs and his vision for the country, threshing them into words on his legal pads late at night. He really was content, he told me, to stay where he was, building his influence over time, awaiting his turn to speak inside the deliberative cacophony of the Senate. But then a storm arrived. Hurricane Katrina 
blasted the Gulf Coast of the United States late in August 2005, overwhelming the levees in New Orleans, swamping low-lying regions, stranding people, black people mostly, on the rooftops of their destroyed homes. The aftermath was horrific, with media reports showing hospitals without backup power, distraught families herded into the Superdome, emergency workers hamstrung by a lack of supplies. In the end, some 1,800 people died, and more than half a million others were displaced. A tragedy exacerbated by the ineptitude of the federal government's response. It was a wrenching exposure of our country's structural divides, most especially the intense lopsided vulnerability of African Americans and poor people of all races when things got rough. Where was hope now? I watched the Katrina coverage with a knot in my stomach, knowing that if a disaster hit Chicago, many of my aunts and uncles, cousins and neighbors, would have suffered a similar fate. Barack's reaction was no less emotional. A week after the hurricane, he flew to Houston to join former President George H.W. Bush, along with Bill and Hillary Clinton, who was then a colleague of his in the Senate, spending time with the tens of thousands of New Orleans evacuees who'd sought shelter in the Astrodome there. The experience kindled something in him. That nagging sense, he wasn't yet doing enough. This was the thought I returned to a year or so later, when the drumbeat truly got loud, when the pressure on both of us felt immense. We went about our regular business, but the question of whether Barack would run for president unsettled the air around us. Could he? Will he? Should he? In the summer of 2006, poll respondents filling out open-ended questionnaires were naming him as a presidential possibility, though Hillary Clinton was decidedly the number one pick. By fall, though, Barack's stock had begun to rise in part thanks to the publication of The Audacity of Hope and a slew of media opportunities afforded by the book tour. His poll numbers were suddenly even with or ahead of those of Al Gore and John Kerry, the Democrats' previous two nominees, evidence of his potential. I was aware that he'd been having private conversations with friends, advisors, and prospective donors, signaling to everyone that he was mulling over the idea. But there was one conversation he avoided having, and that was with me. He knew, of course, how I felt. We discussed it obliquely around the edges of other topics. We'd lived with other people's expectations so long that they were almost embedded in every conversation we had. Barack's potential sat with our family at the dinner table. Barack's potential rode along to school with the girls and to work with me. It was there even when we didn't want it to be there adding a strange energy to everything. From my point of view, my husband was doing plenty already. If he was going to even think about running for president, I'd hoped he'd take the prudent path, preparing slowly, 
biding his time in the Senate and waiting until the girls were older. Until 2016, maybe. Since I'd known him, it seemed to me that Barack had always had his eye on some far-off horizon, on this notion of the world as it should be. Just for once, I wanted him to be content with life as it was. I didn't understand how he could look at Sasha and Malia, now five and eight, with their pigtailed hair and giggly exuberance, and feel any other way. It hurt me sometimes to think that he did. We were riding a seesaw, the two of us, the mister on one side and the missus on the other. We lived in a nice house now, a Georgian brick home on a quiet street in the Kenwood neighborhood, with a wide porch and tall trees in the yard, exactly the kind of place Craig and I used to gape at during Sunday drives in my dad's Buick. I thought often of my father and all he'd invested in us. I wished desperately for him to be alive to see how things were playing out. Craig was profoundly happy now, having finally made a swerve, leaving his career in investment banking and pivoting back to his first love, basketball. After a few years as an assistant at Northwestern, he was now head coach at Brown University in Rhode Island. And he was getting married again to Kelly McCrum, a beautiful down-to-earth college dean of admissions from the East Coast. His two children had grown tall and confident, vibrant advertisements for what the next generation could do. I was a senator's wife, but beyond that, and more important, I had a career that mattered to me. Back in the spring, I'd been promoted to become a vice president at the University of Chicago Medical Center. I'd spent the past couple of years leading the development of a program called the Southside Healthcare Collaborative, which had already connected more than 1,500 patients who turned up in our emergency department with care providers they could see regularly, regardless of whether they could pay or not. My work felt personal. I saw black folks streaming into the ER with issues that had long been neglected, diabetic patients whose circulation issues had gone untended and who now needed a leg amputated, for example, and couldn't help but think of every medical appointment my own father had failed to make for himself, every symptom of his MS he downplayed in order not to make a fuss or cost anyone money or generate paperwork or to spare himself the feeling of being belittled by a wealthy white doctor. I liked my job, and while it wasn't perfect, I also liked my life. With Sasha about to move into elementary school, I felt as though I was at the start of a new phase, on the brink of being able to fire up my ambition again and consider a new set of goals. What would a presidential campaign do? It would hijack all that. I knew enough to understand this ahead of time. Barack and I had been through five campaigns in 11 years already, and each one had forced me to fight a bit harder to hang on to my own priorities. Each one had put a little dent in my soul 
and also in our marriage. A presidential run, I feared, would really bang us up. Barack would be gone far more than he was while serving in Springfield or Washington. Not for half weeks, but full weeks. Not for four to eight week stretches with recesses in between, but for months at a time. What would that do to our family? What would the publicity do to our girls? I did what I could to ignore the whirlwind around Barack, even if it showed no sign of dying down. Cable news pundits were debating his prospects. David Brooks, the conservative columnist at the New York Times, published a surprising sort of just-do-it plea titled Run, Barack, Run. He was recognized nearly everywhere he went now, but I still had the blessing of invisibility. Standing in line at a convenience store one day in October, I spotted the cover of Time magazine and had to turn my head away. It was an extreme close-up of my husband's face next to the headline, Why Barack Obama Could Be the Next President. What I hoped was that at some point Barack himself would put an end to the speculation, declaring himself out of contention and directing the media gaze elsewhere. But he didn't do this. He wouldn't do this. He wanted to run. He wanted it, and I didn't. Anytime a reporter asked whether he joined the race for president, Barack would demur, saying simply, I'm still thinking about it. It's a family decision, which was code for only if Michelle says I can. On nights when Barack was in Washington, I lay alone in bed, feeling as if it were me against the world. I wanted Barack for our family. Everyone else seemed to want him for our country. He had his council of advisors, David Axelrod and Robert Gibbs, the two campaign strategists who'd been critical in getting him elected to the Senate. David Pluff, another consultant from Axelrod's firm, his chief of staff, Pete Rouse, and Valerie, all of whom were cautiously supportive. But they'd also make clear that there was no half-doing a presidential campaign. Barack and I both would need to be fully on board the demands on him would be unimaginable. Without missing a beat in his Senate duties, he'd have to build and maintain a coast-to-coast campaign operation, develop a policy platform, and also raise an astonishing amount of money. My job would be not just to give tacit support to the campaign, but to participate in it. I'd be expected to make myself and our children available for viewing to smile approvingly and shake a lot of hands. Everything would be about him now, I realized, in support of this larger cause. Even Craig, who'd so avidly protected me since the day I was born, had gotten swept up in the excitement of a potential run. He called me one evening, explicitly to make a plug. Listen, Mish he said, speaking as he often did in basketball terms. I know you're worried about this, but if Barack's got a shot, he's got to take it. 
You can see that, right? It was on me. It was all on me. Was I afraid or just tired? For better or worse, I'd fallen in love with a man with a vision who was optimistic without being naive, undaunted by conflict, and intrigued by how complicated the world was. He was strangely unintimidated by how much work there was to be done. He was dreading the thought of leaving me and the girls for long stretches, he said, but he also kept reminding me of how secure our love was. We can handle this, right? He said, holding my hand one night as we sat in his upstairs study and finally began to really talk about it. We're strong and we're smart, and so are our kids. We'll be just fine. We can afford this. What he meant was yes, a campaign would be costly. There were things we'd give up time, togetherness, our privacy. It was too early to predict exactly how much would be required, but surely it would be a lot. For me, it was like spending money without knowing your bank balance. How much resilience did we have? What was our limit? What would be left in the end? The uncertainty alone felt like a threat, a thing that could drown us. I'd been raised, after all, in a family that believed in forethought, that ran fire drills at home and showed up early to everything. Growing up in a working class community and with a disabled parent, I'd learned that planning and vigilance mattered a lot. It could mean the difference between stability and poverty. The margins always felt narrow. One missed paycheck could leave you without electricity. One missed homework assignment could put you behind and possibly out of college. Having lost a fifth grade classmate to a house fire, having watched Suzanne die before she'd had a chance to really be an adult, I'd learned that the world could be brutal and random, that hard work didn't always assure positive outcomes. My sense of this would only grow in the future. But even now, sitting in our quiet brick home on our quiet street, I couldn't help but want to protect what we had to look after our girls and forget the rest, at least until they'd grown up a bit more. And yet, there was a flip side to this, and Barack and I both knew it well. We'd watched. The devastation of Katrina from our privileged remove. We'd seen parents hoisting their babies above floodwaters, and African American families trying to hold themselves together in the dehumanizing depravity that existed in the Superdome. My various jobs, from City Hall to public allies to the university, had helped me see how hard it could be for some people. To secure things like basic health care and housing. I'd seen the flimsy line that separated getting by and going under. Barack, for his part, has spent plenty of time listening to laid off factory workers, young military veterans trying to manage lifelong disabilities, mothers fed up with sending their kids to poorly functioning schools. We understood, in other words, 
how ridiculously fortunate we were, and we both felt an obligation not to be complacent. Knowing that I really had no choice but to consider it, I finally opened the door and allowed the possibility of this thing inside. Barack and I talked the idea through, not once, but many times, right up to and through our Christmas trip to visit Toot in Hawaii. Some of our conversations were angry and tearful, some of them earnest and positive. It was the extension of a dialogue we'd been having over 17 years already. Who were we? What mattered to us? What could we do? In the end, it boiled down to this. I said yes because I believed that Barack could be a great president. He was self-assured in ways that few people are. He had the intellect and discipline to do the job, the temperament to endure everything that would make it hard, and the rare degree of empathy that would keep him tuned carefully to the country's needs. He was also surrounded by good, smart people who were ready to help. Who was I to stop him? How could I put my own needs and even those of our girls in front of the possibility that Barack could be the kind of president who helped make life better for millions of people? I said yes because I loved him and had faith in what he could do. I said yes, though I was at the same time harboring a painful thought one I wasn't ready to share. I supported him in campaigning, but I also felt certain he wouldn't make it all the way. He spoke so often and so passionately of healing our country's divisions, appealing to a set of higher ideals he believed were innate in most people. But I'd seen enough of the divisions to temper my own hopes. Barack was a black man in America after all. I didn't really think he could win. 16. Almost from the minute we agreed it would be okay for him to run, Barack became a kind of human blur, a pixelated version of the guy I knew, a man who quite suddenly had to be everywhere all at once driven by and beholden to the force of the larger effort. There was not quite a year until the primary contest got started, beginning in Iowa. Barack had to quickly hire staff, woo the types of donors who could write big checks, and figure out how to introduce his candidacy in the most resonant way possible. The goal was to get on people's radar and stay there right through Election Day. Campaigns could be won and lost on their earliest moves. The whole operation would be overseen by the two deeply invested Davids, Axelrod and Pluff. Ax, as everyone called him, had a soft voice, a courtly manner, and a brushy mustache that ran the length of his top lip. He'd worked as a reporter for the Chicago Tribune before turning to political consulting and would lead the messaging and media for Barack. Pluff, who at 39 had a boyish smile and a deep love of numbers and strategy, 
would manage the overall campaign. The team was growing rapidly, with experienced people recruited to look after the finances and handle advance planning on events. Someone had the wisdom to suggest that Barack might want to formally announce his candidacy in Springfield. Everyone agreed that it would be a fitting middle of America backdrop for what we hoped would be a different kind of campaign, one led from the ground up, largely by people new to the political process. This was the cornerstone of Barack's hope. His years as a community organizer had shown him how many people felt unheard and disenfranchised within our democracy. Project Vote had helped him see what was possible if those people were empowered to participate. His run for president would be an even bigger test of that idea. Would his message work on a larger scale? Would enough people come out to help? Barack knew he was an unusual candidate. He wanted to run an unusual campaign. The plan became for Barack to make his announcement from the steps of the old state capitol, a historic landmark that would, of course, be more visually appealing than any convention center or arena. But it also put him outdoors, in the middle of Illinois, in the middle of February, when temperatures were often below freezing. The decision struck me as well-intentioned, but generally impractical and it did little to build my confidence in the campaign team that now more or less ran our lives. I was unhappy about it, imagining the girls and me trying to smile through blowing snow or frigid winds, Barack trying to appear invigorated instead of chilled. I thought about all the people who would decide to stay home that day rather than stand out in the cold for hours. I was a Midwesterner, I knew the weather could ruin everything. I knew also that Barack couldn't afford an early flop. About a month earlier, Hillary Clinton had declared her own candidacy, brimming with confidence. John Edwards, Kerry's former running mate from North Carolina, had launched his campaign a month prior to that, speaking in front of a New Orleans home that had been ravaged by Hurricane Katrina. In all, a total of nine Democrats would throw their hats into the ring. The field would be crowded and the competition fierce. Barack's team was gambling with an outdoor announcement, but it wasn't my place to second-guess. I insisted that the advance team at least equip Barack's podium with a heater to keep him from appearing too uncomfortable on the national news. Otherwise, I held my tongue. I had little control anymore. Rallies were being planned, strategies mapped, volunteers mustered. The campaign was underway, and there was no parachuting out of it. In what was probably a subconscious act of self-preservation, my focus shifted towards something I could control, which was finding acceptable headwear for Malia and Sasha for the announcement. I'd found new winter coats for them, but I'd forgotten all about hats until it was nearly too late. As the announcement day neared, 
I began making harried after-work trips to the department stores at Water Tower Place, rifling through the dwindling mid-season supply of winter wear, hunting the clearance racks in vain. It wasn't long before I became less concerned with making sure Malia and Sasha looked like the daughters of a future president than making sure they looked like they at least had a mother. Finally, on what was probably my third outing, I found some. Two knit hats, white for Malia and pink for Sasha, both in a women's size small, which ended up fitting snugly on Malia's head, but drooping loosely around Sasha's little five-year-old face. They weren't high fashion, but they looked cute enough. And more important, they'd keep the girls warm, regardless of what the Illinois winter had in store. It was a small triumph, but a triumph nonetheless. And it was mine. Announcement Day, February 10, 2007, turned out to be a bright, cloudless morning. The kind of sparkling midwinter Saturday that looks a lot better than it actually feels. The air temperature sat at about 12 degrees, with a light breeze blowing. Our family had arrived in Springfield the previous day, staying in a three-room suite at a downtown hotel, on a floor that had been rented out entirely by the campaign to house a couple of dozen of our family and friends who traveled down from Chicago as well. Already, we were beginning to experience the pressures of a national campaign, Barack's announcement had inadvertently been scheduled for the same day as the State of the Black Union, a forum organized each year by the public broadcasting personality, Tavis Smiley, who was evidently angry about it. He'd made his displeasure clear to the campaign staff, suggesting that the move showed a disregard for the African-American community and would end up hurting Barack's candidacy. I was surprised that the first shots fired at us came from within the black community. Then, just a day ahead of the announcement, Rolling Stone published a piece on Barack that included the reporter making a visit to Trinity Church in Chicago. We were still members there, though our attendance had dropped off significantly after the girls were born. The piece quoted from an angry and inflammatory sermon the Reverend Jeremiah Wright had delivered many years earlier regarding the treatment of blacks in our country, intimating that Americans cared more about maintaining white supremacy than they did about God. While the profile itself was largely positive, the cover line of the magazine read, The Radical Roots of Barack Obama which we knew would quickly get weaponized by the conservative media. It was a disaster in the making, especially on the eve of the campaign launch, and especially because Reverend Wright was scheduled to lead the invocation ahead of Barack's speech. Barack had to make a difficult call, phoning the pastor and asking whether he'd be willing to step back from the spotlight, giving us a private backstage blessing instead. Reverend Wright's feelings were hurt, Barack said, but he also seemed to understand the stakes, leading us to believe that he'd be supportive without dwelling on his disappointment. That morning, it hit me that we'd reached the no-turning-back moment, 
we were literally now putting our family in front of the American people. The day was meant to be a massive kickoff party for the campaign, one for which everyone had spent weeks preparing. And like every paranoid host, I couldn't shake the fear that when the time finally came, no one would show up. Unlike Barack, I could be a doubter. I still held on to the worries I'd had since childhood. What if we're not good enough? Maybe everything we'd been told was an exaggeration. Maybe Barack was less popular than his people believed. Maybe it just wasn't yet his time. I tried to shove all doubts aside as we arrived through a side entrance to a staging area inside the old capital, still unable to see what was going on outside. So that I could get a briefing from the staff, I handed Sasha and Malia off to my mother and Kay Wilson, Mama Kay, a former mentor of Barack's who had in recent years stepped into the role of second grandmother to our girls. The crowd was looking good, I was told. People had started gathering before dawn. The plan was for Barack to walk out first, and then the girls and I would join him a few moments later on the platform, climbing a few stairs before turning to wave at the crowd. I'd made it clear already that we would not stay on stage for his 20-minute address. It was too much to ask two little kids to sit still and pretend to be interested. If they looked at all bored, if either one sneezed or started fidgeting, it would do nothing for Barack's cause. The same went for me. I knew the stereotype I was meant to inhabit, the immaculately groomed doll wife with a painted-on smile, gazing bright-eyed at her husband as if hanging on his every word. This was not me and never would be. I could be supportive, but I couldn't be a robot. Following the briefing and a moment of prayer with Reverend Wright, Barack walked out to greet the audience. His appearance met with a roar I could hear from inside the Capitol. I went back to find Sasha and Malia, beginning to feel truly nervous. Are you girls ready? I said. Mommy, I'm hot, Sasha said, tearing off her pink hat. Oh, sweetie, you've got to keep that on. It's freezing outside. I grabbed the hat and fitted it back on her head. But we're not outside. We're inside, she said. This was Sasha, our round-faced little truth-teller. I couldn't argue with her logic. Instead, I glanced at one of the staffers nearby, trying to telegraph a message to a young person who almost certainly didn't have kids of her own. Dear God, if we don't get this thing started now, we're going to lose these two. In an act of mercy, she nodded and motioned us toward the entrance. It was time. I'd been to a fair number of Barack's political events by now and had seen him interact many times with big groups of constituents. I'd been at campaign kickoffs, fundraisers, and election night parties. I'd seen audiences filled with old friends and longtime supporters. But Springfield was something else entirely. My nerves left me the moment we stepped on stage. I was focused completely on Sasha, 
making sure she was smiling and not about to trip over her own booted feet. Look up, sweetie, I said, holding her hand. Smile. Malia was out ahead of us already, her chin high and her smile giant as she caught up with her father and waved. It wasn't until we ascended the stairs that I was finally able to take in the crowd, or at least try to. The rush was enormous. More than 15,000 people, it turned out, had come that day. They were spread out in a 300-degree panorama, spilling out from the Capitol, enveloping us with their enthusiasm. I'd never been one who'd choose to spend a Saturday at a political rally. The appeal of standing in an open gym or high school auditorium to hear lofty promises and platitudes never made much sense to me. Why, I wondered, were all these people here? Why would they layer on extra socks and stand for hours in the cold? I could imagine people bundling up and waiting to hear a band whose every lyric they could sing, or enduring a snowy Super Bowl for a team they'd followed since childhood. But politics? This was unlike anything I'd experienced before. It began dawning on me that we were the band. We were the team about to take the field. What I felt more than anything was a sudden sense of responsibility. We owed something to each one of these people. We were asking for an investment of their faith. And now we had to deliver on what they'd brought us. Carrying that enthusiasm through 20 months and 50 states and right into the White House. I hadn't believed it was possible, but maybe now I did. This was the call and response of democracy, I realized. A contract forged person by person. You show up for us, and we'll show up for you. I had 15,000 more reasons to want Barack to win. I was fully committed now. Our whole family was committed even if it felt a little scary. I couldn't yet begin to imagine what lay ahead. But there we were, out there, the four of us standing before the crowd and the cameras, naked but for the coats on our backs and a slightly too big pink hat on a tiny head. Hillary Clinton was a serious and formidable opponent. In poll after poll, she held a commanding lead among the country's potential Democratic primary voters, with Barack lagging 10 or 20 points behind and Edwards sitting a few points behind Barack. Democratic voters knew the Clintons, and they were hungry for a win. Far fewer people could even pronounce my husband's name. All of us, Barack and I as well as the campaign team, understood long before his announcement that regardless of his political gifts, a black man named Barack Hussein Obama would always be a long shot. It was a hurdle we faced within the black community, too. Similar to how I'd initially felt about Barack's candidacy, plenty of black folks couldn't bring themselves to believe that my husband had a real chance of winning. 
Many had yet to believe that a black man could win in predominantly white areas, which meant they'd often go for the safer bet, the next best thing. One facet of the challenge for Barack was to shift black voters away from their long-standing allegiance to Bill Clinton, who'd shown unusual ease with the African-American community and formed many connections there as a result. Barack had already built goodwill with a diverse range of constituents throughout Illinois, including in the rural white farm areas in the southern part of the state. He'd already proven that he could reach all demographics, but many people didn't yet understand this about him. The scrutiny of Barack would be extra intense, the lens always magnified. We knew that as a black candidate, he couldn't afford any sort of stumble. He'd have to do everything twice as well. For Barack and for every candidate not named Clinton, the only hope for winning the nomination was to raise a lot of money and start spending it fast, hoping that a strong performance in the earliest primaries would give the campaign enough momentum to slingshot past the Clinton machine. Our hopes were pinned on Iowa. We had to win it or otherwise stand down. Mostly rural and more than 90% white, it was a curious state to serve as the nation's political bellwether and was maybe not the most obvious place for a black guy based in Chicago to try to define himself. But this was the reality. Iowa went first in the presidential primaries and had since 1972. Members of both parties cast their votes at precinct-level meetings, caucuses, in the middle of the winter, and the whole nation paid attention. If you got yourself noticed in Des Moines and Dubuque, your candidacy automatically mattered in Orlando and L.A. We knew, too, that if we made a good showing in Iowa, it would send the message to black voters nationally that it was okay to start believing. The fact that Barack was a senator in neighboring Illinois, giving him some name recognition and a familiarity with the area's broader issues, had convinced David Pluff that we had at least a small advantage in Iowa, one upon which we would now try to capitalize. This meant that I would be going to Iowa almost weekly, catching early morning United flights out of O'Hare, making three or four campaign stops in a day. I told Pluff early on that while I was happy to campaign, part of the deal had to be that they'd get me back to Chicago in time to put the girls to bed at night. My mother had agreed to cut down her hours at work so that she could be around for the kids more when I was traveling. Barack, too, would be logging many hours in Iowa, though we'd rarely show up there or anywhere together. I was now what they call a surrogate for the candidate, a stand-in who could meet with voters at a community center in Iowa City while he campaigned in Cedar Falls or raised money in New York. Only when it really seemed important would the campaign staff put the two of us in the same room. Barack now traveled with a swarm of attentive aides, and I was allotted funds to hire a two-person staff of my own, 
which, given that I planned to volunteer only two or three days per week to the campaign, seemed like plenty to me. I had no idea what I needed in terms of support. Melissa Winter, who was my first hire and would later become my chief of staff, had been recommended by Barack's scheduler. She'd worked in Senator Joe Lieberman's office on Capitol Hill and had been involved in his 2000 vice presidential campaign. I interviewed Melissa, blonde, bespectacled, and in her late 30s, in our living room in Chicago, and was impressed by her irreverent wit and almost obsessive devotion to detail, which I knew would be important as I tried to integrate campaigning into my already busy schedule at the hospital. She was sharp, highly efficient, and quick-moving, She'd also been around politics enough to be unfazed by its intensity and pace. Just a few years younger than I was, Melissa also felt more like a peer and an ally than the much younger campaign workers I'd encountered. She would become someone I trusted, as I do still to this day, with literally every part of my life. Katie McCormick Lelleveld rounded out our little trio by coming on board as my communications director. Not yet 30, she'd already worked on a presidential campaign and also for Hillary Clinton when she was first lady, which made her experience doubly relevant. Spunky, intelligent, and always perfectly dressed, Katie would be in charge of wrangling reporters and TV crews, making sure our events were well covered, and also thanks to the leather briefcase she kept packed with stain remover, breath mints, a sewing kit, and an extra pair of nylons, that I didn't make a mess of myself as we sprinted between airplanes and events. Over the years, I'd seen news coverage of presidential candidates making their way around Iowa, awkwardly interrupting tables full of unassuming citizens having coffee at diners or posing goofily in front of a full-sized cow carved out of butter, or eating fried whatevers on a stick at the state fair. What was meaningful to voters, and what was just grandstanding, though, I wasn't quite sure. Barack's advisors had tried to demystify Iowa for me, explaining that my mission was primarily to spend time with Democrats in every corner of the state, addressing small groups, energizing volunteers, and trying to win over leaders in the community. Iowans, they say, took their role of political trendsetters seriously. They did their homework on candidates and asked serious policy questions. Accustomed as they were to months of careful courtship, they were not likely to be won over with a smile and a handshake either. Some would hold out for months, I was told expecting a face-to-face conversation with every candidate before finally committing to one. What they didn't tell me was what my message in Iowa was supposed to be. I was given no script, no talking points, no advice. I figured I'd just work it out for myself. My first solo campaign event took place in early April, inside a modest home in Des Moines. A few dozen people had collected in the living room, 
sitting on couches and folding chairs that had been brought in for the occasion, while others sat cross-legged on the floor. As I scanned the room, preparing to speak, what I observed probably shouldn't have surprised me, but it did, at least a little. Laid out on the end tables were the same sorts of white crocheted doilies that my grandmother Shields used to have at her house. I spotted porcelain figurines that looked just like the ones Robbie had kept on her shelves downstairs from us on Euclid Avenue. A man in the front row was smiling at me warmly. I was in Iowa, but I had the distinct feeling of being at home. Iowans, I was realizing, were like Shields's and Robinson's. They didn't suffer fools. They didn't trust people who put on airs. They could sniff out a phony a mile away. My job, I realized, was to be myself, to speak as myself. And so I did. Let me tell you about me. I'm Michelle Obama, raised on the south side of Chicago, in a little apartment on the top floor of a two-story house that felt a lot like this one. My dad was a water pump operator for the city. My mom stayed at home to raise my brother and me. I talked about everything, about my brother and the values we were raised with, about this hotshot lawyer I met at work, the guy who'd stolen my heart with his groundedness and his vision for the world, the man who'd left his socks lying around the house that morning and sometimes snored in his sleep. I told them about how I was keeping my job at the hospital, about how my mother was picking up our girls from school that day. I didn't sugarcoat my feelings about politics. The political world was no place for good people, I said, explaining how I'd been conflicted about whether Barack should run at all, worried about what the spotlight might do to our family. But I was standing before them because I believed in my husband and what he could do. I knew how much he read and how deeply he thought about things. I said that he was exactly the kind of smart, decent president I would choose for this country, even if selfishly, I'd have rather kept him closer to home all these years. As weeks went by, I'd tell the same story. In Davenport, Cedar Rapids, Council Bluffs, in Sioux City, Marshalltown, Muscatine, in bookstores, union halls, a home for aging military veterans, and as the weather warmed up, on front porches and in public parks. The more I told my story, the more my voice settled into itself. I liked my story. I was comfortable telling it. And I was telling it to people who, despite the difference in skin color, reminded me of my family. Postal workers who had bigger dreams, just as Dandy once had. Civic-minded piano teachers like Robbie. Stay-at-home moms who were active in the PTA, like my mother. Blue-collar workers who'd do anything for their families, just like my dad. I didn't need to practice 
or use notes. I said only what I sincerely felt. Along the way, reporters and even some acquaintances began asking me some form of the same question. What was it like to be a 5'11", Ivy League-educated black woman speaking to roomfuls of mostly white Iowans? How odd did that feel? I never liked this question. It always seemed to be accompanied by a sheepish half-smile and the don't-take-this-the-wrong-way inflection that people often use when approaching the subject of race. It was an idea, I felt, that sold us all short, assuming that the differences were all anyone saw. Mainly, I bristled because the question was so antithetical to what I was experiencing and what the people I was meeting seemed to be experiencing, too. The man with a seed corn logo on his breast pocket, the college student in a black and gold pullover, the retiree who'd brought an ice cream bucket full of sugar cookies she'd frosted with our Rising Sun campaign logo. These people found me after my talks, seeming eager to talk about what we shared, to say that their dad had lived with MS too, or that they'd had grandparents just like mine. Many said they'd never gotten involved with politics before, but something about our campaign made them feel it would be worth it. They were planning to volunteer at the local office, they said, and they tried persuading a spouse or a neighbor to come along too. These interactions felt natural, genuine. I found myself hugging people instinctively and getting hugged tightly back. It was around this time that I took Malia to our pediatrician for a well-child visit, which we did every three to six months to keep tabs on the asthma she'd had since she was a baby. The asthma was under control, but the doctor alerted me to something else. Malia's body mass index, a measure of health that factors together height, weight, and age, was beginning to creep up. It wasn't a crisis, he said, but it was a trend to take seriously. If we didn't change some habits, it could become a real problem over time, increasing her risk for high blood pressure and type 2 diabetes. Seeing the stricken look on my face, he assured me that the problem was both common and solvable. The rate of childhood obesity was rising all around the country. He'd seen many examples in his practice, which was made up mostly of working-class African Americans. The news landed like a rock through a stained-glass window. I'd worked so hard to make sure my daughters were happy and whole. What had I done wrong? What kind of mother was I if I hadn't even noticed a change? Talking further with the doctor, I began to see the pattern we were in. With Barack gone all the time, convenience had become the single most important factor in my choices at home. We'd been eating out more. With less time to cook, I often picked up takeout on my way home from work. In the mornings, I packed the girls' lunch boxes with Lunchables and Capri Suns. Weekends usually meant a trip to the McDonald's drive-thru window after ballet or before soccer, 
None of this, our doctor said, was out of the ordinary or even all that terrible in isolation. Too much of it, though, was a real problem. Clearly, something had to change, but I was at a loss about how to make that happen. Every solution seemed to demand more time, time at the grocery store, time in the kitchen, time spent chopping vegetables or slicing the skin off a chicken breast. All this coming right when time felt as if it were already on the verge of extinction in my world. I then remembered a conversation I'd had a few weeks earlier with an old friend I'd bumped into on a plane who'd mentioned that she and her husband had hired a young man named Sam Cass to cook regular healthy meals at her house. By coincidence, it turned out that Barack and I had met Sam years earlier through a different set of friends. I never expected to be the sort of person who hired someone to come into my house and prepare meals for my family. It felt a little bougie, the kind of thing that would elicit a skeptical side-eye from my Southside relatives. Barack, he of the Dotson with the hole in the floor, wasn't hot on the idea either. It didn't fit with his ingrained community organizer frugality, nor the image he wanted to promote as a presidential candidate. But to me, it felt like the only sane choice. Something had to give. No one else could run my programs at the hospital. No one else could campaign as Barack Obama's wife. No one else could fill in as Malia and Sasha's mother at bedtime. But maybe Sam Cass could cook some dinners for us. I hired Sam to come to our house a couple of times a week making a meal we could eat that night and another that I could pull from the refrigerator to heat up the next evening. He was a bit of an outlier in the Obama household, a white 26-year-old with a shiny shaved head and a perpetual five o'clock shadow. But the girls took to his corny jokes as quickly as they took to his cooking. He showed them how to chop carrots and blanch greens shifting our family away from the fluorescent sameness of the grocery store and toward the rhythm of the seasons. He could be reverent about the arrival of fresh peas in springtime or the moment raspberries came ripe in June. He waited until peaches were rich and plump before serving them to the girls, knowing that then they might actually compete with candy. Sam also had an educated perspective on food and health issues, namely how the food industry marketed processed foods to families in the name of convenience and how that was having severe public health consequences. I was intrigued, realizing that it tied into some of what I'd seen while working for the hospital system and to the compromises I'd made myself as a working mother trying to feed her family. One evening, Sam and I spent a couple of hours talking in my kitchen, the two of us batting around ideas about how, if Barack ever managed to win the presidency, I might use my role as first lady to try to address some of these issues. One idea bloomed into another. What if we grew vegetables at the White House and helped advocate for fresh food? What if we then used that as a cornerstone for something bigger? a whole children's health initiative that might help parents avoid some of the pitfalls I'd experienced. We talked until it was late. 
I looked at Sam and let out a sigh. The only problem is, our guy is down by 30 points in the polls, I said as the two of us began to crack up. He's never going to win. It was a dream, but I liked it. When it came to campaigning, each day was another race to be run. I was still trying to cling to some form of normalcy and stability, not just for the girls, but for me. I carried two Blackberries, one for work, the other for my personal life and political obligations, which were now, for better or worse, deeply entwined. My daily phone calls with Barack tended to be short and newsy. Where are you? How's it going? How are the kids? Both of us accustomed now to not speaking of fatigue or our own personal needs. There was no point, because we couldn't attend to them anyway. Life was all about the ticking clock. At work, I was doing what I could to keep up, sometimes checking in with staff at the hospital from the cluttered backseat of a Toyota Corolla belonging to an anthropology student volunteering for the campaign in Iowa or from the quiet corner of a Burger King in Plymouth, New Hampshire. Several months after Barack's announcement in Springfield, and with the support of my colleagues, I decided to scale back to part-time hours, knowing it was the only sustainable way to keep going. On the road, two or three days a week together, Melissa, Katie, and I had become an efficient family, meeting up at the airport in the mornings and hustling through security, where the guards all knew my name. I was recognized more often now, mostly by African-American women who'd call out, Michelle, Michelle, as I walked past them to the gate. Something was changing, so gradually that at first it was hard to register. I sometimes felt as if I were floating through a strange universe, waving at strangers who acted as if they knew me boarding planes that lifted me out of my normal world. I was becoming known, and I was becoming known for being someone's wife and as someone involved with politics, which made it doubly and triply weird. Working a rope line during campaign events had become like trying to stay upright inside a hurricane I'd found with well-meaning, deeply enthusiastic strangers reaching for my hands and touching my hair, people trying to thrust pins, cameras, and babies at me without warning. I'd smile, shake hands, and hear stories, all the while trying to move forward down the line. Ultimately, I'd emerge with other people's lipstick on my cheeks and handprints on my blouse, looking as if I'd just stepped out of a wind tunnel. I had little time to think about it, but quietly I worried that as my visibility, as Barack Obama's wife rose, the other parts of me were dissolving from view. When I spoke to reporters, they rarely asked about my work. They inserted Harvard-educated in their description of me, but generally left it at that. A couple of news outlets had published stories speculating that I'd been promoted at the hospital not due to my own hard work and merit, but because of my husband's growing political stature, which was painful to read. In April, Melissa called me one day at home to let me know about a snarky column written by Maureen Dowd of the New York Times. 
In it, she referred to me as a princess of South Chicago, suggesting that I was emasculating Barack when I spoke publicly about how he didn't pick up his socks or put the butter back in the fridge. For me, it had always been important that people see Barack as a human and not as some otherworldly savior. Maureen Dowd would have preferred, apparently, that I adopt the painted-on smile and the adoring gaze. I found it odd and sad that such a harsh critique would come from another professional woman, someone who had not bothered to get to know me, but was now trying to shape my story in a cynical way. I tried not to take this stuff personally, but sometimes it was hard not to. With every campaign event, every article published, every sign we might be gaining ground, we became slightly more exposed, more open to attack. Crazy rumors swirled about Barack, that he'd been schooled in a radical Muslim madrasa and sworn into the Senate on a Quran, that he refused to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, that he wouldn't put his hand over his heart during the national anthem, that he had a close friend who was a domestic terrorist from the 1970s. The falsehoods were routinely debunked by reputable news sources, but still blazed through anonymous email chains, forwarded not just by basement conspiracy theorists, but also by uncles and colleagues and neighbors who couldn't separate fact from fiction online. Barack's safety was something I didn't want to think about, let alone discuss. So many of us had been brought up with assassinations on the news at night. The Kennedys had been shot. Martin Luther King Jr. had been shot. Ronald Reagan had been shot. John Lennon had been shot. If you drew too much heat, you bore a certain risk. But then again, Barack was a black man. The risk for him was nothing new. He could get shot just going to the gas station, I sometimes tried to remind people when they brought it up. Beginning in May, Barack had been assigned Secret Service protection. It was the earliest a presidential candidate had been given a protective detail ever, a full year and a half before he could even become president-elect, which said something about the nature and the seriousness of threats against him. Barack now traveled in sleek black SUVs provided by the government and was trailed by a team of suited, earpieced men and women with guns. At home, an agent stood guard on our front porch. For my part, I rarely felt unsafe. As I continued to travel, I was managing to pull in bigger crowds. If I'd once met with 20 people at a time at low-key house parties, I was now speaking to hundreds in a high school gym. The Iowa staff reported that my talks tended to yield a lot of pledges of support measured and signed supporter cards, which the campaign collected and followed up with meticulously. At some point, the campaign began referring to me as the closer for the way I helped make up minds. Each day brought a new lesson about how to move more efficiently, how not to get slowed down by illness or mess of any kind, 
after being served some questionable food at otherwise charming roadside diners. I learned to value the bland certainty of a McDonald's cheeseburger. On bumpy drives between small towns, I learned how to protect my clothing from spills by seeking out snacks that would crumble rather than drip, knowing that I couldn't be photographed with a dollop of hummus on my dress. I trained myself to limit my water intake, understanding there was rarely time for bathroom breaks on the road. I learned to sleep through the sound of long-haul trucks barreling down the Iowa interstate after midnight. And, as happened at one particularly thin-walled hotel, to ignore a happy couple enjoying their wedding night in the next room. As up and down as I sometimes felt, that first year of campaigning was filled primarily with warm memories and bursts of laughter. As often as I could, I brought Sasha and Malia along with me out on the trail. They were hearty, happy travelers. On a busy day at an outdoor fair in New Hampshire, I'd gone off to give remarks and shake hands with voters, leaving the girls with a campaign staffer to explore the booths and rides before we regrouped for a magazine photo shoot. An hour or so later, I spotted Sasha and panicked. Her cheeks, nose, and forehead had been covered meticulously and comprehensively in black and white face paint. She'd been transformed into a panda bear, and she was thrilled about it. My mind went instantly to the magazine crew waiting for us, the schedule that would now be thrown off. But then I looked back at her little panda face and exhaled. My daughter was cute and content. All I could do was laugh and find the nearest restroom to scrub off the paint. From time to time, we traveled together as a family, all four of us. The campaign rented an RV for a few days in Iowa so that we could do barnstorming tours of small towns, punctuated by rousing games of Uno between stops. We passed an afternoon at the Iowa State Fair riding bumper cars and shooting water soakers to win stuffed animals, as photographers jostled for position, shoving their lenses in our faces. The real fun started after Barack got swept off to his next destination, leaving the girls and me free from the tornado of press, security, and staff that now moved with him, stirring up everything in its wake. Once he'd left, we got to explore the midway on our own, the air rushing past us as we rocketed down the giant yellow slide on burlap sacks. Week after week, I returned to Iowa, watching through the plane window as the seasons changed, as the earth slowly greened and the soybean and corn crops grew in ruler-straight lines. I loved the tidy geometry of those fields, the pops of color that turned out to be barns, the flat county highways that ran straight to the horizon. I had come to love the state, even if despite all our work, it was looking like we might not be able to win there. For the better part of a year now, Barack and his team had poured resources into Iowa. But according to most polls, 
he was still running second or third behind Hillary and John Edwards. The race looked to be close, but Barack was losing. Nationally, the picture appeared worse. Barack consistently trailed Hillary by a full 15 or 20 points, a reality I was hit with any time I passed by the cable news blaring in airports or at campaign stop restaurants. Months earlier, I'd become so fed up with the relentless Carnival Barker commentary on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News that I permanently blacklisted those channels during my evenings at home, treating myself instead to a more steadying diet of E and HGTV. At the end of a busy day, I will tell you, there is nothing better than watching a young couple find their dream home in Nashville or some young bride-to-be saying yes to the dress. Quite honestly, I didn't believe the pundits. I wasn't sure about the polls either. In my heart, I was convinced they were wrong. The climate described from inside sterile urban studios was not the one I was encountering in the church halls and rec centers of Iowa. The pundits weren't meeting teams of high school Barack stars who volunteered after football practice or drama club. They weren't holding hands with a white grandmother who imagined a better future for her mixed-race grandchildren. Nor did they seem aware of the proliferating giant that was our field organization. We were in the process of building a massive grassroots campaign network, ultimately 200 staffers in 37 offices, the largest in the history of the Iowa caucuses. We had youth on our side. Our organization was powered by the idealism and energy of 22 to 25-year-olds who had dropped everything and driven themselves to Iowa to join the campaign each one carrying some permutation of the gene that had compelled Barack to take the organizing job in Chicago all those years ago. They had a spirit and skill that hadn't yet been accounted for in the polls. I felt it every time I visited, a surge of hope that came from interacting with true believers who were spending four or five hours every evening knocking on doors and calling voters building networks of supporters in even the tiniest and most conservative towns, while learning by heart the intricacies of my husband's stance on hog confinements or his plan to fix the immigration system. To me, the young people managing our field offices represented the promise of the coming generation of leaders. They weren't jaded, and now they'd been galvanized and united. They were connecting voters more directly to their democracy, whether through the field office down the street or a website through which they could organize their own meetings and phone banks. As Barack often said, what we were doing wasn't just about a single election. It was about making politics better for the future, less money-driven, more accessible, and ultimately more hopeful. Even if we didn't end up winning, we were making progress that mattered. One way or another, their work would count.
As the weather began to turn cold again, Barack knew he had basically one last chance to change up the race in Iowa. And that was by making a strong showing at the Jefferson-Jackson Dinner, an annual Democratic ritual in every state. In Iowa, during a presidential election, it was held in early November, about eight weeks ahead of the January caucuses and covered by the national media. The premise was that every candidate gave a speech with no notes and no teleprompter and also tried to bring along as many supporters as possible. It was, in essence, a giant and competitive pep rally. For months, the cable news commentators had doubted that Iowans would stand up for Barack at caucus time, insinuating that as dynamic and unusual a candidate as he was, he still wouldn't manage to convert the enthusiasm into votes. The crowd at the Jefferson-Jackson dinner was our answer to this. About 3,000 of our supporters had driven in from all over the state, showing that we were both organized and active, stronger than anyone thought. On stage that night, John Edwards took a shot at Clinton, speaking in veiled terms about sincerity and trustworthiness being important. Grinning, Joe Biden acknowledged the impressive and noisy turnout of Obama supporters with a sardonic, Hello, Chicago. Hillary, who was fighting a cold, also used the opportunity to go after Barack. Change is just a word, she said, if you don't have the strength and experience to make it happen. Barack was the last to speak that night, delivering a rousing defense of his central message, that our country had arrived at a defining moment, a chance to step beyond not just the fear and failures of the Bush administration, but the polarized way politics had been waged long before, including, of course, during the Clinton administration. I don't want to spend the next year or the next four years refighting the same fights that we had in the 1990s, he said. I don't want to pit red America against blue America. I want to be the president of the United States of America. The auditorium thundered. I watched from the floor with huge pride. America, our moment is now, Barack said. Our moment is now. His performance that night gave the campaign exactly what it needed, catapulting him forward in the race. He took the lead in about half the Iowa polls and was only gaining steam as the caucuses approached. In the days after Christmas, with just a week or so left in the Iowa campaign, it seemed as if half of the South Side had migrated to the deep freeze of Des Moines. My mother and Mama Kay showed up. My brother and Kelly came bringing their kids. Sam Cass was there. Valerie, who joined the campaign earlier in the fall as one of Barack's advisors, was there, along with Susan and my posse of girlfriends and their husbands and children. I was touched when colleagues from the hospital showed up, friends of ours from Sidley and Austin, law professors who taught with Barack. And in step, with the use-every-moment ethic of the campaign, they all signed up to help make the final push. 
reporting to a local field office, knocking on doors in zero-degree weather, talking up a rock, and reminding people to caucus. The campaign was further reinforced by hundreds of others who traveled to Iowa from around the country for the final week, staying in the spare bedrooms of local supporters, heading out each day into even the smallest towns and down the most tucked away of gravel roads. I myself was barely present in Des Moines, doing five or six events a day that kept me moving back and forth across the state, traveling in a rented van with Melissa and Katie, driven by a rotating crew of volunteers. Barack was doing the same, his voice beginning to grow hoarse. Regardless of how many miles we had to cover, I made sure to be back at the Residence Inn in West Des Moines, our home base hotel, each night in time for Malia and Sasha's 8 o'clock bedtime. They, of course, barely seemed to notice I wasn't around, having been surrounded by cousins and friends and babysitters all day long, playing games in the hotel room and going on excursions around town. One night I opened the door, hoping to flop on the bed for a few moments of silence, only to find our room strewn with kitchen utensils. There were rolling pins on the bedspread, dirty cutting boards on the small table, kitchen shears on the floor. The lampshades in the television screen were covered with a light dusting of, was that flour? Sam taught us to make pasta, Malia announced. We got a little carried away. I laughed. I'd been worried about how the girls would handle their first Christmas break away from their great-grandmother in Hawaii. But blessedly, a bag of flour in Des Moines appeared to be a fine substitute for a beach towel in Waikiki. Several days later, a Thursday, the caucuses arrived. Barack and I dropped into a downtown Des Moines food court over lunch and later made visits to various caucus sites to greet as many voters as we could. Late that evening, we joined a group of friends and family at dinner, thanking them for their support during what had been a nutty 11 months since the announcement in Springfield. I left the meal early to return to my hotel room in time to prepare, win or lose, for Barack's speech later that night. Within moments, Katie and Melissa burst in with fresh news from the campaign's war room. We won! We were wild with joy, shouting so loudly that the Secret Service rapped on our door to make sure something wasn't wrong. On one of the coldest nights of the year, a record number of Iowans had fanned out to their local caucuses, almost double the turnout from four years earlier. Barack had won among whites, blacks, and young people. More than half of the attendees had never participated in a caucus before, and that group likely helped secure Barack's victory. The cable news anchors had finally made their way to Iowa and were now singing the praises of this political wonderkin who'd comfortably bested the Clinton machine, as well as a former vice presidential nominee. That night at Barack's victory speech, as the four of us, Barack, me, Malia, Sasha, stood on stage at Hy-Vee Hall, 
I felt great, even a little chastened. Maybe, I thought to myself, everything Barack had been talking about for all those years really was possible. All those drives to Springfield, all his frustrations about not making a big enough impact, all his idealism, his unusual and earnest belief that people were capable of moving past the things that divided them, that in the end politics could work. Maybe he'd been right all along. We'd accomplished something historic, something monumental. Not just Barack, not just me, but Melissa and Katie and Pluff and Axelrod and Valerie and every young staffer, every volunteer, every teacher and farmer and retiree and high schooler who stood up that night for something new. It was after midnight when Barack and I went to the airport to leave Iowa, knowing we wouldn't be back for months. The girls and I were headed home to Chicago, returning to work and school. Barack was flying to New Hampshire, where the primary was less than a week away. Iowa had changed us all. Iowa had given me, in particular, real faith. Our mandate now was to share it with the rest of the country. In the coming days, our Iowa field organizers would fan out to other states, to Nevada and South Carolina, to New Mexico, Minnesota, and California, to continue spreading the message that had now been proven that change was really possible. 17. When I was in first grade, a boy in my class punched me in the face one day, his fist coming like a comet, full force and out of nowhere. We'd been lining up to go to lunch, all of us discussing whatever felt urgent just then to six- and seven-year-olds, who was the fastest runner or why crayon colors had such weird names, when blam, I got whacked. I don't know why. I've forgotten the boy's name, but I remember staring at him dumbfounded and in pain, my lower lip already swelling, my eyes hot with tears. Too shocked to be angry, I ran home to my mom. The boy got a talking to from our teacher. My mother went over to school to personally lay eyes on the kid, wanting to assess what kind of threat he posed. Southside, who must have been over our house that day, got his grandfatherly hackles up and insisted on going over with her as well. I was not privy to it, but some sort of conversation between adults took place. Some type of punishment was meted out. I received a shame-faced apology from the boy and was instructed not to worry about him further. That boy was just scared and angry about things that had nothing to do with you, my mother told me later in our kitchen as she stirred dinner on the stove. She shook her head as if to suggest she knew more than she was willing to share. He's dealing with a whole lot of problems of his own. This was how we talked about bullies. When I was a kid, it was easy to grasp. Bullies were scared people hiding inside scary people. I'd see it in Dee Dee, the tough girl on my neighborhood block, 
and even in Dandy, my own grandfather, who could be rude and pushy even with his own wife. They lashed out because they felt overwhelmed. You avoided them if you could and stood up to them if you had to. According to my mother, who would probably want some sort of live and let live slogan carved on her headstone, the key was to never let a bully's insults or aggressions get to you personally. If you did, well, then you could really get hurt. Only later in life would this become a real challenge for me. Only when I was in my early 40s and trying to help get my husband elected president would I think back to that day in the lunch line in first grade, remembering how confusing it was to be ambushed, how much it hurt to get socked in the face with no warning at all. I spent much of 2008 trying not to worry about the punches. I'll begin by jumping ahead to a happy memory from that year, because I do have many of them. We visited Butte, Montana on the 4th of July, which happened to be Malia's 10th birthday and about four months ahead of the general election. Butte is a hardy, historic copper mining town set down in the brushy southwestern corner of Montana with the dark ridgeline of the Rocky Mountains visible in the distance. Butte was a toss-up town in what our campaign hoped could be a toss-up state. Montana had gone to George W. Bush in the last election, but had also elected a Democratic governor. It seemed like a good place for Barack to visit. More than ever, there were calculations involved in how Barack spent every minute of every day. He was being watched, measured, evaluated. People took note of which states he visited, which diner he showed up at for breakfast, what kind of meat he ordered to go with his eggs. About 25 members of the press traveled with him continuously now, filling the back of the campaign plane, filling the quarters and breakfast rooms of small-town hotels, trailing him from stop to stop, their pins immortalizing everything. If a presidential candidate caught a cold, it got reported. If someone got an expensive haircut or asked for Dijon mustard at a TGI Fridays, as Barack had naively done years earlier, meriting an eventual headline in the New York Times, it would get reported and then parsed a hundred ways on the Internet. Was the candidate weak? Was he a snob, a phony? A true American? This was part of the process we understood, a test to see who had the medal to hold up as both a leader and a symbol for the country itself. It was like having your soul x-rayed every day, scanned and rescanned for any sign of fallibility. You didn't get elected if you didn't first submit to the full-bore scrutiny of the American gaze which ran itself over your entire history, including your social associations, professional choices, and tax returns. And that gaze was arguably more intense and open to manipulation than ever. We were just coming into an age where clicks were being measured and monetized. Facebook had only recently gone mainstream. Twitter was relatively new. Most American adults owned a cell phone, and most cell phones had a camera. We were standing at the edge of something I'm not sure any of us yet fully understood, 
Barack was no longer just trying to win the support of Democratic voters. He was now courting all of America, following the Iowa caucuses in a process that was at times as punishing and ugly as it was heartening and defining. Barack and Hillary Clinton had spent the winter and spring of 2008 slogging it out in every state and territory, battling vote by hard-earned vote for the privilege of becoming a boundary-breaking candidate. John Edwards, Joe Biden, and the other contenders had all dropped out by the end of January. The two candidates had tested each other mightily, with Barack opening up a small but ultimately decisive lead midway through February. Is he president now? Malia would ask me sometimes over the months that followed as we stood on one stage or another, with celebratory music blasting around us, her young mind unable to grasp anything but the larger purpose. Okay, now is he president? No, honey, not yet. It wasn't until June that Hillary acknowledged that she lacked the delegate count to win. Her delay in conceding had wasted precious campaign resources, preventing Barack from being able to reorient the battle toward his Republican opponent, John McCain. The longtime Arizona senator had become the Republican Party's presumptive nominee all the way back in March and was running as a maverick war hero with a history of bipartisanship and a deep experience in national security, the implication being that he'd lead differently than George W. Bush. We were in Butte on the 4th of July with twin purposes, because nearly everything had a twin purpose now. Barack had spent the previous four days campaigning in Missouri, Ohio, Colorado, and North Dakota. There was little time to waste by having him come off the campaign trail to celebrate Malia's birthday, and he couldn't slip out of voters' view on what was the country's most symbolic holiday. So instead, we flew to him for what would be a sort of attempt to have it both ways, a family day spent mostly in full view of the public. Barack's half-sister Maya and her husband Conrad came with us, along with their daughter Suhaila, a cute little four-year-old. Any parent of a child born on a major holiday knows that there's already a certain line to be walked between an individual celebration and more universal festivities. The good people of Butte seemed to get it. There were happy birthday Malia signs taped inside the windows of storefronts along Main Street. Bystanders shouted out their good wishes to her over the pounding of bass drums and flutes piping Yankee Doodle as our family watched the town's Fourth of July parade from a set of bleachers. The people we met were kind to the girls and respectful to us, even when confessing that voting for a Democrat would be a half-crazy departure from tradition. Later that day, the campaign hosted a picnic in an open field with views of the spiny mountains marking the Continental Divide. The gathering was meant to be a rally for several hundred of our local supporters, as well as a kind of casual birthday celebration for Malia. I was moved by all the people who turned out to meet us, but at the same time I was feeling something more intimate and urgent that had nothing to do with where we were. I was struck that day by the gobsmacked tenderness 
that comes with being a parent, the weird telescoping of time that happens when you notice suddenly that your babies are half-grown, their limbs going from pudgy to lean, their eyes getting wise. For me, the 4th of July, 2008, was the most significant threshold we'd crossed. Ten years ago, Barack and I had shown up on the labor and delivery floor, believing that we knew a lot about the world when truly we hadn't yet known a thing. So much of the last decade had been about trying to strike a balance between my family and my work, figuring out how to be loving and present for Malia and Sasha, while also trying to be decent at my job. But the axis had shifted. I was now trying to balance parenting with something altogether different and more confusing. Politics, America, Barack's quest to do something important. The magnitude of what was happening in Barack's life, the demands of the campaign, the spotlight on our family, all seemed to be growing quickly. After the Iowa caucuses, I decided to take a leave of absence from my position at the hospital, knowing that it would be impossible really to stay on and be effective. The campaign was slowly consuming everything. I'd been too busy after Iowa to even go over and box up the things in my office or say any sort of proper goodbye. I was a full-time mother and wife now, albeit a wife with a cause and a mother who wanted to guard her kids against getting swallowed up by that cause. It had been painful to step away from my work, but there was no choice. My family needed me, and that mattered more. And so here I was at a campaign picnic in Montana, leading a group of mostly strangers and singing happy birthday to Malia, who sat smiling on the grass with a burger on her plate. Voters saw our daughters as sweet, I knew, and our family's closeness as endearing. But I did think often of how all this appeared to our daughters, what their view was like looking outward. I tried to tamp down any guilt. We had a real birthday party planned for the following weekend, one involving a heap of Malia's friends sleeping over at our house in Chicago and no politics whatsoever. And that evening, we'd hold a more private gathering back at our hotel. Still, as the afternoon went on and our girls ran around the picnic grounds while Barack and I shook hands and hugged potential voters, I found myself wondering if the two of them would remember this outing as fun. I watched Sasha and Malia these days with a new fierceness in my heart. Like me, they now had strangers calling their names, people wanting to touch them and take their pictures. Over the winter, the government had deemed me and the girls exposed enough to assign us Secret Service protection, which meant that when Sasha and Malia went to school or their summer day camp, usually driven by my mother, it was with Secret Service tailing them in a second car. At the picnic, each one of us had our own agent flanking us, canvassing the gathering for any sign of threat, subtly intervening if a well-wisher got over-enthused and grabby. Thankfully, the girls seemed to see the agents less as guards and more as grown-up friends new additions to the growing knot of friendly people with whom we traveled, distinguishable only by their earpieces and quiet vigilance. 
Sasha generally referred to them as the secret people. The girls made campaigning more relaxing, if only because they weren't much invested in the outcome. For both me and Barack, they were a relief to be around, a reminder that in the end, our family meant more than any tallying of supporters or bump in the polls. Neither daughter cared much about the hubbub surrounding their dad. They weren't focused on building a better democracy or getting to the White House. All they really wanted, really, really wanted, was a puppy. They loved playing tag or card games with campaign staff during the quieter moments and made a point of finding an ice cream shop in every new place we went. Everything else was just noise. To this day, Malia and I crack up about the fact that she'd been eight years old when Barack, clearly feeling some sense of responsibility, posed the question one night while he was tucking her into bed. How would you feel if Daddy ran for president, he'd ask. Do you think it's a good idea? Sure, Daddy, she replied, pecking him on the cheek. His decision to run would alter nearly everything about her life after that, but how was she to know? She just rolled over then and drifted off to sleep. That day in Butte, we visited the local mining museum, had a water pistol battle, and kicked a soccer ball around in the grass. Barack gave his stump speech and shook the usual number of hands, but he also got to anchor himself back inside the unit of us. Sasha and Malia climbed over him, giggling and regaling him with their thoughts. I saw the lightness in his smile, admiring him for his ability to block out the peripheral distractions and just be a dad when he had the chance. He chatted with Maya and Conrad and kept an arm hooked around my shoulder as we walked from place to place. We were never alone. We had staff around us, agents guarding us, members of the press waiting for interviews, onlookers snapping pictures from a distance. But this was now our normal. Over the course of the campaign, our days had become so programmed that we'd watched our privacy and autonomy slowly slip away, both Barack and I handing nearly every aspect of our lives over to a bunch of 20-somethings who were highly intelligent and capable but still couldn't know how painful it could feel to give up control over my own life. If I needed something at the store, I had to ask someone to get it for me. If I wanted to speak to Barack, I usually had to send a request through one of his young staffers. Events and activities I didn't know about would sometimes show up on my calendar. But slowly, as a matter of survival, we were learning to live our lives more publicly, accepting the reality for what it was. Before the afternoon ended in Butte, we gave a TV interview all four of us, me, Barack, and the girls, which was something we'd never done before. Usually we insisted on keeping the press corps at a distance from our kids, limiting them to photos and then only at public campaign events. I'm not sure what prompted us to say yes this time. As I recall, the campaign staff thought it would be nice to give the public a closer glimpse of Barack as a parent, and in the moment I saw no harm in this. He loved our children, after all. He loved all children. 
it was precisely why he'd make a great president. We sat down for about 15 minutes with Maria Menounos of Access Hollywood, the four of us speaking to her while sitting together on a park bench that had been draped with some sort of cloth to make it look more festive. Malia had her hair braided, and Sasha wore a red tank dress. As always, they were disarmingly cute. Manunos was gracious and kept the conversation light, as Malia, the family's junior professor, earnestly pondered every question. She said that her dad embarrassed her sometimes when he tried to shake hands with her friends, and also that he bothered all of us when he left his campaign luggage blocking the door at home. Sasha did her best to sit still and stay focused, interrupting the interview only once, turning to me to ask, Hey, when are we getting ice cream? Otherwise, she listened to her sister, interjecting periodically with whatever semi-relevant detail popped into her head. Daddy had an afro once, she squealed at one point toward the end, and we all started to laugh. Days later, the interview aired in four parts on ABC and was met with an enthused fervor, covered by other news outlets with cloying taglines like Curtain Rises on Obama's Girls in TV Interview and The Obama's Two Little Girls Tell All. Suddenly, Malia's and Sasha's little kid comments were being picked up in newspapers around the world. Immediately, Barack and I regretted what we'd done. There was nothing salacious about the interview. There was no exploitative questions asked, no especially revealing detail offered. Still, we felt like we'd made a wrong choice, putting their voices into the public sphere long before they could really understand what any of it meant. Nothing in the video would hurt Sasha or Malia, but it was out in the world now and would live forever on the Internet. We'd taken two young girls who hadn't chosen this life, and without thinking it through, we fed them into the maw. By now, I knew something about the maw. We lived with the gaze upon us. It added a strange energy to everything. I had Oprah Winfrey sending me encouraging texts. Stevie Wonder, my childhood idol, was showing up to play at campaign events, joking and calling me by my first name as if we'd known each other forever. The amount of attention was disorienting, especially because I felt as if we hadn't really done much to deserve it. We were being lifted by the strength of the message Barack was putting forward, but also I knew by the promise and symbolism of the moment. If America elected its first black president, it would say something not just about Barack, but also about the country. For so many people, and for so many reasons, this mattered a lot. Barack, of course, got the most of it. The public adulation, as well as the scrutiny that rode inevitably on its back. The more popular you became, the more haters you acquired. It seemed almost like an unwritten rule, especially in politics where adversaries put money into opposition research, hiring investigators to crawl through every piece of a candidate's background, looking for anything resembling dirt. We're built differently, my husband and I. 
which is why one of us chose politics and the other did not. He was aware of rumors and misperceptions that got pumped like toxic vapor into the campaign, but rarely did any of it bother him. Barack had lived through other campaigns. He'd studied political history and girded himself with the context it provided. And in general, he's just not someone who's easily rattled or thrown off course by anything as abstract as doubt or hurt. I, on the other hand, was still learning about public life. I considered myself a confident, successful woman, but I was also the same kid who used to tell people she planned to be a pediatrician and devoted herself to setting perfect attendance records at school. In other words, I cared what people thought. I'd spent my young life seeking approval, dutifully collecting gold stars and avoiding messy social situations. Over time, I'd gotten better about not measuring my self-worth strictly in terms of standard, by-the-book achievement, but I did tend to believe that if I worked diligently and honestly, I'd avoid the bullies and always be seen as myself. This belief, though, was about to come undone. After Barack's victory in Iowa, my message on the campaign trail grew only more impassioned, almost proportional to the size of the crowds that were turning out at rallies. I'd gone from meeting hundreds of people at a gathering to a thousand or more. I remember pulling up to an event in Delaware with Melissa and Katie and seeing a line of people five deep and stretching around the block, waiting to get inside an already jammed auditorium. It stunned me in the happiest of ways. I relayed this to every crowd. I was floored by what people were bringing to Barack's campaign in terms of enthusiasm and involvement. I was humbled by their investment, the work I saw everyday people doing to help get him elected. When it came to my stump speech, building on the theory of campaigning that had worked so well for me in Iowa, I developed a loose structure for it, though I didn't use a teleprompter or worry if I went off on a slight tangent. My words weren't polished, and I'd never be as eloquent as my husband, but I spoke from the heart. I described how my initial doubts about the political process had slowly diminished week by week, replaced by something more encouraging and hopeful. So many of us, I was realizing, had the same struggles, the same concerns for our kids and worries about the future. And so many believed, as I did, that Barack was the only candidate capable of delivering real change. Barack wanted to get American troops out of Iraq. He wanted to roll back the tax cuts George W. Bush had pushed through for the super wealthy. He wanted affordable health care for all Americans. It was an ambitious platform, but every time I walked into an auditorium of revved-up supporters, it seemed as if maybe, as a nation, we were ready to look past our differences and make it happen. There was pride in those rooms, a united spirit that went well past the color of anyone's skin. The optimism was big, and it was energizing. I surfed it like a wave. Hope is making a comeback.
I would declare at every stop. I'd been in Wisconsin one day in February when Katie got a call from someone on Barack's communications team saying that there seemed to be a problem. I'd evidently said something controversial in a speech I'd given at a theater in Milwaukee a few hours earlier. Katie was confused, as was I. What I'd said in Milwaukee was really no different from what I'd just finished saying to a crowd in Madison, which was no different from what I'd been saying to every crowd for months. There'd never been an issue before. Why would there be one now? Later that day, we saw the issue for ourselves. Someone had taken film from my roughly 40-minute talk and edited it down to a single 10-second clip, stripping away the context, putting the emphasis on a few words. There were clips suddenly circulating from both the Milwaukee and Madison speeches focused on the part where I talked about feeling encouraged. The fuller version of what I said that day went like this. What we've learned over this year is that hope is making a comeback. And let me tell you something. For the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm really proud of my country. Not just because Barack has done well, but because I think people are hungry for change. I've been so desperate to see our country moving in that direction and just not feeling so alone in my frustration and disappointment. I've seen people who are hungry to be unified around some basic common issues, and it's made me so proud. I feel privileged to be a part of even witnessing this. But nearly all of that had been peeled back, including my references to hope and unity and how moved I was. The nuance was gone the gaze directed toward one thing. What was in the clips and now sliding into heavy rotation on conservative radio and TV talk shows, we were told, was this. For the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm really proud of my country. I didn't need to watch the news to know how it was being spun. She's not a patriot. She's always hated America. This is who she really is. The rest is just a show. Here was the first punch, and I'd seemingly brought it on myself. In trying to speak casually, I'd forgotten how weighted each little phrase could be. Unwittingly, I'd given the haters a 14-word feast. Just like in first grade, I hadn't seen it coming. I flew home to Chicago that night, feeling guilty and dispirited. I knew that Melissa and Katie were quietly tracking the negative news stories via BlackBerry, though they were careful not to share them with me, understanding it would only make things worse. The three of us had worked together for the better part of a year at this point, logging more miles than any of us could count, perpetually racing the clock so I could get back home to my kids at night. We'd trek through auditoriums all over the country, eat more fast food than we ever wanted to, and shown up for fancy fundraisers at homes so opulent we'd had to actively keep ourselves from gawking. While Barack and his campaign team traveled in chartered planes and cushy tour buses, we were still taking off our shoes in slow-moving airport security lines, sitting in coach on United and Southwest, 
relying on the goodwill of volunteers to shuttle us to and from events that were sometimes a hundred miles apart. I felt as if overall, we'd been doing a pretty excellent job. I'd seen Katie stand on a chair and shout marching orders to photographers twice her age and dress down reporters who asked out-of-line questions. I'd watch Melissa mastermind every detail of my schedule, expertly coordinating multiple campaign events in a day, pounding her BlackBerry to squelch potential problems, while also making sure I never missed a school play, an old friend's birthday, or a chance to get myself to the gym. The two of them had given everything over to this effort sacrificing their own personal lives so that I could try to preserve some semblance of mine. I sat under the dome light of the airplane, worried that I'd somehow blown it with those 14 stupid words. At home, after I'd put the girls to bed and sent my mom back to Euclid Avenue to get some rest, I called Barack on his cell. It was the eve of the Wisconsin primaries and the polls were showing a tight race. Barack had a thin but growing lead when it came to delegates for the national convention. But Hillary had been running ads criticizing Barack on everything from his health care plan to his not agreeing to debate her more frequently. The stakes seemed high. Barack's campaign couldn't afford a letdown. I apologized for what was happening with my speech. I had no idea I was doing something wrong, I said. I've been saying the same thing for months. Barack was traveling that night between Wisconsin and Texas. I could almost hear him shrugging on the other end of the line. Look, it's because your crowds are so big, he said. You become a force in this campaign, which means people are going to come after you a little. This is just the nature of things. As he did pretty much every time we spoke, he thanked me for the time I was putting in adding that he was sorry I had to deal with any fallout at all. I love you, honey, he told me before hanging up. I know this stuff is rough, but it'll blow over. It always does. He was both right and wrong about this. On February 19, 2008, Barack won the Wisconsin primary by a good margin, which seemed to suggest I'd done him no damage there. That same day, Cindy McCain took a pot shot at me while speaking at a rally, saying, I am proud of my country. I don't know about you if you heard those words earlier. I am very proud of my country. CNN deemed us to be in a patriotism flap, and the bloggers did what bloggers do. But within about a week, it seemed that most of the commotion had died down. Barack and I both made comments to the press, clarifying that I felt a pride in seeing so many Americans making phone calls for the campaign, talking to their neighbors and gaining confidence about their power inside our democracy, which to me did feel like a first. And then we moved on. In my campaign speeches, I tried to be more careful about how the words came out of my mouth, but my message remained the same. I was still proud and still encouraged. Nothing there had changed. And yet a pernicious seed had been planted. A perception of me as disgruntled and vaguely hostile 
lacking some expected level of grace. Whether it was originating from Barack's political opponents or elsewhere, we couldn't tell. But the rumors and slanted commentary almost always carried less than subtle messaging about race, meant to stir up the deepest and ugliest kind of fear within the voting public. Don't let black folks take over. They're not like you. Their vision is not yours. This wasn't helped by the fact that ABC News had combed through 29 hours of the Reverend Jeremiah Wright's sermons, splicing together a jarring highlight reel that showed the preacher careening through callous and inappropriate fits of rage and resentment at white America, as if white people were to blame for every woe. Barack and I were dismayed to see this, a reflection of the worst and most paranoid parts of the man who'd married us and baptized our children. Both of us had grown up with family members who viewed race through a lens of cranky mistrust. I'd experienced Dandy's simmering resentment over the decades he'd spent being passed by professionally because of his skin color, as well as Southside's worries that his grandkids weren't safe in white neighborhoods. Barack, meanwhile, had listened to Toot, his white grandmother, make offhanded ethnic generalizations and even confessed to her black grandson that she sometimes felt afraid when running into a black man on the street. We had lived for years with the narrow-mindedness of some of our elders, having accepted that no one is perfect, particularly those who'd come of age in a time of segregation. Perhaps this had caused us to overlook the more absurd parts of Reverend Wright's spitfire preaching, even when we hadn't been present for any of the sermons in question. Seeing an extreme version of his vitriol broadcast in the news, though, we were appalled. The whole affair was a reminder of how our country's distortions about race could be two-sided, that the suspicions and stereotyping ran both ways. Someone, meanwhile, had dug up my senior thesis from Princeton, written more than two decades earlier, a survey that looked at how African-American alumni felt about race and identity after being at Princeton. For reasons I'll never understand, the conservative media was treating my paper as if it were some secret black power manifesto, a threat that had been unburied. It was as if at the age of 21, instead of trying to get an A in sociology and a spot at Harvard Law School, I'd been hatching a Nat Turner plan to overthrow the white majority and was now finally, through my husband, getting a chance to put it in motion. Is Michelle Obama responsible for the Jeremiah Wright fiasco? Was the subtitle of an online column written by the author Christopher Hitchens. He tore into the college-age me, suggesting that I'd been unduly influenced by black radical thinkers and furthermore was a crappy writer. To describe it as hard to read would be a mistake, he wrote. The thesis cannot be read at all in the strict sense of the verb. This is because it wasn't written in any known language. I was being painted not simply as an outsider, but as fully other, so foreign that even my language couldn't be recognized.
It was a small-minded and ludicrous insult, sure, but this mocking of my intellect, his marginalizing of my young self, carried with it a larger dismissiveness. Barack and I were now too well-known to be rendered invisible. But if people saw us as alien and trespassing, then maybe our potency could be drained. The message seemed often to get telegraphed, if never said directly. These people don't belong. A photo of Barack wearing a turban and traditional Somali clothing that had been bestowed on him during an official visit he'd made to Kenya as a senator had shown up on the Drudge Report, reviving old theories that he was secretly Muslim. A few months later, the Internet would burp up another anonymous and unfounded rumor, this one questioning Barack's citizenship, floating the idea that he'd been born not in Hawaii but in Kenya, which would make him ineligible to become president. As we carried on through the primaries in Ohio and Texas, in Vermont and Mississippi, I had continued to speak about optimism and unity, feeling the positivity of people at campaign events coalescing around the idea of change. All along, though, the unflattering counter-narrative about me seemed only to gain traction. On Fox News, there'd been discussions of my militant anger. The Internet would produce more rumors that a videotape existed of me referring to white people as whitey, which was outlandish and just plainly untrue. In June, when Barack finally clinched the Democratic nomination, I'd greet him with a playful fist bump on stage at an event in Minnesota, which would then make headlines interpreted by one Fox commentator as a terrorist fish jab, again suggesting that we were dangerous. A news chiron on the same network had referred to me as Obama's baby mama, conjuring cliched notions of black ghetto America, implying an otherness that put me outside even my own marriage. I was getting worn out, not physically, but emotionally. The punches hurt, even if I understood that they had little to do with who I really was as a person. It was as if there were some cartoon version of me out there wreaking havoc. A woman I kept hearing about but didn't know. A too tall, too forceful, ready to emasculate Godzilla of a political wife named Michelle Obama. Painfully, too, my friends would sometimes call and unload their worries on me, heaping me with advice they thought I should pass on to Barack's campaign manager or wanting me to reassure them after they'd heard a negative news report about me or Barack or the state of the campaign. When rumors about the so-called Whitey tape surfaced, a friend who knows me well called up, clearly worried that the lie was true. I had to spend a good 30 minutes convincing her that I hadn't turned into a racist, and when the conversation ended, I hung up thoroughly demoralized. In general. I felt as if I couldn't win, that no amount of faith or hard work would push me past my detractors and their attempts to invalidate me. I was female, black, and strong, which to certain people, maintaining a certain mindset, translated only to angry. It was another damaging cliché, one that's been forever used 
to sweep minority women to the perimeter of every room, an unconscious signal not to listen to what we've got to say. I was now starting to actually feel a bit angry, which then made me feel worse, as if I were fulfilling some prophecy laid out for me by the haters, as if I'd given in. It's remarkable how a stereotype functions as an actual trap. How many angry black women have been caught in the circular logic of that phrase? When you aren't being listened to, why wouldn't you get louder? If you're written off as angry or emotional, doesn't that just cost more of the same? I was exhausted by the meanness, thrown off by how personal it had become and feeling too as if there was no way I could quit. Sometime in May, the Tennessee Republican Party released an online video replaying my remarks in Wisconsin against clips of voters saying things like, Boy, I've been proud to be an American since I was a kid. NPR's website carried a story with the headline, Is Michelle Obama an asset or a liability? Below it, in boldface, came what were apparently points of debate about me, refreshingly honest or too direct, and her looks, regal or intimidating. I'm telling you, this stuff hurt. I sometimes blamed Barack's campaign for the position I was in. I understood that I was more active than many candidate spouses, which made me more of a target for attacks. My instinct was to hit back, to speak up against the lies and unfair generalizations, or to have Barack make some comment. But his campaign team kept telling me it was better not to respond, to march forward and simply take the hits. This is just politics, was always the mantra, as if we could do nothing about it, as if we'd all move to a new city on a new planet called politics, where none of the normal rules applied. Anytime my spirit started to dip, I'd punish myself further with a slew of disparaging thoughts. I hadn't chosen this. I'd never liked politics. I'd left my job and given my identity over to this campaign, and now I was a liability? Where had my power gone? Sitting in our kitchen in Chicago on a Sunday evening when Barack was home for a one-night stopover, I'd let all my frustrations pour out. I don't need to do this, I told him. If I'm hurting the campaign, why on earth am I out there? I explained that Melissa, Katie, and I were feeling overmatched by the volume of media requests and the work it took to travel on the tight budget we were on. I didn't want to foul anything up, and I wanted to be supportive. But we lacked the time and resources to do any more than react to the moment at hand. And when it came to the mounting scrutiny of me, I was tired of being defenseless tired of being seen as someone altogether different from the person I was. I can stay home and be with the kids if that's better, I told Barack. I'll just be a regular wife who shows up only at the big events and smiles. Maybe that'd be a lot easier on everybody. Barack listened sympathetically. I could tell he was tired, eager to head upstairs and get some needed sleep. I hated sometimes how the lines had blurred between family life and political life for us. His days were filled with split-second problem-solving and hundreds of interactions. I didn't want to be another issue he needed to contend with. But then again, 
my existence had been fully folded into his. You're so much more of an asset than a liability, Michelle. You have to know that, he said, looking stricken. But if you want to stop or slow down, I completely understand. You can do whatever you want here. He told me I should never feel beholden to him or to the machinery of the campaign. And if I wanted to keep going but needed more support and resources to do it, he'd figure out how to get them. I was comforted by this, though only a little. I still felt like the first grader in the lunch line who'd just been walloped. But with this, we dropped the politics and took our weary selves to bed. Not long after that, I went to David Axelrod's office in Chicago and sat down with him and Valerie to watch video of some of my public appearances. It was, I realize now, something of an intervention, an attempt to show me which small parts of this process I could control. The two of them praised me for how hard I'd been working and how effectively I was able to rally Barack's supporters. But then Axe muted the volume as he replayed my stump speech, removing my voice so that we could look more closely at my body language, specifically my facial expressions. What did I see? I saw myself speaking with intensity and conviction and never letting up. I always addressed the tough times many Americans were facing, as well as the inequities within our schools and our healthcare system. My face reflected the seriousness of what I believed was at stake, how important the choice that lay before our nation really was. But it was too serious, too severe, at least given what people were conditioned to expect from a woman. I saw my expression as a stranger might perceive it, especially if it was framed with an unflattering message. I could see how the opposition had managed to dice up these images and feed me to the public as some sort of pissed-off harpy. It was, of course, another stereotype, another trap. The easiest way to disregard a woman's voice is to package her as a scold. No one seemed to criticize Barack for appearing too serious or not smiling enough. I was a wife and not a candidate, obviously, so perhaps the expectation was for me to provide more lightness, more fluff. And yet, if there was any question about how women in general fared on planet politics, one needed only to look at how Nancy Pelosi, the smart and hard-driving speaker of the House of Representatives was often depicted as a shrew, or what Hillary Clinton was enduring, as cable pundits and opinion writers hashed and rehashed each development in the campaign. Hillary's gender was used against her relentlessly, drawing from all the worst stereotypes. She was called domineering, a nag, a bitch, her voice was interpreted as screechy, her laugh as a cackle. Hillary was Barack's opponent, which meant that I wasn't inclined to feel especially warm toward her just then, but I couldn't help but admire her ability to stand up and keep fighting amid the misogyny. Reviewing videotape with Axe and Valerie that day, I felt tears pricking at my eyes. I was upset. 
I could see now that there was a performative piece to politics that I hadn't yet fully mastered. And I'd been out there giving speeches already for more than a year. I'd communicated best, I realize now, in smaller venues like the ones I'd done in Iowa. It was harder to convey warmth in larger auditoriums. Bigger crowds required clearer facial cues, which was something I needed to work on. I was worried now that it was almost too late. Valerie, my dear friend of more than 15 years, reached out to squeeze my hand. Why didn't you guys talk to me about this sooner, I asked. Why didn't anyone try to help? The answer was that no one had been paying all that much attention. The perception inside Barack's campaign seemed to be that I was doing fine until I wasn't. Only now, when I was a problem, was I summoned to Axe's office. For me, this was a turnaround point. The campaign apparatus existed exclusively to serve the candidate, not the spouse or the family. And as much as Barack's staffers respected me and valued my contribution, they'd never given me much in the way of guidance. Until that point, no one from the campaign had bothered to travel with me or show up for my events. I'd never received media training or speech prep. No one, I realized, was going to look out for me unless I pushed for it knowing that the gaze was only going to intensify as we moved into the last six or so months of the campaign, we agreed finally that I needed real help. If I was going to continue to campaign like a candidate, I needed to be supported like a candidate. I'd protect myself by being better organized, by insisting on having the resources I needed to do the job well. In the final weeks of the primaries, Barack's campaign began expanding my team to include a scheduler and a personal aide. Kristen Jarvis, a warm-hearted former staffer from Barack's U.S. Senate office, whose steady demeanor would keep me grounded in high-stress moments, plus a no-nonsense, politically savvy communications specialist named Stephanie Cutter. Working with Katie and Melissa, Stephanie helped me sharpen my message and my presentation, building toward a major speech I delivered late that summer at the Democratic National Convention. We were also finally granted access to a campaign plane, which allowed me to move more efficiently. I could now give media interviews during flights, get my hair and makeup done en route to an event, or bring Sasha and Malia along with me at no extra cost. It was a relief. All of it was a relief. And I do think that it allowed me to smile more, to feel less on guard. As we planned my public appearances, Stephanie counseled me to play to my strengths and to remember the things I most enjoy talking about, which was my love for my husband and kids, my connection with working mothers, and my proud Chicago roots. She recognized that I liked to joke around and told me not to hold back with my humor. It was okay, in other words, to be myself. Shortly after the primaries wrapped up, I signed on to co-host The View, spending a happy and spirited hour 
with Whoopi Goldberg, Barbara Walters, and the other hosts in front of a live audience talking about the attacks against me, but also laughing about the girls and the fist bumps and the nuisance of pantyhose. I felt a new ease, a new ownership of my voice. The show aired to generally positive commentary. I'd worn a $148 black and white dress that women were suddenly scrambling to buy. I was having an impact and beginning to enjoy myself at the same time, feeling more and more open and optimistic. I also was trying to learn from the Americans I was meeting around the country, holding roundtables designed to focus on work-family balance, an issue in which I had a keen interest. For me, the most humbling lessons came when I visited military communities and met with soldiers' spouses, groups of mostly women, though sometimes with a few men mixed in. Tell me about your lives, I'd say. And then I'd listen as women with babies on their laps, some of them still teenagers themselves, told me stories. Some described being transferred between bases eight or more times in as many years, in each instance needing to start over and settling their children into things like music lessons or enrichment programs. They explained, too, how difficult it could be to maintain a career over the course of all those moves. A teacher, for instance, wasn't able to find a job because her new state didn't recognize the old state's teaching certificate. Nail technicians and physical therapists faced similar problems with licensing. Many young parents had trouble finding affordable child care. All of it, of course, was shaded by the logistical and emotional burdens of having a loved one deployed for 12 months or more at a time to a place like Kabul or Mosul or on an aircraft carrier in the South China Sea. Meeting these spouses instantly put whatever hurt I was feeling into perspective. Their sacrifices were far greater than mine. I sat in these meetings, engrossed and somewhat taken aback by the fact that I knew so little about military life. I vowed to myself that if Barack was fortunate enough to be elected, I'd find some way to better support these families. All of this left me more energized to help make the final push for Barack and Joe Biden, the affable senator from Delaware who'd soon be announced as his running mate. I felt emboldened to follow my instincts again, surrounded by people who had my back. At public events, I focused on making personal connections with the people I met, in small groups and in crowds of thousands, in backstage chats and harried rope lines. When voters got to see me as a person, they understood that the caricatures were untrue. I've learned that it's harder to hate up close. I would go on to spend the summer of 2008 moving faster and working harder, convinced that I could make a positive difference for Barack. With the convention drawing close, I worked with a speechwriter for the first time a gifted young woman named Sarah Hurwitz, who helped shape my ideas into a tight 17-minute speech. After weeks of careful preparation, I walked on stage at the Pepsi Center in Denver in late August and stood before an audience 
of some 20,000 people and a TV audience of millions more, ready to articulate to the world who I really was. That night, my brother Craig introduced me. My mother sat in the front row of a skybox, looking a little stunned by how giant the platform for our lives had become. I spoke of my father, his humility, his resilience, and how all that had shaped me and Craig. I tried to give Americans the most intimate view possible of Barack and his noble heart. When I finished, people applauded and applauded, and I felt a powerful blast of relief, knowing that maybe I'd done something finally to change people's perception of me. It was a big moment for sure, grand and public, and to this day, readily findable on YouTube. But the truth is, for those exact reasons, it was also strangely kind of a small moment. My view of things was starting to reverse itself, like a sweater slowly being turned inside out. Stages, audiences, lights, applause. These were becoming more normal than I'd ever thought they could be. What I lived for now were the unrehearsed, unphotographed, in-between moments where nobody was performing and no one was judging and real surprise was still possible. Where sometimes, without warning, you might feel a tiny latch spring open on your heart. For this, we need to go back to Butte, Montana, on the 4th of July. It was the end of our day there. The summer sun finally dropping behind the western mountains, the sound of firecrackers beginning to pop in the distance. We were holing up for the night at a Holiday Inn Express next to the interstate, with Barack leaving for Missouri the next day, and the girls and I headed home to Chicago. We were tired, all of us. We'd done the parade and the picnic. We'd engaged with what felt like every last resident in the town of Butte. And now, finally, we were going to have a little gathering just for Malia. If you asked me at the time, I'd have said that we came up short for her in the end, that her birthday felt like an afterthought in the maelstrom of the campaign. We got together in a fluorescent-lit, low-ceiling conference room in the basement of the hotel with Conrad, Maya, and Suhela, plus a handful of staffers who were close with Malia, and of course the Secret Service agents, who were always close no matter what. We had some balloons, a grocery store cake, tin candles, and a tub of ice cream. There were a few gifts bought and wrapped on the fly by someone who was not me. The mood was not exactly desultory, but it wasn't festive either. It had simply been too long of a day. Barack and I shared a dark look, knowing we'd failed. Ultimately, though, like so many things, it was a matter of perception, how we decided to look at what was in front of us. Barack and I were focused only on our faults and insufficiencies, seeing them reflected in that drab room and thrown-together party. But Malia was looking for something different, and she saw it. She saw kind faces, people who loved her, a thickly frosted cake, 
a little sister and cousin by her side, a new year ahead. She'd spent the day outdoors. She'd seen a parade. Tomorrow, there would be an airplane ride. She marched over to where Barack sat and threw herself into his lap. This, she declared, is the best birthday ever. She didn't notice that both her mom and her dad got teary or that half the people in the room were now choked up as well because she was right. And suddenly we all saw it. She was 10 years old that day and everything was the best. 18. Four months later, on November 4th, 2008, I cast my vote for Barack. The two of us went early that morning to our polling place, which was in the gym at Beulah Shoesmith Elementary School, just a few blocks away from our house in Chicago. We brought Sasha and Malia along, both of them dressed and ready for school. Even on election day, maybe especially on election day, I thought school would be a good idea. School was routine. School was comfort. As we walked past banks of photographers and TV cameras to get into the gym, as people around us talked about the historic nature of everything, I was happy to have the lunch boxes packed. What kind of day would this be? It would be a long day. Beyond that, none of us knew. Barack, as he always is on high-pressure days, was more easygoing than ever. He greeted the poll workers, picked up his ballot, and shook hands with anyone he encountered, appearing relaxed. It made sense, I guess. This whole endeavor was about to be out of his hands. We stood shoulder to shoulder at our voting stations while the girls leaned in closely to watch what each of us was doing. I'd voted for Barack many times before, in primaries and general elections, in state-level and national races, and this trip to the polls felt no different. Voting for me was a habit, a healthy ritual to be done conscientiously and at every opportunity. My parents had taken me to the polls as a kid, and I'd made a practice of bringing Sasha and Malia with me any time I could, hoping to reinforce both the ease and the importance of the act. My husband's career had allowed me to witness the machinations of politics and power up close. I'd seen how just a handful of votes in every precinct could mean the difference not just between one candidate and another, but between one value system and the next. If a few people stayed home in each neighborhood, it could determine what our kids learned in schools, which health care options we had available, or whether or not we sent our troops to war. Voting was both simple and incredibly effective. That day, I stared for a few extra seconds at the little oblong bubble next to my husband's name for President of the United States. After almost 21 months of campaigning, attacks, and exhaustion, this was it. The last thing I needed to do. Barack glanced my way and laughed. You still trying to make up your mind, he said? Need a little more time? Were it not for the anxiety, 
an election day might qualify as a kind of mini-vacation, a surreal pause between everything that's happened and whatever lies ahead. You've leaped, but you haven't landed. You can't know yet how the future is going to feel. After months of everything going too fast, time slows to an agonizing crawl. Back home, I played hostess to family and friends who stopped by our house to make small talk and help pass the hours. At some point that morning, Barack went off to play basketball with Craig and some friends at a nearby gym, which had become a kind of election day custom. Barack loved nothing more than a strenuous thrash or be thrash game of basketball to settle his nerves. Just don't let anyone break his nose, I said to Craig as the two of them walked out the door. He's got to be on TV later, you know. Way to make me responsible for everything, Craig said back, as only a brother can. And then they were gone. If you believe the polls, it appeared that Barack was poised to win. But I also knew he'd been working on two possible speeches for the night ahead. One for a victory and another for a concession. By now, we understood enough about politics and polling to take nothing for granted. We knew of the phenomenon called the Bradley Effect, named for an African-American candidate, Tom Bradley, who'd run for governor in California in the early 1980s. While the polls had consistently shown Bradley leading, he'd lost on Election Day, surprising everyone and supplying the world with a bigger lesson about bigotry as the pattern repeated itself for years to come in different high-profile races involving black candidates around the country. The theory was that when it came to minority candidates, voters often hid their prejudice from pollsters, expressing it only from the privacy of the voting booth. Throughout the campaign, I'd ask myself over and over whether America was really ready to elect a black president whether the country was in a strong enough place to see beyond race and move past prejudice. Finally, we were about to find out. As a whole, the general election had been less grueling than the pitched battle of the primaries. John McCain had done himself no favors by choosing Alaska's governor, Sarah Palin, as his running mate. Inexperienced and unprepared, she'd quickly become a national punchline. And then, in mid-September, the news had turned disastrous. The U.S. economy began to spiral out of control when Lehman Brothers, one of the country's largest investment banks, abruptly went belly up. The titans of Wall Street, the world now realized, had spent years racking up profits on the backs of junk home loans. Stocks plummeted. Credit markets froze. Retirement funds vanished. Barack was the right person for this moment in history, for a job that was never going to be easy, but that had grown, thanks to the financial crisis, exponentially more difficult. I'd been trumpeting it for more than a year and a half now, all over America. My husband was calm and prepared. Complexity didn't scare him. He had a brain capable of sorting through every intricacy. I was biased, of course, and personally, I still would have been content to lose the election and reclaim some version of our old lives 
But I also was feeling that as a country, we truly needed his help. It was time to stop thinking about something as arbitrary as skin color. We'd be foolish at this point not to put him in office. Still, he would inherit a mess. As evening drew closer, I felt my fingers getting numb, a nervous tingle running through my body. I couldn't really eat. I lost interest in making small talk with my mom or the friends who'd stopped by. At some point, I went upstairs just to catch a moment to myself. Barack, it turned out, had retreated up there as well, clearly needing a moment of his own. I found him sitting at his desk, looking over the text of his victory speech in the little book-strewn office adjacent to our bedroom, his hole. I walked over and began rubbing his shoulders. You doing okay, I said. Yep. Tired? Nope. He smiled up at me as if trying to prove it was true. Only a day earlier, we'd received news that Toot, Barack's 86-year-old grandmother, had passed away in Hawaii after being sick for months with cancer. Knowing he'd missed saying goodbye to his mother, Barack had made a point of seeing Toot. We'd taken the kids to visit her late that summer, and he'd gone again on his own ten days earlier stepping off the campaign trail for a day to sit and hold her hand. It occurred to me what a sad thing this was. Barack had lost his mother at the very genesis of his political career, two months after announcing his run for state senate. Now, as he reached its apex, his grandmother wouldn't be around to witness it. The people who'd raised him were gone. I'm proud of you no matter what happens, I said. You've done so much good. He lifted himself out of his seat and put his arms around me. So have you, he said, pulling me close. We've both done all right. All I could think about was everything he still had to carry. After a family dinner at home, We got dressed up and rode downtown to watch election returns with a small group of friends and family in a suite the campaign had rented for us at the Hyatt Regency. The campaign staff had cloistered itself in a different area of the hotel, trying to give us some privacy. Joe and Jill Biden had their own suite for friends and family across the hall. The first results came in around 6 p.m. Central Time, with Kentucky going for McCain and Vermont for Barack. Then West Virginia went for McCain, and after that, so did South Carolina. My confidence lurched a little bit, though none of this was a surprise. According to Axe and Pluff, who were buzzing in and out of the room, announcing what felt like every sliver of information they received, everything was unfolding as predicted. Though the updates were generally positive, The political chatter was the last thing I wanted to hear. We had no control over anything anyway, so what was the point? We'd leaped, and now, one way or another, we'd land. We could see on TV that thousands of people were already amassing at Grant Park, a mile or so away on the lakefront, where election coverage was being broadcast on jumbotron screens and where Barack would later show up to deliver one of his two speeches, 
There were police officers stationed on practically every corner. Coast Guard boats patrolling the lake, helicopters overhead. All of Chicago, it seemed, was holding its breath, waiting for news. Connecticut went for Barack. Then New Hampshire went for Barack. So did Massachusetts, Maine, Delaware, and D.C. When Illinois was called for Barack, we could hear cars honking and shouts of excitement from the streets below. I found a chair near the door to the suite and sat alone, surveying the scene in front of me. The room had gone mostly quiet now, the political teams, nervous updates, having given way to an expectant, almost sober kind of calm. To my right, the girls sat in their red and black dresses on a couch, and to my left, Barack, his suit coat draped elsewhere in the room, had taken a seat on another couch next to my mother, who was dressed that evening in an elegant black suit and silver earrings. Are you ready for this, Grandma? I heard Barack say to her. Never one to over-emote. My mom just gave him a sideways look and a shrug, causing them both to smile. Later, though, she described to me how overcome she'd felt right then, struck just as I'd been by his vulnerability. America had come to see Barack as self-assured and powerful. But my mother also recognized the gravity of the passage, the loneliness of the job ahead. Here was this man who no longer had a father or a mother about to be elected the leader of the free world. The next time I looked over, I saw that she and Barack were holding hands. It was exactly 10 o'clock when the networks began to flash pictures of my smiling husband declaring that Barack Hussein Obama would become the 44th president of the United States. We all leaped to our feet and started instinctively to yell. Our campaign staff streamed into the room, as did the Bidens, everyone hurling themselves from one hug to the next. It was surreal. I felt as if I'd been lifted out of my own body, only watching myself react. He had done it. We'd all done it. It hardly seemed possible, but the victory was sound. Here is where I felt like our family got launched out of a cannon and into some strange underwater universe. Things felt slow and aqueous and slightly distorted. Even if we were moving quickly and with precise guidance, waved by Secret Service agents into a freight elevator, hustled out a back exit at the hotel, and into a waiting SUV. Did I breathe the air as we stepped outside? Did I thank the person who held open the door as we passed by? Was I smiling? I don't know. It was as if I were trying to frog-kick my way back to reality. Some of this, I assumed, had to be fatigue. It had been, as predicted, a very long day. I could see the grogginess in the girls' faces. I'd prepared them for this next part of the night, explaining that whether Dad won or lost, we were going to have a big, noisy celebration in a park. We were gliding now in a police-escorted motorcade along Lakeshore Drive, 
speeding south toward Grant Park. I travel the same road hundreds of times in my life, from my bus rides home from Whitney Young to the pre-dawn drives to the gym. This was my city, as familiar to me as a place could be. And yet that night it felt different, transformed into something strangely quiet. It was as if we were suspended in time and space, a little like a dream. Malia had been peering out the window of the SUV, taking it all in. Daddy, she said, sounding almost apologetic. There's no one on the road. I don't think anyone's coming to your celebration. Barack and I looked at each other and started to laugh. It was then that we realized that ours were the only cars on the street. Barack was now president-elect. The Secret Service had cleared everything out, shutting down an entire section of Lakeshore Drive, blocking every intersection along the route. A standard precaution for a president, we'd soon learn. But for us, it was new. Everything was new. I put my arm around Malia. The people are already there, sweetie, I said. Don't worry, they're waiting for us. And they were. More than 200,000 people had crammed into the park to see us. We could hear an expectant hum as we exited the vehicles and were ushered into a set of white tents that had been put up at the front of the park, forming a tunnel that led to the stage. A group of friends and family had gathered there to greet us, only now, due to Secret Service protocol, they were cordoned off behind a rope. Barack put his arm around me, almost as if to make sure I was still there. We walked out onto the stage a few minutes later, the four of us, me holding Malia's hand and Barack holding Sasha's. I saw a lot of things at once. I saw that a wall of thick, bulletproof glass had been erected around the stage. I saw an ocean of people, many of them waving little American flags. My brain could process none of it. It all felt too big. I remember little of Barack's speech that night. Sasha, Malia, and I watched him from the wings as he said his words, surrounded by those glass shields, and by our city, and by the comfort of more than 69 million votes. What stays with me is that sense of comfort, the unusual calmness, of that unusually warm November night by the lake in Chicago. After so many months of going to high-energy campaign rallies with crowds deliberately whipped up into a shouting, chanting frenzy, the atmosphere in Grant Park was different. We were standing before a giant, jubilant mass of Americans who were also palpably reflective. What I heard was relative silence. It seemed almost as if I could make out every face in the crowd. There were tears in many eyes. Maybe the calmness was something I imagined. Or maybe for all of us, it was just a product of the late hour. It was almost midnight, after all. And everyone had been waiting. We'd been waiting. A long, long time.
becoming more. 19. There is no handbook for incoming First Ladies of the United States. It's not technically a job, nor is it an official government title. It comes with no salary and no spelled out set of obligations. It's a strange kind of sidecar to the presidency, a seat that by the time I came to it had already been occupied. By more than 43 different women, each of whom had done it in her own way. I knew only a little about previous First Ladies and how they'd approached the position. I knew that Jackie Kennedy had dedicated herself to redecorating the White House. I recalled that Rosalind Carter had sat in on cabinet meetings. Nancy Reagan had gotten into some trouble accepting free designer dresses. And Hillary Clinton. Had been derided for taking on a policy role in her husband's administration. Once, a couple of years earlier, at a luncheon for U.S. Senate spouses, I watched, half in shock, half in awe, as Laura Bush posed, serene and smiling, for ceremonial photos with about a hundred different people, never once losing her composure or needing a break. First ladies showed up in the news having tea with spouses of foreign dignitaries. They sent out official greetings on holidays and wore pretty gowns to state dinners. I knew that they normally picked a cause or two to champion as well. I understood already that I'd be measured by a different yardstick. As the only African American first lady to set foot in the White House, I was other almost by default. If there was a presumed grace assigned to my white predecessors, I knew it wasn't likely to be the same for me. I learned through the campaign stumbles that I had to be better, faster, smarter, and stronger than ever. My grace would need to be earned. I worried that many Americans wouldn't see themselves reflected in me or that they wouldn't relate to my journey. I wouldn't have the luxury of settling into my new role slowly before being judged. And when it came to judgment, I was as vulnerable as ever to the unfounded fears and racial stereotypes that lay just beneath the surface of the public consciousness, ready to be stirred up by rumor and innuendo. I was humbled and excited to be First Lady, but not for one second did I think I'd be sliding into some glamorous, easy role. Nobody who has the words first and black attached to them ever would. I stood at the foot of the mountain, knowing I'd need to climb my way into favor. For me, it revived an old internal call and response, one that tracked all the way back to high school when I'd shown up at Winnie Young and found myself suddenly gripped by doubt. Confidence I'd learned then, sometimes, Needs to be called from within. I've repeated the same words to myself many times now, through many climbs. Am I good enough? Yes, I am. The 76 days between election and inauguration felt like a critical time to start setting the tone for the kind of First Lady I wanted to be. After all I'd done to lever myself out of corporate law, And into more meaningful community minded work, 
I knew I'd be happiest if I could engage actively and work toward achieving measurable results. I intended to make good on the promises I'd made to the military spouses I'd met while campaigning, to help share their stories and find ways to support them. And then there were my ideas for planning a garden and looking to improve children's health and nutrition on a larger scale. I didn't want to go about any of it casually. I intended to arrive at the White House with a carefully thought out strategy and a strong team backing me. If I'd learned anything from the ugliness of the campaign, from the myriad ways people had sought to write me off as angry or unbecoming, it was that public judgment sweeps in to fill any void. If you don't get out there and define yourself, you'll be quickly and inaccurately defined by others. I wasn't interested in slotting myself into a passive role, waiting for Barack's team to give me direction. After coming through the crucible of the last year, I knew that I would never allow myself to get that banged up again.